workers' correspondence represented only a portion, albeit a large one, of the most lucid letters received. Communist editors probably selected the more dramatic missives that reiterated the communists' vision of revolutionary change or paralleled the party's perception of working-class life. Thus, most published letters focused on the drudgery of work and poverty, the militancy of the rank and file, or provided factual accounts of local events. Yet, when used carefully, workers' correspondence offers an unparalleled source for understanding the complexity of oppositional consciousness. For example, some of the letters from black sharecroppers reveal a great deal about the nature of hegemony in the rural South and underscore the fact that opposition arises as much from within the prevailing ideological order as from outside it. Several poor black tenants, for example, admonished their landlords for shunning responsibilities as plantation patriarchs while spending great sums of money on superfluous personal consumption. You can go to the landlord, one young sharecropper wrote, and asking him for something and he will tell a flat-footed lie and say he ain't got money and then go buy himself a fine car. But few published letters attacked the landlords because of their failure to fulfill their paternal obligations. Only a revolution, wrote one Talapusa organizer, could break their rotten system down and truly improve conditions in Alabama. What he had imagined was a new world in which there was neither poverty nor deference, a world where everyone lived like a boss. We must fight to weaken their tight grip, and then we can eat and wear as the ruling class does. It's bad the way we have to go up and ask, and knowing that it is there we must organize into stronger masses and demand the bosses to give us what we want. Among the more commonly published letters were hyperbolic declarations of devotion to the movement, which communist editors too often took literally. Communists and SEU organizers submitted rhetorical statements pledging to fight fearlessly until death, placing themselves symbolically in the tradition of martyrdom. The bosses say they are going to starve us Negroes to death, wrote a young Dadeville woman, but if I starve... I will surely starve in the Union. A black man, also from Dadeville, boasted of his three-year membership in the SEU and proclaimed his intention to remain until death fighting for the Negro rights. The bosses have set out to starve us to death, but we are set to break their rotten system down by organizing into one solid Union. The writer not only echoed the theme of starvation and death that reappears in most of the letters, but pledged a collective rather than individual commitment. Similarly, a black Talapusa woman committed her community to support the SCU and the party, despite the possible consequences. Even if we are naked, hungry, and denied by the boss, we are going to stand up and fight for our rights. Expressions of oppositional thought also manifested themselves in music. In the abandoned houses and isolated churches of rural Alabama, leaders of the SEU sustained a tradition of singing before and after gatherings, a practice adopted from the rural church services 
after which they patterned their meetings. In addition to standards such as the Internationale and Solidarity Forever, rural blacks in and around the party transformed popular spirituals into political songs with new messages. We shall not be moved, and the ever-popular Give Me That Old-Time Religion were stock musical forms used to create new party songs. In the latter, the verse was changed to Give Me That Old Communist Spirit, and party members closed out each stanza with It is good enough for Lenin, and it's good enough for me. In the Black Belt especially, Ralph Gray frequently replaced Lenin in the final line. The same melody was also the basis for the Scottsboro song. The Scottsboro verdict, the Scottsboro verdict, the Scottsboro verdict is not good enough for me. It's good for big fat bosses, for workers, double crossers, for low down slaves and hosses, but it ain't good enough for me. The custom of singing protest songs at party functions or communist-led demonstrations was surprisingly uncommon in Birmingham during the third period and was not adopted until the Popular Front. This is ironic when one considers Birmingham's rich tradition of labor songs and the extent to which black industrial workers, including communists, were involved in the regional gospel quartet circuit, not to mention the contributions of Southern radical songwriters Ella Mae Wiggins, Florence Reese, and Aunt Molly Jackson. But the underground nature of the party and the repressive terrain in which it operated, from alleys to armed mining camps, impeded the practice of singing even the mildest of party songs. Nevertheless, Birmingham radicals did manage on occasion to express their attachment to the movement and their vision of the coming world through music. A black woman IOD activist turned My Mother's Got a Stone That Was Hewn Out of the Mountain into We Got a Stone, which was eventually designated the official ILD song in the South. The chorus was changed to Come a-rollin' through Dixie, Come a-rollin' through Dixie, a tearin' down the kingdom of the boss. And the verses referred to the militant example of the ILD and the role of workers in the class struggle. The music of Southern working people entered party culture in ways that have usually gone unnoticed. Most of the early songs published in the Southern Worker were personal expressions of exploitation and resistance that provided an outlet comparable to workers' correspondence. One of the earliest editions of the Southern Worker received a piece entitled Autumn Blues, describing the vicissitudes of Southern rural life. The backer ain't a-sellin', the corn is dryin' up, there ain't a bit of tellin' where the army worms will sup. The weevil eats the cotton, the beetle eats the beans. Do you think it's any wonder there's nothing in my jeans? The Southern Worker published The Bedspread Blues by an anonymous woman whose lyrics expressed the burden of her own double day as a wife and a worker and emphasized the centrality of her role in the survival of the family. Work from early morning until ten at night, all the dishes dirty, kitchen in a sight, 
landlord comes a-knocking, says he wants his rent. All that I can tell him, haven't got a cent. I've got the blues, I've got the blues, the tufted bedspread blues. Got a good old husband, working on relief, gets his ninety cents a week and a can of beef. Having time to worry, got no time to lose, got to make a living, spite the bedspread blues. Secular songs such as these certainly caught the attention of left-wing musicologists who generally preferred Negro workaday songs over spirituals. But in spite of the political penchants of radical cultural theorists, black Alabama radicals drew their songs, and much more, from the spiritual world of the community. Many leading communists failed to understand that most of their black working-class comrades shared with the non-communist community a grassroots understanding of exploitation and oppression based more on scripture than anything else. Forged in yesterday's slave quarters, this prophetic interpretation of Christianity had informed black resistance for nearly three centuries. Yet, as Gay Rod Wilmore points out, by the early 1920s, the black church was no longer at the center of black resistance. The period after World War I witnessed a de-radicalization of the black church, as well as a simultaneous secularization of black radicalism. Nevertheless, a radical interpretation of Christianity continued to thrive outside of the organized church. Ironically, this radical prophetic tradition of Christianity was a major factor in drawing blacks into the Communist Party and its mass organizations. References to God in the Bible appeared rather frequently in letters from Alabama's black radicals. Your movement is the best that I ever heard of, wrote a black woman from Orville, Alabama. God bless you for opening up the eyes of the Negro race. I pray that your leaders will push the fight. I am praying the good Lord will put your program over. Nearly all black rank-and-file party members attended church regularly and in Montgomery, black communists initiated the ironic, in short-lived, practice of opening their meetings with a prayer. The Bible was as much a guide to class struggle as Marx and Engels's Communist Manifesto. Rank-and-file black communists and supporters usually saw nothing contradictory in combining religion and politics. Communist agents told Alabamians, John Garner remembers, the same thing that Jesus Christ himself told us that our burden was going to be heavy like this. Angelo Herndon initially interpreted the struggle in biblical terms. While at an unemployed meeting, he was reminded of a phrase popular among black folks, and the day shall come when the bottom rail shall be on top and the top rail on the bottom. The Ethiopians will stretch forth their arms and find their place under the sun. The mass meetings and oratory describing the possibilities of a future without masters or slaves may have also paralleled the church experience. The conversion of the masses to communism is an emotional conversion, wrote a black Baltimore minister in 1933. They are shouting happy over what communism has done for them and praising God for what they expect it to do. 
Herndon's description of his conversion to the party's philosophy reinforces these observations. At the conclusion of a Birmingham unemployed meeting, he was reminded of the time when my Uncle Jeremiah preached his first sermon. The emotional motivation in both cases was identical, but what a difference in their nature and in their aim. Unlike their counterparts in the urban north, Southern CP leaders rarely challenged the rank-and-file's religious beliefs. Birmingham communists occasionally debated God's existence, but party literature produced locally virtually never attacked religion. On the contrary, organizers in the South sometimes appropriated religious imagery and language, as in Nat Ross's declaration that the communists can and will destroy this hell and build a heaven for the Southern working people right here in Dixie. The Blast, a party shop paper in the steel mills, carried a biting cartoon of one hated foreman, a speed-up demon caricatured with horns, tail, and pitchfork. Nevertheless, although religion constituted a rich source of oppositional culture, the higher echelons of communist leadership during the third period made no attempt to fuse Marxism and Christianity. The communist movement in Alabama resonated with the cultures and traditions of black working people, yet at the same time it offered something fundamentally different. It proposed a new direction, a new kind of politics that required the self-activity of people usually dismissed as inarticulate. For this reason, as we have already glimpsed in Chapter 4, communists bumped heads with African-American communities' self-appointed spokespersons, the better-class Negroes. Alabama's black elite epitomized the ethos and work ethic of Booker T. Washington and his National Negro Business League. Thrift, hard work, accommodation, racial solidarity, patience, and the development of black business were the essential building blocks for uplifting the Negro, not open agitation for political rights or social equality. Birmingham black business magnate Reverend W.R. Pettiford once told a group of fellow businessmen, The establishment of banks and other businesses among us gives promise of a variety of occupations for our people, thus stimulating them to proper preparation. The Magic City was especially well-suited for such a strategy, according to Birmingham reporter-editor Oscar Adams, simply because there were more Negroes to eat, wear clothes, carry on business, work, spend money, get sick, die. In general, create more opportunities for better economic life. Despite racist zoning laws and other debilitating practices, some black businesses did quite well, particularly before the stock market crash. In 1929, Birmingham's black-owned retail stores grossed over $600,000 in sales. Although eight years later this annual figure had dropped to only $193,000, accumulated at an operating cost of $75,000. These individual successes notwithstanding, black establishments were quite small and offered few employment opportunities. In 1937, Birmingham's 132 black businesses, 
most of which were food-related, employed only 89 people. During the Depression, the black elite's economic decline was exacerbated by their political powerlessness, exposed partly by the utter failure of Oscar Adams's Benevolent and Legal Aid Association and the local NAACP's impotence during the initial stages of the Scottsboro and Willie Peterson cases. Whereas in the urban North, the traditional black petite bourgeoisie faced challenges from radical black nationalists as well as leftists, the Birmingham Old Guard had only to contend with the communists and each other. Although the conflict between communists and Birmingham's traditional black leadership laid bare intra-racial class distinctions, the black elite did not recognize Communist Party membership as a reflection of working-class politics and instead characterized it as an emotional response on the part of the ignorant and uninformed. Alabama's black communists, according to Oscar Adams, were merely irresponsible suckers who were biting at this propaganda either because of ignorance of the results or wanton desire for criminal adventure. Birmingham NAACP Secretary Charles McPherson simply dismissed the ILD as an illegitimate movement comprised of a large number of our own non-reading classes that will never become a real force because intelligent and informed people cannot be swept off their feet by the propaganda of a questionable organization. What McPherson, Adams, and other traditional black leaders failed to admit, however, was that the organizational activity of their tiny inner circle excluded the opinions of the non-reading classes. They assumed the mantle of spokesmen for black working people because they felt the masses were incapable of speaking for themselves. Their perception of this relationship changed when poor blacks joined a movement that articulated working-class grievances, treated them with dignity, and provided a relatively autonomous vehicle through which to engage in social contestation, more or less on their own terms. The party's ideological assault on Southern society affected the black elite in other ways as well. Because black professionals and businessmen depended on friendly relations with white elites, maintaining the color line was as much a concern for the black petite bourgeoisie as it was for the entire white community. Indeed, black middle-class anti-communist rhetoric was sometimes indistinguishable from the utterances of white southern liberals and mild racists. The Birmingham branch of the NAACP assailed the communists for their refusal to recognize the color line. This radical organization, an NAACP petition declared, in its march of destruction of the social order, knows no color line, and wherever it finds it possible, it breeds upon the grievances of a discontent people. The NAACP's statement may have been largely tactical, but it is interesting to note what its leaders chose to emphasize in their attack on the communists. The Birmingham-based Southern Afro-American Industrial Brotherhood, an organization devoted to supporting black businesses and keeping blacks out of the labor movement, also criticized the party for its stand on social equality. 
its president, the Reverend P. Colfax Rameau, warned that God drew the line of demarcation of the races, and in doing so he made the Aryan race the leaders of Christian, industrial, commercial, economic, social, and political life. To protect his benighted people from communism, Rameau hoped to drive all white radicals from the state of Alabama. It is difficult to determine precisely how much of black middle-class anti-communism stemmed from a true patriotic impulse and how much was just political posturing. In Depression, Alabama, all ambitious black businessmen and professionals realized that supporting the communists could lead to a truncated career. Robert Durr, a preacher from Mississippi who moved to Birmingham in 1931, learned this lesson very early. Having first worked as a reporter for the Birmingham World, he was drawn to the IOD by the Scottsboro case and the work of the SCU in Tallapoosa County, and he even developed a reputation as a very vocal radical. But when TCI offered Durr Capital to launch an anti-union black newspaper, the Weekly Review, the radical phase of his life came to an abrupt end. Durr wrote in one of his first editorials, Communism is not the way out for the Negro. The best whites and blacks are striving to, and can do more to help, the Negro of the South upward and onward in any walk of life than ten billion Stalins. In an interview granted five years after he wrote these words, the former radical offered an epigrammatic explanation of his politics. By all means, keep in with the man who hires and pays you. Yet, however daunting the white power structure might have seemed in the segregated South, the better class of Negroes still depended upon black constituents and consumers. And when the communists and other groups were able to organize successful boycotts of black enterprises, the dictum of keeping with the man did not always make good business sense. To take one example, when word got out that the Welch Brothers, a prominent black funeral home in Birmingham, had agreed to bury Clifford James and Milo Bentley, victims of the Realtown shootout in 1932, they were visited by some of their good white friends and had been advised not to bother with them bodies. The ILD then turned to a smaller, more modest black-owned funeral home in North Birmingham run by undertaker Hickman Jordan. Since Jordan had no direct links to the white business establishment, he could afford to ignore the threats from police and Birmingham's leading white citizens. The result was a boost for Jordan's business and a blow to the Welch brothers. After Jordan buried those bodies, Hosea Hudson remembered, then the people all see. It allowed a lot of people to know that Welch and them backed off. A whole lot of their members quit their burial policies and joined Jordan's policies. Welch brothers wanted to try to sue Jordan for taking their members away from them. Nevertheless, the undertaker's business acumen, interpreted, of course, as an act of defiance, did have its price. Throughout the 1940s, Jordan's funeral parlor became a prime target for FBI surveillance and harassment. 
Within the African-American community, the petite bourgeoisie's base of support and their moral authority were derived from their reputation as honest, dedicated, hard-working advocates for the race, a collective image of self shaped by the black press that they themselves controlled. Black communists undermined traditional black leaders by openly challenging their political decisions, questioning their loyalty to the poor, or simply deprecating their character. The party's critique of the black petite bourgeoisie often resulted in unrestrained intraracial class conflict. In November 1934, for example, ILD activists waged a community campaign against A.W. Wood, the black principal of Inslee Council School, whom they accused of conscripting his eighth graders to act as spies for TCI, allowing police officers to beat uncooperative children, and using the threat of dismissal to force female teachers to have sex with him. The campaign mobilized dozens of black Inslee parents in support of a school boycott, which only came to an end when the Board of Education and local police intervened and punished boycotters for truancy. Black communist Pete Turney was arrested for issuing the leaflet describing Wood's activities, charged with libel and violating the Downs Literature Ordinance, and received a two-year prison sentence. Wood, however, kept his job but lost much of the respect he had once enjoyed from the community. Local clergymen received the brunt of party criticism directed at black traditional leadership. This may seem ironic, given the subtle religious undertones of local party culture, but the communists' early assault on black ministers had less to do with theology than with the political shortcomings of clerical leadership. While southern worker columns accused prominent ministers, such as Dr. J. H. Eason of Jackson Street Baptist Church, and Bishop Socrates O'Neill of stealing funds from their congregations, communists, for the most part, limited their criticisms to the direction black religious leaders offered. Early in 1931, the Reverend John W. Goodgame of Sixth Avenue Baptist Church was ridiculed for telling Negro workers to wait for pie in the sky when you die when they complain of unemployment, starvation wages, and Jim Crowism. Weeks later, a black YCL member published a diatribe entitled The Red and the Reverend, which used a Socratic-style dialogue to contrast the party's militant program with the patient, presumably conciliatory methods of black clergymen. Commenting on a sermon delivered by the pastor of St. James Church, in which he had extolled Booker T. Washington's philosophy of black labor allying with white capital, a black YCL activist sarcastically agreed with part of his message. He is right about the workers having nothing in their pockets because the bosses and all bull-faced fakers like him keep the workers' pockets clean, telling them to put a dollar in church and the Lord will give them two. The party's imputing remarks contained some truth. Birmingham's black men of the cloth were notorious for using the pulpit to dissuade black workers from joining the labor movement, and some received healthy subsidies from corporate interests to do so. 
TCI and other companies built and maintained segregated churches for their employees and only hired pastors willing to disparage organized labor from the pulpit. Thus, the recollections of Birmingham steelworker and ILD activist Dobby Sanders probably reflect the sentiments of a considerable segment of Alabama's black working class. Man, them preachers is a mess. Most of them ain't no good. Brainwashing, that's what they're all about. They should have been race leaders, but instead they are race holdbackers. These preachers go around here charging people to keep them looking back. If the party's critique of the black petite bourgeoisie influenced the thinking of black working people, it is because it reinforced an underlying resentment and class antagonism that had been mitigated by centuries of racism. Deeds, not words, exposed the failure of middle-class leadership, illumined the possibilities of radical politics, and contributed to black workers' confidence in their ability to create and sustain a movement of their own making. Victories were few and far between, but there were victories in the relief offices, in the mines and factories, in the countryside, in the courts, and in the streets. Even when nothing tangible resulted from these activities, communists rattled the power structure, confirmed the effectiveness of collective action, and displayed an ability to bypass traditional leadership while engaged in social contestation. Moreover, through their own participation, many black working people came to realize that a class-based interracial politics, in which participants operated on a relatively equal plane and put basic rights for African Americans at the center of their program, was possible, though still improbable, in the Deep South. This realization posed a significant threat to the dominant racialist and racist way of thinking. Whereas in other parts of the country, cries of paternalism punctuated interracial discourse within party circles, in Alabama, northern white communists generally treated poor blacks with dignity and respect. Although elements of white paternalism were clearly evident, race relations within the party were still radically different when one considers the daily indignities blacks experienced in the South. We were called comrades, Angelo Herndon wrote, without condescension or patronage. Better yet, we were treated like equals and brothers. The interracialism of the party confounded and elated Al Murphy. His first communist meeting left him stunned. This was the first time I had ever sat in a gathering among black and white persons in a black man's home. In Hosea Hudson's view, northern white communists gave poor black folks a sense of dignity that even the black middle class denied them. In order to get anywhere, you had to be part of the better class. This low class of people was the ones the police was killing, what nobody's saying nothing about, outcasts. When a party came out, these people were somebody. You took these people and made leaders out of them. As local leaders, blacks were encouraged to criticize their white comrades, a practice unheard of in any other Southern organization of its time. 
the freedom and power black communists enjoyed within the district committee and at other organizational levels frustrated southern-born whites unaccustomed to assertive, smart niggers. The case of white Birmingham communist Fred Keith provides us with an instructive example. When three Birmingham party members were invited to the Soviet Union in 1932 to study at the Linden School, Keith wanted desperately to go, but Hosea Hudson's criticisms of his work among the white unemployed convinced other members of the district committee to reject his request. After three blacks were chosen over Keith, he turned informant and complained to authorities about the favoritism blacks allegedly received in the party. Keith certainly exaggerated his case, but beneath his commentary lay a modicum of truth. Occasionally, the fear of being accused of white chauvinism actually dulled the impact of criticism directed at blacks, and in a few rare moments, black communists deftly milked these fears in order to avoid censure. During the 1934 strike wave, white communist Clyde Johnson and a black comrade, Joe Howard, were asked to organize several Birmingham metal shops. But once the work began, Howard suddenly became scarce. When Johnson raised this problem with the district committee, he was reprimanded for allowing white chauvinism to get the best of him, while Joe Howard, who had promptly joined in the condemnation, completely escaped criticism. Rare as they might be, these kinds of episodes illustrate a certain hypersensitivity to racism among white radicals and a willingness on the part of some blacks to manipulate these underlying attitudes for their own benefit or protection. Hence, even intra-party relationships that appeared to have been intimate were often mediated by a variety of masks. A closer look at the apparent divisions between black communists and the black middle class also reveals complex relationships hidden from public dialogue. Intra-racial class conflict was never clear-cut, and both sides exhibited ambivalence toward each other's ideas. Black communists sometimes expressed aspirations that were more reflective of a bourgeois ethos and values than socialist ideology. John Garner devoted as much time to learning the tailoring trade as he did to organizing mine workers, for in his words, I didn't intend to be a worker all my days. In fact, he looked to the party to win his freedom so that he could fulfill his dream to build a business of my own and then serve people. Garner's dream, resembling in some ways the early yearnings of Al Murphy, Hosea Hudson, Angelo Herndon, and probably others whose backgrounds are still a mystery, may seem contradictory, but is not surprising given the social character of Birmingham's black male cadre. They rose from respected, upwardly mobile, working-class families. The party merely constituted an alternative stepping stone toward respectability within the confines of their world. Though they were belittled and attacked by the black elite, many held respectable positions in their lodge or church. Both Henry O. Mayfield and Hosea Hudson were well known in their communities for singing in gospel quartets. Hudson attained the position of junior deacon of New Bethel Baptist Church, and his good friend and comrade John Bidle rose to full deacon during the Popular Front. True to their moral values, this corps of black male leaders tried to abstain from drink, 
vehemently opposed womanizing and felt free to intervene in their comrades' marital problems in order to keep families together. On the other side of the spectrum, secret monetary donations were regularly forthcoming from black professionals who never publicly expressed support for the party, but privately declared, I'm with you. One of the most devoted black middle-class supporters, a Birmingham dentist known amiably as Doc Collins, not only contributed money on occasion, but allowed Al Murphy to use his address to receive correspondence from SCU members. It is quite possible that tacit support for the party and its auxiliaries reflects a more complex political practice at work among members of the black middle class. Like the radicals they publicly condemned, they too could have been playing the role of trickster. A confidential survey of attitudes toward communism, conducted in 1932, reveals a greater ambivalence on the part of the southern black elite than is evident in contemporary politics and journalism. When asked if communism is a menace to American ideals and institutions, less than half of the southern black businessmen and professionals surveyed said yes. And when confronted with the statement, democracy in this country is a capitalistic dictatorship, 75% of the southern respondents felt the assertion was quite accurate. The surveyor concluded from the data that southern black professionals and businessmen were more radical than their northern counterparts. Nonetheless, if the survey represented the Birmingham black elite accurately, then their actions certainly did not reflect their attitudes. Black religious leaders were perhaps the most divided with respect to the communists, partly because they came from different class backgrounds and because their vocation brought them face-to-face -face with poor people. Although ministers developed a reputation for engaging in anti-union activity, a few modest preachers who had no pastoral obligations devoted time and energy to the labor movement, and some even became staunch communist supporters. Aside from these jackleg preachers, a few black pastors actively supported the party, notably the Reverend George W. Reed of 45th Street Baptist Church. An unusual voice among conservative black clergymen, Reed directed most of his efforts to helping the poor and building the labor movement. He remained an unswerving critic of the traditional black elite, compared other preachers to common thieves, and was known to use a Bible text each evening to defend the trade union movement. But there were few George W. Reeds and most black church leaders proved formidable opponents of the party. Indeed, even mild-mannered reform politics repelled the more prominent clergymen, fearing reprisals from hostile whites or southern philanthropists. Segments of the ministerial community avoided association with organizations as tame as the NAACP during the early 1930s. While disparaging remarks and aspersions were exchanged between the pulpit and the party press, most black communists ignored commentary on both sides and continued to attend services regularly. But once the Scottsboro campaign gained prominence, local communists began to see the church as a potential forum for reaching a broader audience and a source of financial support. 
The Birmingham cadre looked to the black church in defiance of Central Committee directives not to have any dealings with friendly Negro preachers. The party's new vocal presence in church affairs, complicated by the volatile atmosphere surrounding the case, divided congregations and led to heightened conflict between communists and clergy. When Hosea Hudson invited black Birmingham communist David James to speak at New Bethel Baptist Church in East Birmingham, James met strong opposition from the pastor, the deacons, and most of the congregation. James, who was not a member of the church, gained few adherents with his militant tone and constant references to the Communist Party, which many felt was inappropriate in the house of the Lord. By far the most dramatic confrontation occurred at Bethel Baptist Church, located in the predominantly black suburb of Collegeville. Although several communists were Bethel members during the early 1930s, its pastor, the Reverend M. Sears, was among the leading anti-communists in the Birmingham area and co-author of the CIC's damning 1931 report, Radical Activities in Alabama. Tensions between communists and Sears erupted in the spring of 1933 with the arrest and beating of a Greenwood Red Cross relief worker, Randolph Doc Carter. Following a heated argument, the project foreman, a white man, drew a pistol and shot at Carter, who managed to escape unharmed while fellow workers subdued their boss. Sears, who knew Carter, lured him out of hiding and turned him over to the police, who beat him badly while in jail. The arrest and beating of Carter incensed the black communities of Collegeville and Greenwood. Local CP leaders held Sears responsible, distributing a leaflet characterizing him as a preacher for the Lord, spy for the police, and framer-up of workers. A communist-led committee marched to the Bethel Church to confront the reverend, but as soon as they entered the church, Sears whipped out a shotgun he had hidden behind the pulpit, nearly causing a riot as people madly rushed out of the church. In the aftermath, several people were arrested, and Sears was fined for drawing a gun on unarmed citizens. The incident at Bethel Baptist Church was in some ways emblematic of intra-racial class conflict in Birmingham during the early 1930s. Although class antagonism within the black community predated the party's presence, in the past it had remained largely ambiguous, a grudging resentment combined with respect and admiration. Examples of praise for the black middle class abound in newspapers, magazines, books, and speeches given in public forums, but critical opinions held by black working people have usually been limited to a hidden transcript found mainly in slums, bars, shacks, barbershops, jokes, songs, toasts, and other spaces or forms of black working class expression. The appearance of the Communist Party and its auxiliaries brought part of that hidden transcript out in the open. Yet, because racism prevailed, the kind of counter-hegemonic ideology party purists had hoped for never took hold among black communists, whose actions were informed by a culture of opposition with deep roots in history and community.
They became communists out of their concern for black people, and thus had much in common with the black elite whose leadership they challenged. The Communist Party was such a unique vehicle for black working-class opposition because it encouraged interracial unity without completely compromising racial politics. Irrespective of common turn directives or official pronouncements, the Alabama CP was resilient enough to conform to black cultural traditions, but taught enough to remain Marxist at the core. Part 2. Up from Bolshevism, 1935-1939 For America, we want the best that life in the 20th century can offer. Because we love America, and it is because we are good Americans in the best sense that we also love our brother toilers throughout the world, regardless of race, color, or nationality. Birmingham Communist Party Leaflet 1935. Our party has been close to the Negro people of the South. We must now begin to advance a program which will bring us just as close to the masses of Southern whites. We will lead the Negro people to realize their demands. We will begin to win thoroughgoing liberation for the Negro people only when we begin in practice to rally the Southern whites in unison with the Negro people. Francis Franklin, for a free Happy and Prosperous South, 1938. 6. The Road to Legality, the Popular Front in Birmingham, 1935-1937. We were in a country in which the Popular Front, at least in my opinion, was the way to socialism, and we had to be as open as possible and not secrete underground. The underground did not appeal to me as romantic or adventurous. It just sucked. Robert F. Hall As 1934 drew to a close, the Communist Party in Alabama had undeniably reached the height of its powers. The Communist-led rank-and-file committees in the mines and factories were infused with new recruits. The ILD was on the verge of overshadowing established black middle-class organizations, and the SEU had ballooned to 6,000 members. These new recruits, however, were unaware that events across the Atlantic Ocean, namely the rise of Hitler in Germany and the threat of a fascist Europe, would significantly alter the party's direction. As early as June 1934, in response to the growing threat of fascism, Comintern officials instructed communists across the globe to join forces with their longtime nemeses, the socialists. The Seventh World Congress of the Comintern in 1935 went even further, abandoning third-period communism and promoting broad-based coalition politics that could incorporate liberals and leftists of nearly every stripe. International communism had entered a new era, the era of the Popular Front. Changes in the party line prompted Central Committee leaders to make adjustments in district leadership and local organizers to adopt a new approach to their work. But the construction of the Popular Front in Birmingham, as elsewhere, was mediated and determined by local conditions. In some ways, 
Southern communists faced a situation much like that of the German Communist Party under Hitler. Obviously, the repression was not as great, but radicals and labor organizers, particularly in Birmingham, experienced a heightened degree of systematic suppression between 1934 and early 1935. Furthermore, party leaders were optimistic that the ILD's popularity in Birmingham would open doors to mainstream black political organizations. Although mutual animosities still existed between communists and the black elite, by 1935 it appeared that a few barriers were finally tumbling down. With the 1934 strike wave and the rapid growth of the ILD fresh in their minds, Birmingham communists saw the chance to build a united front around two broad issues, anti-labor repression and civil liberties. When Birmingham communists first proposed a united front with the Socialist Party, District leaders Nat Ross and Ted Wellman focused on the problem of anti-labor violence and the suspension of civil liberties, rather than echo Central Committee directives predicating unity on the basis of world politics. In October 1934, the Southern Worker carried an open letter to the Socialist Party calling for united action against police repression, the Klan, the White Legion, and other fascist gangs. A month later, Nat Ross proposed an all-Southern conference for trade union and civil rights that would discuss strategies to mitigate police and KKK terror in Birmingham. On December 6th, communists and socialists from five Southern states, including Highlander folk school affiliates James Dombrowski, Zilla Hawes, Howard Kester, and Miles Horton, drew up a sweeping united front agreement around six basic issues. A platform centered on the struggle against fascism, broadly defined to include lynching, anti-labor terror, and white supremacist organizations. Opposition to most New Deal policies. And unwavering support for Southern unionization on the basis of full equality for blacks and women. Once the document had been drafted, Radical Southern Socialists met at Highlander Folk School in Tennessee to endorse it and develop a regional campaign to mobilize support for a united front. The campaign reaped few benefits, however, for virtually every Socialist Party leader in the South rejected any association with communists. It should not be surprising that the Highlander group failed to garner support from most Southern Socialists for they represented a particularly radical faction within the Socialist Party. Signatories Dombrowski, Hawes, and Kester identified with the Socialist Party's Revolutionary Policy Committee, representing the extreme left wing of the Socialist Party. In 1934, all three signed an appeal to the membership of the Socialist Party, which expressed sympathy for the Soviet Union and called on the Socialist Party to become a militant, working-class party. Furthermore, under Miles Horton's direction, the Highlander Folk School was a non-sectarian institution that trained labor organizers of all political persuasions, including communists. Just prior to the agreement, Horton stated unequivocally that 
the best radical work in the South, was the exceptional work being done by the CP in the Birmingham area. In preparation for the All-Southern Conference for Trade Union and Civil Rights, the Communists joined the Highlander-based Socialists, Trade Unionists, and a few local black leaders in a few preliminary United Front campaigns. The party nominated several non-communist trade union organizers from Birmingham to attend its National Congress for Unemployment and Social Insurance in January 1935. To publicize the coming Congress, party leaders invited a wide array of speakers, including Howard Kester, Reverend Stuart Meacham, Jr., a young white Birmingham minister, and E.A. Bradford, editor of the Birmingham World, to address a mass meeting on the Jefferson County Courthouse steps. The 1935 May Day demonstration became a united front affair in its own right, as communists formed united May Day committees with trade union leaders and socialists throughout the Birmingham-Bessemer area. After Commissioner Downs turned down the party's request for a parade permit, the communists organized small meetings in Tarrant City, Ensley, Pratt City, Fairfield, Bessemer, and Montgomery, rather than promote the defiant spirit of past May Day demonstrations. In Tarrant City, Communist C. Dave Smith shared the podium with Socialist Arlie Barber and the city's mayor, Roy Ingram. Even the party's May Day leaflets signaled changes in political rhetoric. It assailed the Downs Literature Ordinance as a denial of all the rights won by the American people through 150 years of struggle. Each meeting attracted as many as two to 300 participants and was generally brief, well-ordered, and free of violent incidents. But over the next few days, dozens of homes were raided by police in both Birmingham and Bessemer, and communists throughout the area were picked up for interrogation. Vigilante groups also stepped up their activities. On May Day, newly appointed ILD District Secretary Charles Sherrill, who used the pseudonym Robert Wood, was kidnapped by four men whom he recognized as white Legion members, taken to the outskirts of the city, beaten severely, and threatened with death if he did not leave Birmingham forthwith. Less than two weeks later, white communist organizer Boris Israel was seized by four vigilantes in an automobile and beaten mercilessly with a blackjack. When they reached the Homewood area, just outside the city limits, Israel was stripped, flogged, and abandoned in an empty field. The Communist Party's support of the Birmingham laundry workers' strike that spring drew even more fire from police and vigilantes. Involving between 12 and 1,500 black female workers, the strike was marred by violence from the very beginning. After several Birmingham laundries and dry cleaners had been firebombed, police arrested known strike leaders, including Bill Clianti and I.C. Johnson of the Communist-led Rank-and-File Committee. In a show of solidarity, communists led a march of some 300 coal miners through downtown Birmingham in support of the strike, but as they attempted to join the picketing laundry workers, police, armed with tear gas and billy clubs, forcefully intervened. 
When truck drivers employed by Birmingham's dry cleaners walked off their jobs in early May, more union leaders were jailed and state troops were called in. The White Legion appealed to young white women to work as strike breakers, arguing that there were too many Negroes in the industry. Organized labor, for the most part, ignored or ridiculed the strike. Bill Mitch censured the miners for participating in the Solidarity March, and the Birmingham Trades Council opposed the laundry union altogether. With few allies aside from the CP and the ILD, union leaders finally conceded defeat on June 12th. After the post-May Day repression had subsided, delegates arrived in Chattanooga on May 26 for the long-awaited All-Southern Conference for Trade Union and Civil Rights. Despite the presence of several leading Southern liberals and clergymen, police intimidation forced the group to transfer the proceedings to the Highlander Folk School in Monteagle, Tennessee. Once the delegates were assembled, it soon became evident that organized labor had all but turned its back on the conference. More importantly, communist and socialist organizers suddenly realized that their political clout simply did not extend very far into progressive southern circles. Overall, the conference fell far short of its originators' expectations. By the summer of 1935, around the time of the Seventh World Congress, the party's conception of unity was expanded to include liberals and virtually all willing progressive forces. In the United States, the liberalization of the party line translated into a mixture of class-conscious populism, patriotic rhetoric, and a subdued Marxist language. The July 4th edition of The Daily Worker carried copious quotes from the Declaration of the Continental Congress meeting in 1774 on the front page, reprinted the entire Declaration of Independence, and published excerpts from the works of Jefferson, Paine, and Adams. Birmingham party leaders were quick to adopt the new policy, issuing a leaflet on July 4th claiming to be the true political heirs of America's revolutionary heritage and denouncing the Klan, the White Legion, and all other false prophets as bearers of an Americanism of the rich Tories who knifed the revolution in the back. They are for an Americanism of Wall Street rule, of lynching, company unionism, slave wages and hours, persecution of Negroes, and fascist terror against workers and farmers. While Americanized communism had definite implications for the Negro question, the evolution of the communists' new policy toward the black middle class grew primarily out of the party's experiences in Harlem. After some very successful alliances had been established with radical nationalists and mainstream political figures in opposition to Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, the Central Committee elected to drop its slogan of self-determination in the Black Belt and concentrate on civil rights and discrimination in employment as unifying issues in the Black community. The party also dissolved the already attenuated League of Struggle for Negro Rights and terminated publication of the Negro Liberator. In Birmingham, however, 
Ethiopia's defense against fascist Italy did little to unite communists and traditional black leaders since few middle-class blacks had been publicly moved by events in East Africa. Instead, local communists and the ILD called attention to the mounting instances of police brutality and vigilante violence as a focal point for joint action. In December 1934, Birmingham police officer P.E. Dukes fatally shot a black man in an Inslee restaurant, admitting that it had been merely a prank. A few months later, Louis Rome, another young black man, was shot to death by police in a South Side alley. In August, the near-fatal beating of black YCL activist John Harvey, received at the hands of vigilantes, forced him to flee Alabama permanently. Leaving his family and friends behind, Harvey settled in New York with assistance from the party. Although the NAACP investigated a few of these incidents of police harassment and vigilante violence, its leaders rejected overtures to join the IOD's campaign against police brutality. A landmark Supreme Court decision on the Scottsboro case in 1935, provided the IOD with another opportunity for coalition building within the black community. In the case of Norris v. Alabama, the Supreme Court reversed the Alabama verdict, arguing that Norris's constitutional rights had been violated because the state of Alabama systematically excluded blacks from the jury. Birmingham communists distributed thousands of mimeographed leaflets calling on blacks to rise up and demand the right of Negroes to sit on juries and to vote. Although a group of black women led by IOD activists marched to the Jefferson County Courthouse and demanded that their names be placed on the jury rolls, the issue simply did not spark a major campaign. The NAACP and several church leaders quietly applauded the verdict, but refused to support the IOD's efforts to place blacks on the jury rolls. Neither campaign led to any immediate coalitions. But by mid-1935, there were signs that some black leaders in Alabama were beginning to warm up to the Communist Party. The Reverend E. H. Hammond, who was himself a victim of police harassment in 1934, joined the ILD because of its campaign against police brutality. John LaFleur, NAACP branch secretary in Mobile, expressed to Walter White his growing respect for the work of local party activists and even suggested that the association adopt some of their tactics. Did you notice, he asked White, how anxious the communists were to distribute their literature and disseminate information on their cause at our meetings. I was very much impressed with their zeal. It would be wonderful if such spirit could be developed within the NAACP. The formation of the NNC, National Negro Congress, offered a broader, potentially more attractive basis for uniting communists and the black elite partly an outgrowth of the Communist Party's hands-off Ethiopia campaign, the NNC was launched in 1935 at the Conference on the Status of the Negro under the New Deal, held at Howard University. The main force behind the Congress was John P. Davis, 
a Harvard Law School graduate who was very close to the CP. Delegates attending the NNC's first national convention in Chicago in 1936 represented 28 states and 585 organizations, and some of its plenary sessions drew as many as 5,000. Although the tone of the conference was clearly left of center and essentially anti-capitalist, resolutions were passed in support of black business and religious institutions. The NNC had initially planned to direct much of its energy and resources to the South. Congress organizer James W. Ashford traveled to Birmingham just prior to Christmas 1935 to publicize the coming national convention and organized a sponsoring committee that would send an Alabama delegation. Unaware that Ashford had been a YCL leader since 1931 and was currently one of Harlem's most popular communist organizers, NAACP Branch Secretary Charles McPherson at first enthusiastically endorsed Ashford's suggestions. Ashford convinced him that the NNC could play a role in facilitating and strengthening the work of the NAACP and other such organizations. But National NAACP Secretary Walter White emphatically instructed the Birmingham branch to have nothing to do with the Congress. McPherson dutifully withdrew his support, and the Communists ended up shouldering the responsibility for assembling local delegates for the NNC's founding convention. White Communist Clyde Johnson who led the delegation of SCU members and Birmingham Steelworkers, was elected to the NNC's presiding committee. Hosea Hart, a black communist and SCU leader, served on the General Resolutions Committee and was elected vice president of the NNC's 12th district, encompassing Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Nevertheless, Johnson's and Hart's roles in the NNC were largely symbolic. Their work for the SCU took precedence over all other activities. The only sustained effort to organize an NNC chapter in Alabama did not occur until World War II, when the Congress's influence was clearly waning. In spite of the NNC's failure to establish a following in Alabama, changing attitudes among Birmingham NAACP leaders created new opportunities for communist coalition building. In 1936, the Birmingham branch decided to become more active in both the Scottsboro and Angelo Herndon cases. Behind the Scottsboro movement and the Angelo Herndon movement, Charles McPherson explained to Walter White, it cannot fail because it strikes at the two main issues of the Negro question. When NAACP branch president Ernest W. Taggart was arrested for carrying an anti-lynching placard in the streets of Birmingham and charged with violating the Downs Ordinance, it even seemed that the NAACP was beginning to adopt the direct action tactics associated with the ILD. The placard called lynching America's Shame displayed two vivid photographs of recent lynch victims, as well as the following caption, It can and may happen to you any day. Climaxes, all the evils perpetrated upon the Negro. Over 6,000 lynched since 1880. 15 in 1935. 
the NAACP has led the fight 27 years against these evils and for the Negro's right to be free and to live. Rather than deepen Taggart's sympathy for radicals, however, the arrest had the opposite effect. He testified before the court that NAACP activities should not be considered subversive since, on the contrary, they served as a buffer against communism in Birmingham's black community. Receiving only a suspended sentence and a $28 fine, Taggart happily reported after the trial that the city commission led the movement of defending us in the court and had entered into the records a statement to the effect that, upon careful investigation of the association, its officers, and many of its members, they found nothing of a subversive nature as they at first thought. Taggart's ambivalence notwithstanding, the higher echelons of CP leadership still seemed a bit reluctant to pursue a formal relationship with Birmingham's black elite. The Central Committee apparently had something else in mind with respect to a Southern Popular Front agenda, a united Southern movement spearheaded by white liberals and organized labor, not the black middle class. Indeed, the Central Committee replaced District Organizer Nat Ross with Robert Fowler Hall, a well-educated white Southerner who, in his own words, could have qualified as a Southern liberal. Described by one of his comrades as Alabama all right, from the slow-mobile drawl that is his way of talking to the pipe he puffs on constantly. Rob Hall was born in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1906 and was raised in the cosmopolitan port city of Mobile, Alabama. As a teenaged cub reporter for the Mobile Register in the early 1920s, Hall stood out even among the city's most liberal whites for his support of African-American suffrage and civil rights. After a year at the University of Alabama, Hall left school in 1925 and spent the next four years working for Southern Railroad Company. Hall's work on the railways brought him closer to rural conditions, stimulated his interest in the plight of poor whites, and inspired him to resume his education in agricultural economics. In 1929, he left Alabama to study under Rex Tugwell at Columbia University. Hall was drawn to Columbia's left-wing circles almost as soon as he set foot on the Manhattan campus. In addition to editing the Varsity Review, he was elected president of the Social Problems Club, which advocated peace and the defense of the Soviet Union, and was a founding member of the communist-led NSL. In March 1932, under the auspices of the NSL and the International Workers' Order, he led a delegation of students to Harlan County, Kentucky, to investigate conditions during the coal miners' strike, but vigilante violence forced the group to retreat back to New York. Shortly after returning from Kentucky, Hall took his politics a step further and joined the Communist Party. The Communists' stand on equal rights for African Americans he later explained, was the central reason for his desire to participate in the movement. Because of his extensive knowledge of agricultural economics, Hall was appointed to the Farm Research Bureau, a think tank comprised of the party's most prominent theorists on farm issues. 
His work brought him back to Alabama during the summer of 1932, where he met with members of the SCU in Camp Hill. After spending the next two years editing a number of independent farmers' publications, Hall returned to Alabama in 1934 and in little over a year was promoted to district organizer. Under Hall's direction, white Southerners began to replace veteran white communists from the North in local leadership positions. In 1935, Bart Logan, a native of Savannah, Georgia, was appointed secretary of the Communist Party in Bessemer. An active trade unionist since 1917, Logan did not have Hall's formal education, but was considered a good speaker and a very capable organizer. After joining the party in Georgia in 1934, Logan moved to Birmingham in March of the following year and quickly rose through the ranks, serving as section organizer in Tarrant City before accepting the highest post in Bessemer. Logan's wife, Belle West, also advanced rapidly within the Birmingham party. Born in Atlanta, Georgia, she was a sister of the radical preacher Don West, who had been an active socialist until he joined the Communist Party in 1934. Educated in private boarding schools in Tennessee and Kentucky, Belle West was only 18 years old when, in 1935, she moved to Birmingham, became state secretary of the YCL, and led the predominantly black Ladies' Auxiliary of the Hot Carriers Local 810. After marrying Bart Logan in January of 1936, the two adopted the pseudonyms Jack and Belle Barton. The party devoted most of the summer of 1935 to building a broad-based campaign to repeal the anti-sedition laws in Birmingham and Bessemer. With support from the NCDPP, National Committee for the Defense of Political Prisoners, a national collective of radical artists and activists, the party hoped to challenge the constitutionality of the Downs Literature Ordinance. On July 29th, the NCDPP's five-member delegation openly disseminated copies of the Daily Worker, Nation, New Masses, New Theater Magazine, New Republic, and the Labor Defender while standing in front of Birmingham's City Hall. Officers detained and fingerprinted the delegation, but Police Chief E.L. Hollums refused to charge them in order to avoid litigation and therefore evade the constitutionality test. Instead, Hollums gave the group a garrulous lecture on the dangers of radical propaganda and a stern warning that he would not be responsible for what may happen to the delegation if they continued to distribute inflammatory literature in Birmingham. The next day, while en route to Montgomery, their car was fired upon several times by gunmen, forcing them off the road some 70 miles south of Birmingham. When they appealed to Governor Graves for assistance, he dismissed the shooting as a publicity stunt and had the delegation investigated. The group finally decided to leave the state abandoning the investigation, as well as the car. Meanwhile, an even more comprehensive statewide anti-sedition bill had been introduced in the Alabama legislature. The bill provided a penalty of one year of hard labor and over $1,000 fine for possessing seditious material 
or engaging in seditious activity. An amendment exempted any writing, publication, or cartoon appearing in any newspaper or publication permitted to be carried in the U.S. mails. Alabama liberals broke their silence and strongly opposed the bill, unlike their response to the municipal seditious literature ordinances. A few liberal opponents maintained that it was an infringement of First Amendment rights, but most argued that the communists' presence in Alabama hardly warranted such strong legislation. As one local official put it, We in Alabama have nothing to fear from the activities of the communists in our state. Even if they were a hundred times stronger than they are, we can't afford to admit that we are afraid to allow them to expound their political doctrine. Labor leaders objected to the bill as well, although most added the stipulation that they would support anti-communist legislation if assured that such laws would not be unjustly used against labor. While liberals and labor leaders criticized the bill independently, the ILD mobilized large sections of the black community to protest the legislation. Black support came not through Popular Front-style coalitions, but through the kind of mass, grassroots support the party had long enjoyed. Protesters succeeded in building a united front from below through the participation of communists and IOD activists in local storefront churches, Sunday school groups, and neighborhood self-help organizations such as the Working Women Club, the Adult Club, and the Stick Together Club. Numerous local black clubs and churches flooded Governor Graves' office with letters, postcards, and resolutions, and dozens of local clergymen audaciously signed the ILD's mimeographed petition, resolving to continue to organize a strong communist party in Alabama as the political leader of the working class. In the face of mounting opposition, Governor Graves decided to veto the anti-sedition bill, but the party's campaign failed to win Southern liberals to the cause of the Popular Front. Because liberal journalists, labor leaders, and clergymen found themselves on the same side of the issue as the communists, most felt obliged to preface their criticisms with anti-communist disclaimers. In contrast with black communist organizers, who generally retained close ties to their own communities and could therefore mobilize support without relying on middle-class blacks, white communists in 1935 were unable to significantly influence either white workers or liberal Southerners. The party needed a political liaison, a native Alabamian who did not carry the onus of open party membership and who could solicit support from the liberal intelligentsia for the party's agenda. The individual who would fulfill this role was Joseph Gelders. Described by British writer Cedric Belfrage as a lanky, soft-voiced, academic-looking man with an odd dancing gait, Gelders was a product of bourgeois upbringing but suffered the kind of social ostracism that came with being a Southern Jew. A native of Birmingham born to a prominent Jewish family, Gelders studied briefly at both the University of Alabama and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but left school to serve in the U.S. Army during World War I. In 1919, shortly after returning home, Gelders married Esther Frank, 
a young, bright Montgomery woman who had just returned from Baltimore where she had spent two years at Goucher College. During the next decade, Gelders held several different occupations, from steelworker to automobile salesman. In 1929, both Joe and Esther returned to college. She earned a B.A. and a master's degree in literature. He, a master's in physics from the University of Alabama. Completing his degree in 1931, Joe accepted a faculty position at his graduate alma mater and was soon joined by Esther Gelders, who was hired as an instructor in the English department. Moved by the devastating effects of the Depression, the young physics professor immersed himself in the works of utopian socialists in search of solutions. Gelders applauded the election of Roosevelt, but when federal crop production policies were implemented amidst starvation and unemployment, he became disillusioned not just with the New Deal, but with capitalism. The Birmingham strike wave, according to Esther Gelders, startled him out of the lethargy into which university professors are so prone to fall. And so it was back to the library. During one memorable visit, the professor accidentally stumbled upon Stalin's Foundations of Leninism while scanning the shelves for works by Norman Thomas. The more Marxist literature he read, the more convinced he was that the Communist Party possessed the answers he had been searching for. But joining the party was easier said than done. As his daughter Marge France recalls, he didn't have any idea where to find the Communist Party. In Alabama, it was way underground. As luck would have it, while Gelders was in New Orleans in 1934, having surgery for stomach ulcers, a nurse noticed his Marxist books and put him in contact with local Communist leader W.G. Binkley. With Binkley's encouragement, Gelders traveled to the national headquarters in New York to express his interest in becoming a communist. But party leaders dismissed him as a bourgeois intellectual. Upon his return home to Tuscaloosa, he visited Birmingham several times in what amounted to a year-long effort to meet district organizer Nat Ross. Eventually, Ross sent Ted Wellman to the Gelders' home, probably late in 1934, and initiated Joe Gelders' first contact with the Alabama Party. During the next few months, Joe actively supported the party's work despite Esther's many reservations about the left, and he offered his Tuscaloosa home as a rest stop for young white communists recovering from the wear and tear of organizing. He continued to study Marxism, launched a campus study group affiliated with the NSL, and even found time to attend the All-Southern Conference for Trade Union and Civil Rights in May. Finally, on the heels of the Seventh World Congress, he received clearance to join the party during the summer of 1935 and promptly returned to New York, accompanied by Esther and his precocious daughter Marge, to study at the workers' school. He had hoped the trip to New York would win his wife over to the movement. Although failing to persuade Esther, the trip doubtlessly affected his daughter. Thirteen-year-old Marge Gelders joined the YCL that summer. Nevertheless, Esther Gelders did what she could to support his interests, providing most of the family income by working as a rental agent in New York, while her husband accepted starvation wages as NCDPP secretary. 
After a year in the New York office, he returned to Alabama in August 1936 as the NCDPP's Southern Representative. Gelders was the critical link between communists and liberals, a role requiring him to keep his party affiliation secret. As far as he was concerned, Marge France remembered, he would have been perfectly happy to have been an open communist. It was more useful for the party for him not to be. He immediately began assembling a staff for the southern office of the NCDPP, eventually renting a tiny 10th floor office just big enough for two desks and chairs and a file, not far from the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce. With assistance from the American Civil Liberties Union, Gelders hired Birmingham attorney Harvey Emerson to defend victims of police and vigilante violence and to fight an assortment of related cases. Gelders arrived during a wave of anti-communist police repression. Between February and August 1936, over a dozen white communist organizers had been arrested on charges ranging from possession of seditious literature to vagrancy. Police even tried to jail Clyde Johnson and his wife Anne for violating the Mann Act, but possession of a marriage license foiled the plan. The first case in Alabama requiring the NCDPP's intervention involved the incarceration of Bessemer Party Secretary Bart Logan. In July, police raided Logan's home on the strength of a liquor warrant and arrested Bart for violating Bessemer's seditious literature ordinance. For possessing copies of The Nation, The New Republic, The Birmingham Labor Advocate, and one copy of the party's theoretical journal, The Communist, Logan was convicted, sentenced to 180 days of hard labor, and fined $100. Acting under the auspices of the NCDPP, Gelders persuaded several liberal clergymen and trade union leaders in Bessemer to petition to have Logan, who was suffering from tuberculosis, transferred to a sanatorium. Once he was moved to a healthier environment, Gelders planned to use his case to test the constitutionality of the Downs Ordinance. But as the campaign to free Bart Logan gained wider publicity, Gelders became the target of a vicious vigilante attack. On the night of September 23rd, Gelders was kidnapped by four men, taken to the outskirts of the city, and beaten nearly to death. Suffering from multiple lacerations and severe damage to his heart, he awoke the next morning and somehow made his way to nearby Maplesville, Alabama. When the doctor there refused to treat him, he had no alternative but to hitch a ride to Clanton, Alabama, the nearest town with a hospital. Civil liberties activists, labor leaders, and Alabama's liberal community were incensed by the beating of Gelders. The party and the NCDPP held rallies calling for the immediate apprehension of the assailants. The ACLU offered a $500 reward for their capture, and the Birmingham labor community responded by forming the Labor Committee Against Terrorism in Birmingham. Governor Bibb Graves added his own voice to the chorus of condemnations and offered a $200 reward for information leading to the capture of Gelders' attackers. Despite public outcry, however, police refused to prosecute the three suspects Gelders had positively identified in a police lineup, 
and two grand jury hearings did not lead to a single indictment. The Birmingham Post could not believe that justice has reached such a low ebb in Jefferson County and law enforcement officers and court officials are so inefficient as to permit the Gelder's outrage to go unpunished. Even the ultra-conservative news magazine Alabama expressed disappointment with the verdict. Gelders is an undesirable citizen, but the hotheads who beat him up are more dangerous and should have been punished. Although Gelders' assailants were never indicted, his case received a hearing before a U.S. Senate subcommittee investigating civil liberties violations across the country. In addition to his own case, Gelders entered into the record numerous affidavits from communists and trade union organizers who had experienced vigilante violence and or police repression because of their labor organizing activities. Testimony and other evidence revealed what the party had been claiming for the past six years. TCI and other corporations sponsored much of the anti-labor violence in the Birmingham area. Following the publicity surrounding Gelders' beating and the Senate subcommittee hearings, incidents of anti-radical violence diminished considerably. By the end of January 1937, Gelders reported an improved situation at Birmingham. Developments in the Bart Logan case also gave the party and the NCDPP cause to celebrate. In November 1936, Logan was finally released after the Alabama Court of Appeals ruled the Bessemer Literature Ordinance unconstitutional. The decision's meaning, as explained in party publications, reflected a new approach to politics under the Popular Front. The ILD's old slogans that justice was not possible in capitalist courts, or that mass pressure proved to be the most effective means to obtain a fair ruling, were not raised at all in the fall of 1936. Instead, Logan's release was seen as an indication that the party has broken through into partial legality in Birmingham. The struggle to achieve partial legality was not just another slogan. It exemplified a conscious policy to reconstruct a more popular party. By repudiating all vestiges of the party's underground past, communist leaders hoped to enter the mainstream political arena. Indeed, by mid-1936, national communist leadership had abandoned efforts to build a farmer labor party and showed signs of support for Roosevelt's re-election. The 1936 election returns might suggest that the strategy was succeeding in Alabama. Despite the fact that many Alabama communists and sympathizers able to participate probably cast their vote for Roosevelt, the party's ticket of Earl Browder and James Ford received 679 votes from the state, only 47 less than the 1932 tally. Yet, the county returns reveal significant demographic shifts in party support. Jefferson County, which cast only 33 votes for Foster and Ford in 1932, led all other counties with 180 votes, thus reflecting a huge increase among Birmingham's white community. With the exception of Clay County, 127 votes, and Elmore County, 
145 votes, the party's rural vote declined substantially. In Clay County, where only 13 people voted communist in 1932, the organizing efforts of Clyde Johnson and Walker Martin among poor white farmers in 1936 probably account for the sudden increase, although the other counties in which they were active do not show the same results. The Elmore County tallies, while undoubtedly heartening to the party, reveal a loss of nearly half the communist vote since 1932. More importantly, the party statewide suffered tremendous losses in dues-paying membership. The combined membership for District 17, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, dropped from 425 in January 1936 to 250 12 months later, a substantial loss when we take into account that in 1934, Birmingham alone claimed 1,000 members. The loss is all the more surprising in light of the fact that, from 1936 to 37, District 17 received the largest subsidy from national headquarters, compared with all 35 districts. And in 1936 alone, the district reportedly accepted subsidies amounting to $3,854.22 nearly five times the average received by other districts. Taken together, the electoral and membership data indicate that as white support in Birmingham increased, black membership decreased. Hoping to compensate for the loss and move deeper into mainstream community life, district leaders organized an open Build the Party conference in Birmingham in March 1937. Delegates passed resolutions praising Roosevelt's efforts to reform the U.S. Supreme Court, pledging an active role in the newly formed CIO in Alabama, condemning Italy's intrusions in Ethiopia, and supporting Republican forces in the Spanish Civil War. The war inspired black communist Mac Code and four white Alabama communists, Kenneth Bridenthal, Eddie Burke, George Millstone, and Warren Red Brown, to join the Abraham Lincoln Brigade on the Spanish War Front. The most prominent issue on the agenda, however, was the struggle to achieve legality in the South. Inspired by the new spirit of openness, district leadership established an office, 231 Clark Building, in Birmingham early in 1937, the first office under the Communists' name since 1930. A few months later, 27-year-old Jane Speed, a veteran of the early period, established Birmingham's first Marxist bookstore. The Jane Speed Bookstore, later renamed the Modern Bookshop, was located at 1907 Fifth Avenue North, a tiny storefront not far from City Hall. In typical Popular Front fashion, its grand opening was held on Constitution Day, and its windows were decorated with drawings of Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Thomas Paine, and printed excerpts from the U.S. and USSR constitutions. Speed sold communist material, books on the labor movement and black history, and decked the walls with paintings by local black artists. The store hardly paid for itself, but it did become an important interracial social center for Birmingham radicals. The first open 
All-Southern Communist Party Conference, held in September 1937, was considered a crucial step toward achieving legality below the Mason-Dixon line. 131 delegates from Alabama, Tennessee, Virginia, Kentucky, Florida, Louisiana, and North Carolina piled into the public auditorium in Chattanooga, Tennessee, to hear Earl Browder discuss the revolutionary traditions of the Old South, James Ford speak on the pivotal role of blacks in the Southern struggle, and an array of Southern communist and non-communist organizers describe recent local victories in the struggle for legality. Resolutions and speeches repeatedly claimed that the CIO organizing drive, Roosevelt's election, and the party's growing influence in the region curbed the political strength of Southern reactionaries and allowed for the flowering of liberalism in the region. The time was ripe for a liberal-labor-communist alliance, the fruit of the People's Front. Winning Southern liberal support posed a problem, however. After a long debate, delegates of the All-Southern Conference agreed that the first step should be to replace the Southern worker with an adequate Southern Party organ. Two months later, Southern Communist leaders published the first issue of the New South, a magazine designed to influence liberals and progressives throughout the Southern states. Discontinuing local news coverage, workers' correspondence, and other remnants of the past, the New South carried sophisticated articles on democratic politics, the poll tax, the work of Southern liberals, and occasional pieces on Southern history. Not surprisingly, by the third issue, the masthead was changed from published by the Communist Party to Journal of Progressive Opinion. The Central Committee also tried to change the face of communism below the Mason-Dixon line by appointing more Southerners to district and state leadership positions. But the New York-based leadership took their experiment in Southernization only so far. Heading the Tennessee Party was New York-born Ted Wellman, the infamous Sid Benson of the early Birmingham days. More significantly, in 1937, the Central Committee chose as its Southern representative John J. Ballum, a consummate Yankee. One of Boston's earliest communists, Ballum had edited The New England Worker, served a one-year sentence for violating the Espionage Act, and even tried to flee the country after being indicted under the Massachusetts Anti-Anarchy Act. Ballum's veteran status, probably more than anything else, qualified him for the job as watchdog over the Southern cadre. That many of the key party positions were still held by Northerners certainly did not help efforts to narrow the gap between communists and liberals. On the other hand, the fact that blacks held no regional or state positions, nor served on the New South editorial board, did not hurt matters either. In the 1930s, most Southern liberals were segregationists who advocated mild reforms that did not challenge the status quo. Thus, the party's overtures towards Southern liberals required, in Rob Hall's words, a new attitude on the Negro question. We cannot, he continued, cry white chauvinism against every Southern progressive white who still carries with him, despite a generally progressive position, 
considerable remnants of the old race prejudice. In some ways, party leadership had begun to compromise its militant anti-racism for the sake of political expediency. In 1938, for instance, the Communists endorsed Lister Hill to fill Hugo Black's seat in the Senate, despite Hill's opposition to anti-lynching legislation. Given his opponents' anti-labor, anti-New Deal policies, Hill was seen as the lesser of two evils. Hugo Black's appointment to the Supreme Court received glowing praise in the New South, even though the announcement drew vocal opposition from black leaders who recalled his earlier Klan connections in the 1920s. The need to placate white liberals might even explain why communist leaders began to de-emphasize, however slightly, their involvement in local black issue-oriented politics. In 1937, the District Committee dismantled the ILD in Alabama and encouraged black communists to become active in the NAACP, a decision that turned out to be an unexpected boon to the association. E.W. Taggart's arrest in 1936 and the NAACP's gradual adoption of direct action tactics undoubtedly helped boost its popularity, but the sudden influx of communists and former ILD activists nearly quadrupled the Birmingham branch's membership roles. By 1937, the branch had a paid-up membership of nearly 750 people, the largest figure since the early 1920s. But for most black communists, linking arms with the black elite was more of a duty than a pleasure. According to Hosea Hudson, local party leaders had to hammer and hammer on our people, especially Negroes, to become members of the NAACP as a mass organization. Before, we just knew it was there, but we didn't go. That was the better class of folks was in the NAACP. A ordinary Negro didn't feel that was his place. Although individual communists held no leadership positions in the NAACP, they served as a liaison between the Birmingham branch and black working-class communities, bringing local cases involving poor blacks to the association's attention. Nevertheless, the new cadre, with the Central Committee's encouragement, exhibited a greater appreciation for black culture, including the grassroots theology that had forcibly made a niche for itself within rank-and-file circles. Party theorists during the Popular Front not only described black spirituals as America's most potent strain of protest music, but they suddenly discovered that the Negro church had a rich history of revolutionary traditions, with such outstanding leaders as Richard Allen and Gabriel, who were leaders of the abolitionist movement in the South. The March-April 1936 edition of The Southern Worker began publishing a column entitled From Churches, its first article covering the activities of an interdenominational race relations day. Two months later, The Southern Worker reprinted radical cartoonist Art Young's mock advertisement depicting Jesus Christ and the word reward placed above in bold relief. Described as a poor carpenter who associates with common working people, the unemployed, and bums, Jesus was wanted by authorities, the ad declared, for sedition, criminal activity, vagrancy, 
and conspiring to overthrow the established government, thus drawing an analogy between anti-communist and anti-Christian persecution. The idea to reprint the young piece was Rob Hall's, who had long believed that religion was the way to approach the masses in the South. Though the Central Committee did not completely agree with his assessment, there were definite signs of tolerance toward religion. Most of the thousands of Baptist preachers are poor men, observed the Southern worker in 1937. They work or have worked with their hands. We should be fighting like the early Baptists for land to till, for freedom of speech, press, and assembly. Communists and supporters were even encouraged to join churches and various other religious organizations. Late in 1937, the District Committee, in accordance with Central Committee directives, implemented a series of reforms to improve recruitment and to restructure the CP along the lines of traditional political parties. It decentralized the whole southern region, limiting District 17 to Alabama exclusively. Larger branches, or party clubs, replaced the shop and neighborhood units the three-person Politburo, which had overseen the district committee during the early period, was abolished, as was the practice of dividing Birmingham into seven separate sections with section leaders. Under the new system, a single county committee composed of branch leaders replaced the district committee made up of section leaders. Rob Hall still ran the show, but his title was changed from district organizer to state secretary. Perhaps the greatest consequence of the branch system was the relaxation of discipline. Membership in a party branch, unlike the units of the early 1930s, did not require active participation, only that dues be paid regularly. To become a communist, one simply had to sign a card and pay a minimal registration fee. Indeed, the Alabama CP launched competitive membership drives much like the NAACP or the YWCA. A stanza from an Alabama party song based on the tune Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho illustrates the growing emphasis on dues and mass recruitment. Get new members and pay our dues, pay our dues, pay our dues. Get new members and pay our dues, fighting for our promised land. Yet, by abandoning the disciplinary and critical structures that required active participation and designated specific tasks to party activists, the everyday work of organizing still fell on the shoulders of a few. Moreover, a small component of the party's new membership included FBI and police informers who, under the new policies, could more easily infiltrate the organization. Branch leaders encouraged entire families, particularly wives and children, to become involved in party affairs. A few Birmingham party leaders especially tried to increase female membership, which had declined precipitously in the urban areas. A rather half-hearted recruiting drive in June 1937 attracted only 15 women in all of District 17, 10 housewives, 3 working women, and two women categorized as teachers slash students. Of course, 
the shift from neighborhood relief committees to industrial labor organizing and liberal politics made the party less attractive to women, black or white. But male communists, especially Birmingham's traditional church-based miners and steelworkers, posed obstacles to women's participation as well. As one black woman organizer observed, the men deliberately kept their wives from advancing. The branch meetings themselves were meant to evoke a family-like atmosphere. Like their rural comrades of the early 1930s, Birmingham branch leaders opened and closed with songs such as We Shall Not Be Moved, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, and Solidarity Forever. Party members transformed popular songs and spirituals by adding new lyrics, a practice reminiscent of previous years. Black and white unity, suffrage, and the traditions of Southern working people were among the more common themes that reappeared in Alabama party songs during the popular front. But the lyricists of the late 1930s were generally educated white Marxists whose conscious efforts to Southernize the party of Lenin often resulted in awkward verse. One anonymous organizer added these lyrics to the tune of Dixie. We'll get rid of bourbon landlord and the rule of absent bank board on the way every day making way for socialism. The first two years of the Popular Front radically changed the face of the Birmingham CP, but the new political line, no matter how foreign or incongruous it might have seemed to veteran radicals, was deftly applied to some very old problems. As a response to police and vigilante repression, the Popular Front was seen by district leadership as an opportunity to mitigate the violence by turning the party into a respectable, legitimate political movement. More importantly, like their comrades across the country, Birmingham leaders were genuinely excited over the prospect of creating a truly American movement. Infused with a new, southern-born, southern-bred cadre, Alabama communists reached out to socialists, the black elite, white liberals, religious leaders, and other progressive forces in an effort to broaden the party's base of support. In spite of these measures, however, the party's support among rural and urban blacks continued to decline. Hosea Hudson's recollections suggest that white chauvinism during the Popular Front might have contributed to the decrease in active black membership. He recalled incidents in which several of his friends left the party because of treatment meted out by district leaders or for lack of financial support for black organizers. But in a region where white rank-and-file communists occasionally referred to a compatriot as comrade nigger, it is unlikely that white chauvinism alone could provoke an exodus of blacks. The party's changing composition was not simply a case of growing dissatisfaction. It was an outgrowth of the very policies intended to broaden the movement. To fully understand this phenomenon, we must move out from the center to the periphery and explore the party's role in the labor movement, the growth and collapse of the SCU, and communist efforts to build alliances with Southern liberals and the black middle class. 7. 
the CIOs in Dixie. In the days gone by when they had their way, we used to hear the bosses say, Look away, look away, look away, union man. But the CIO's in Dixie. Hooray, hooray. The CIO is going to grow away down south in Dixie. Oh ho, oh ho, the CIO's in Dixie. Oh ho, oh ho, the CIO's in Dixie. Look ahead, working man. Circa 1938. Skeptical of the party's new language of unity and pronounced Americanization, Alabama labor leaders ignored communist overtures for a left labor alliance. The 1934 strike wave still loomed large in the minds of most labor bureaucrats, and the party's initial reluctance to alter its old tactics seemed to belie popular front rhetoric. As late as spring of 1935, communist coal miners tried to mobilize rank-and-file support for a national coal strike on April 1st, which had been strongly opposed by UMWA President William Mitch. The April 1st movement never materialized in Alabama, but two months later the UMWA officially endorsed a national bituminous coal strike. The strike led to a new Appalachian Agreement between coal operators and the UMWA in most states affected, but Alabama coal operators refused to adhere to the new settlement, and the strike lasted there until November 20th. The miners returned to work after Governor Graves persuaded coal operators to give them 50% of the requested wage increase. Over the next several months, communists continued to aggravate Alabama labor leaders by supporting demonstrations and wildcat strikes on WPA projects in Walker and Jefferson counties. The ASFL, whose officers had agreed to discourage relief worker strikes on federal projects, felt the party's actions were disruptive and embarrassing. Through its organ, the Labor Advocate, the Birmingham Trades Council published a bitter series of anti-communist diatribes beginning in January 1936. One such editorial, titled The Red Menace, described Birmingham's communists as emissaries of the Moscow cult who have all of the wisdom of the serpent, but little, if any, of the harmlessness of the dove. In February, the Advisory Committee of the Birmingham Trades Council conducted an investigation into alleged radical activity within the labor movement and alarmingly discovered many communists in Alabama with bona fide credentials from the Russian Communist Party. With an eye toward the upcoming ASFL convention in the spring, the Advisory Committee appealed to local, state, and national AFL leaders to help us fight to get rid of the Russian-directed communists. The formation of the CIO in 1935, originally an opposition movement within the AFL led by John L. Lewis, fanned the flames of anti-communism while simultaneously creating fortuitous opportunities for communists in the labor movement. Having recently abandoned dual unionism, the party was hesitant at first to endorse the CIO, especially since its progenitor, John L. Lewis, had long been on the CPUSA's list of arch-enemies. But for the sake of industrial unionism, 
Lewis let bygones be bygones and deftly solicited the communists' most idealistic and fearless organizers to launch CIO campaigns. Recognizing an opportunity to gain broader support and legitimacy from organized labor, the Central Committee proved its loyalty to Lewis by abolishing communist shop units and shop newspapers. Moreover, they kept their party affiliation to themselves and chose to subordinate their larger goals to the immediate needs of the labor movement. Lewis's alleged ties with communists caused noticeable tension during the 1936 ASFL convention in Florence, Alabama. Federation President Robert R. Moore delivered a rousing speech calling for the removal of all communists from the ranks of organized labor. Tensions were exacerbated, however, when Rob Hall persuaded black veteran UMWA organizer Walter Jones to introduce an anti-poll tax resolution and a resolution demanding freedom for the Scottsboro Boys, both of which Jones heartily supported. When Yelverton Cowherd, secretary of the Resolutions Committee, discovered who was really responsible for the two resolutions, he delivered a vindictive polemic against the communists, which elicited shouts of approval from delegates. Even Walter Jones joined the chorus, dismissing the resolutions he himself had introduced as an effort to break down friendly relations between white and Negro workers. With emotions running high, the convention swiftly passed a resolution requiring all Alabama locals to purge their ranks of communists. Anti-communism did not automatically translate into anti-CIO sentiment, however. When the AFL's executive board decided to expel the CIO unions in September 1936, just five months after the ASFL convention, Alabama labor leaders were reluctant to follow suit. Responding to AFL President William Green's harsh denunciations of the CIO, a Birmingham labor organizer, W.O. Hare, felt that a split of this kind would do irreparable damage to the labor movement in Alabama. You will understand, Hare explained to Green, that the labor movement in Alabama is way heavy with CIO groups, and just to jump in and start a fight right at this time would almost mean the entire destruction of the labor movement here. William Mitch, who was forced to resign as ASFL president after the expulsion, similarly advised AFL leaders that red-baiting will antagonize the situation, and if such tactics are continued, they will be met with similar tactics. But the warnings were never heeded. A few months after the expulsion, the Birmingham Trades Council announced that John L. Lewis now works hand-in-glove with the Disciples of Revolution. The labor advocate did not mince words when it described America's public enemy number one in a blistering editorial. The CIO under its communist leaders is a menace to the country. No man's job is safe. No man's investment is safe, and no single American institution, from the courts on down to the schools, is safe so long as the CIO is allowed to operate in defiance of law and order. 
the communist issue even forced CIO supporters into a position of attacking communism in order to prove the union's loyalty. The Birmingham Southern Labor Review, a tireless advocate of the CIO, earnestly condemned communism. We believe that communism, like other alien creeds, is antagonistic to America and American ideals. The strongest condemnations of the CIO came from outside the labor movement, serving as a potent reminder that anti-communism and anti-labor repression were inextricably linked. In Gadsden, Alabama, an industrial town in Attawa County, where the party's influence had always been negligible, vociferous anti-communist sentiment nearly destroyed the CIO's early efforts to organize rubber workers employed by the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. In 1936, a Gadsden rubber workers local that had originally been chartered as an AFL federal local opted to join the URWA, United Union of Roofers, Waterproofers, and Allied Workers, a CIO affiliate and launched a massive campaign to unionize the entire plant. The campaign began free of incident until a wave of sit-down strikes in rubber plants in Akron, Ohio, fueled suspicions that the URWA was a communist-dominated union. The Gadsden City Council passed several anti-communist ordinances prohibiting racially mixed assemblies with the alleged purpose of overthrowing the government or destroying private property and vigilantes punished a few local URWA members. Violence and community opposition prompted local organizers to invite URWA President Sherman H. Dalrymple to Gadsden to assist with the campaign. At his first public engagement in Gadsden, Dalrymple was dragged from the podium by vigilantes, beaten, and pelted with rotten eggs. A few days later, Several URWA organizers were assaulted and the union's office was ransacked. After the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, outlawed Goodyear's employee representation plan in 1937, the Gadsden plant sponsored the Etowah Rubber Workers Organization to counter the URWA. ERWO President Jimmy Caram sought to discredit the URWA and the CIO with accusations of communist domination. Stalin is the head of Russia, Caram declared, and John L. Lewis is trying to be the same thing here. Communists are working here every day using the CIO as a cover-up. More accurately, Karim himself used the threat of communism as a cover-up for mobilizing community opposition to the URWA. Indeed, the party did not become directly involved in the affairs of Gadsden rubber workers until the summer of 1937, when black communist Andy Brown visited the area to investigate these incidents of anti-labor violence. Representing the Hod Carriers and Common Laborers Union of Birmingham, Brown was kidnapped and beaten after he made several inquiries into earlier beatings. Local police found Brown lying in the street and delivered him to a local doctor who insisted on knowing, if I were a CIO organizer, if I had been to Russia, and whether I had read the propaganda of the communists. When Ab Cox conducted a follow-up investigation, he too 
was kidnapped and beaten. Under the auspices of the NCDPP, Joe Gelders organized a delegation of Alabama ministers and journalists to investigate the situation. Gelders had hoped that a committee of respected citizens could convince the people of Gadsden that the communist issue was merely a ruse to weaken the CIO's organizing drive in the rubber industry. One of the delegates, the Reverend A. M. Freeman, agreed that anti-CIO propaganda was a red herring, a subterfuge, to drive public attention from the methods being used by industry to strip the workers of their rights as American citizens. The committee's efforts not only failed to penetrate the wall of anti-communism, but Gelders himself narrowly escaped being the next victim of anti-labor violence after a mob of irate citizens surrounded his hotel room. In the end, the URWA did not sign a contract with the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in Gatchton until 1943. Gatchton was a unique case, however, because the vast majority of rubber workers were white and none of its organizers appeared to have been communists or even sympathetic to the left. In other CIO unions, where blacks constituted a majority or a large minority of the rank and file, charges of communist domination were more than a red herring for union busting. As we have seen time and time again, anti-communism was also a veil for racism. Less than two months after the Florence Convention, ASFL counsel John Altman, whose firm, ironically, had been retained by the NAACP two years earlier in behalf of Willie Peterson, stated unequivocally, organized labor in Alabama will not tolerate social equality between the whites and the blacks advocated by the communists. It will be the ruination of organized labor. Altman even accused William Mitch of practicing what the communists preach on Negro equality in the ranks of the United Mine Workers and organized labor. Birmingham NAACP leader W.C. Patton, himself a staunch opponent of communism, observed that the CIO's red reputation developed because the motives and objectives of the CIO did not concur with the philosophy of those who were clannish. The Alabama CIO had its share of clannish bureaucrats, but their willingness to organize black workers was motivated by pragmatism, not idealism. The union's success depended on support from the black working class, the base of Birmingham's unskilled industrial labor force. Yet, in order to deflect accusations of communism, the CIO had to somehow de-emphasize the issue of race. A difficult task, given the large percentage of black industrial workers, the dominant and increasingly vocal presence of blacks in the Union, and the interracial prerequisites of industrial organization. The CIO organizing drive was further complicated by the fact that many of its most willing and able organizers were communists. The steel industry was perhaps the CIO's greatest challenge because of the interracial composition of its labor force and the vigilance with which its owners opposed unionization. 
launched during the summer of 1936, the Steel Workers Organizing Committee agreed to take over the nearly defunct locals of the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers. William Mitch was appointed Southern Regional Director of SWOC, and Birmingham attorney Noel Beto was the committee's choice for Regional Executive Secretary. Although Beto was not an experienced labor organizer, he had served as Chief Compliance Officer for the NRA in Alabama. To the chagrin of SWOC administrators, steel companies frequently exploited racial divisions in an effort to weaken union solidarity. Company propaganda portrayed SWOC as a nigger union and, at least for the first few years of its existence, effectively kept most white workers from joining. And in addition to company-sponsored vigilante violence, Municipal laws were sometimes invoked to break the union. Since SWOC prohibited segregated locals, municipal and company police often arrested black and white union officials for violating city segregation laws. Black workers were the union's strongest adherents during the formative years. Indeed, Birmingham blacks tended to view SWOC's campaign as a crusade for racial justice. As early as January 1937, the NAACP organized several rallies in support of SWOC, and a handful of Birmingham's most prominent black clergymen offered church space for union meetings. Even AME Bishop B.G. Shaw called on blacks to enter wholeheartedly the labor unions only months after SWOC was launched. As Rob Hall put it, for blacks, the CIO drive was like a second coming of Christ. Once in the union, many black steel workers refused to accept a passive role in SWOC affairs, taking every opportunity to assert themselves. This active, sometimes aggressive presence of blacks caused resentment from some white rank-and-file members and provoked accusations of communism from several corners. Recalling his early years as a SWOC organizer, Hosea Hudson recorded in his memoirs some two decades later that his local was looked upon as red because in that local there was a big group of militant Negro members that would stand up and make their voices heard in their meeting in the face of some of the white supremacists. Yet the most vocal and militant contingent of black workers in SWOC were communists. Among the leading communists on SWOC's payroll in 1936 were Ab Cox, who was also a local UMWA leader, Joe Howard, an active party organizer since 1931, and C. Dave Smith, formerly of the Tarrant City Relief Workers League. Other Birmingham party members were elected by the rank and file to responsible positions within SWOC. In February 1937, Hosea Hudson was elected recording secretary for Ensley Local 1489. Black communists tended to be more vocal than other union members because most were well-informed about labor issues and had had experience speaking in public and administering meetings. Black communist Henry O. Mayfield, a leading CIO organizer in both coal and steel, remembered that black workers 
trained the white workers in the struggle. Sometimes we did not know how to vote on a motion or make a motion. Some of the men serving on grievance committees could not read or write, but they knew what to talk about when they met with the boss, and they were tough and would never back down. During contract time, the Negro workers took the lead in working out the contracts. The few white workers in the locals were afraid to attend meetings or serve on committees. In order to maintain smooth relations within the Union, however, Communists in the CIO kept their political affiliations to themselves, although this did not stop them from developing distinguished reputations in the labor movement. As one ex-steel worker succinctly put it, if it wasn't for Ab Cox, we never would have got a union. Black workers, who constituted nearly 50% of Jefferson County's steel workers, had much to gain from SWOC's success. They were not only the lowest paid, earning 16 to 18 cents an hour in the mid-1930s, but were almost always either trough men or line men or were assigned to common tasks such as trash detail, labor gangs, or ditch digging. With few opportunities for upward mobility, Black workers toiled 10 to 12 hours per day in over 100-degree heat, frequently amid toxic and combustible galvanizing materials. Moreover, arbitrary definitions of skill often masked racial discrimination. It was not uncommon for a black worker considered unskilled to train whites in skilled jobs, although the former would continue to receive wages commensurate to common labor. Therefore, while SWOC appeared to offer blacks a vehicle for upward mobility in the workplace, skilled white workers, at first, saw the union as a threat to their occupational status. For these reasons, white workers were initially reluctant to join SWOC. But as winter approached, an unexpected turn of events compelled a change of heart. In October 1936, 17,000 employees of TCI's predominantly white company unions threatened to strike for wage increases. Small increases were granted the following month, but many of the company union members were dissatisfied with the agreement and defected to SWOC. By December, some SWOC members felt emboldened enough to test the waters. On Christmas Eve 1936, Black steel workers at Birmingham's American Casting Company, led by communists Joe Howard and C. Dave Smith, organized Alabama's first sit-down strike in history. The strike ended a few days later, after company officials agreed to a substantial settlement that included a 20% wage increase and time and a half for overtime. Despite the strike's stunning success, SWOC leadership promptly fired both Howard and Smith, ostensibly for acting without authorization. The harsh, punitive measures meted out to the two communist leaders had more to do with the sit-down tactics than the strike itself. A few weeks after the incident, William Mitch and Noel Beto testified before a legislative committee to discuss a bill being introduced that would have made labor unions liable for property damaged during a strike. Although Mitch opposed the bill, 
he used the opportunity to clearly state his position on sit-down strike tactics. If sit-down strikes are used in Alabama, he told the committee, I will do everything in my power to get the workers to leave the property. Noel Beto, who scorned the use of sit-down tactics, testified that new legislation was not necessary since existing laws could be applied in those circumstances. SWOC's official position on sit-down tactics, however, did not seem to concern Birmingham's steelworkers. On February 4th, the day after Mitch and Beto had registered their opposition to sit-down tactics, 420 black workers employed by the Birmingham Stove and Range Company shut down their machines, dropped to the shop floor, and refused to budge. Mitch and Beto swiftly intervened and persuaded the strikers to leave the premises, although they failed to convince them to return to work. When the strike was finally settled a month later, the employees won substantial wage concessions, union recognition, and a work week reduced from 56 to 45 hours. In the long run, however, unauthorized strikes and sit-down tactics were rare occurrences in Birmingham's steel mills. Within a relatively short span of time, SWOC won recognition from most Alabama steel companies and gained the necessary strength to negotiate contracts without having to strike. More significantly, 16 days after John L. Lewis had negotiated a union contract with Myron C. Taylor, chairman of the board for U.S. Steel, TCI followed suit, signing its own contract with Mitch and Beto on March 18, 1937. The political climate in the South made it virtually impossible for communists to work openly inside most CIO unions, the one exception being the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers. A union with a long-standing radical tradition, party organizers, for the most part, had operated openly within Mine Mill since 1934. Unlike the UMWA under William Mitch, Mine Mill began the CIO era in an especially weakened state, having lost a series of strikes in 1934. While most white ore miners chose the company-controlled Brotherhood of Captive Miners, Mine Mill slowly rebuilt itself almost exclusively with black support. More blacks were elected to leadership positions within Mine Mill than any other CIO union, and its policy of racial egalitarianism remained unmatched. The preponderance of blacks partly accounts for the union's progressive policies with respect to race, but the growing influence of communists, especially after the election of Reed Robinson to international president in 1936, also helps explain the Union's increasingly leftward shift. Originally an anti-communist, Reed subsequently altered his views and moved within the party's orbit during the Popular Front, eventually appointing communists to local and regional leadership positions within Mine Mill. Having disbanded its mine units and rank-and-file committees, the party now influenced Mine Mill from top to bottom. Some of the union's most eminent leaders in Alabama were communists, including Mike Ross, Alton Lawrence, and Van Jones, all of whom had been either elected or appointed to union posts 
during the Popular Front. Mine mill officials occasionally invited local radicals to union meetings as guest speakers, openly engaged in non-union political activity, and even sent some of their organizers to the Highlander Folk School for training. White or minor Homer Wilson later testified before HUAC, House Un-American Activities Committee, that he had been fully aware of the party's role in Mine Mill, but he felt that there wasn't any fight on between me and the Communist Party at that time. I didn't really know that the Communist Party was part of the State Department of Russia. I thought it was a group of people who were actually trying to better the working class of people in this country, and so therefore I didn't fight them, but I just went along and recognized that they were there and give them the right to exist at that time. Wilson's testimony reveals a stark disparity between his personal experiences and HUAC's blanket description of the party's presumed agenda. Individual communists had impressed Wilson by their overall concern for the general welfare of working people in and out of the Union. Van Jones, Mike Ross, and Alton Lawrence attempted to tackle several political issues affecting Alabama's working class, issues that would eventually become central to the CIO Political Action Committee's agenda. Late in 1938, Van Jones developed labor committees to investigate and possibly draft pro-labor legislation for the state of Alabama, and he continually lobbied state legislators on behalf of organized labor. Energized by new leadership, Mine Mill in Alabama called its first strike after two years of relative silence. The strike was sparked by the announcement of a company incentive plan that would have resulted in the dismissal of at least 200 workers. Soon after miners walked off their jobs on May 31, 1936, mine operators in Bessemer locked out union members and evicted most strikers from company-owned homes. Red Mountain erupted into violence as gun battles raged between striking miners and deputies escorting members of the Brotherhood of Captive Miners. Denied WPA assistance and lacking a sufficient strike fund, Mine Mill was forced to concede defeat a few weeks later. TCI officials retaliated as soon as the strike ended, firing 160 returning ore miners without explanation. Nearly a year later, when circumstances seemed hopeless, the NLRB ordered TCI to reinstate the discharged miners and to pay back wages amounting to $102,050. The NLRB decision led to Mine Mill's first collective bargaining contract in Alabama, signed on October 6, 1938. Not surprisingly, the contract increased union support and attracted dozens of white workers who had defected from the Brotherhood of Captive Miners. But the union's problems were far from solved. TCI simply hired more white miners and enforced segregation practices with greater vigor, and the Brotherhood adopted a brand new face in 1939 when it changed its name to the Red Ore Miners and affiliated with the AFL, thus giving it the kind of legitimacy it could not have earned as a company union. Mine Mill remained primarily black 
and therefore vulnerable to company tactics of racial polarization and red-baiting that would last well past World War II. The Central Committee's decision to dismantle its rank-and-file committees and subordinate the party's broader goals to the needs of industrial unionism undeniably opened doors for individual communists, who otherwise might have been ostracized by all but a few rank-and-file militants. But in the long run, such a policy cost the party dearly, both in numerical and political strength. As several scholars have suggested, the party's loss of identity within the CIO hastened its eventual downfall in the labor movement after World War II. By assuming primary roles as New Deal labor bureaucrats and dutiful organizers, most communists became indistinguishable from other labor leaders. Industrial workers, therefore, really had little incentive to become communists and devote time and energy to an organization that merely preached the CIO's message. The zeal with which communists threw themselves into CIO organizing also exacted a costly toll from the Alabama cadre, especially black party organizers. Fifty years later, Hosea Hudson declared simply that everyone got soaked up in the Union. As communists devoted more and more time to building the CIO, the party's role as an autonomous organization seemed less important. Yet, Alabama communists active in the CIO did not give up the principles that had attracted them to the party in the first place. Nor had the party's loss of identity rendered it an irrelevant vehicle for black working-class opposition. As Rob Hall explained, during the CIO era, the party became smaller, not because blacks abandoned the party, but because the party's work was in the CIO. Behind Hall's words lay a very complicated story that has as much to do with the peculiar nature of Southern black working-class radicalism and the CIO's social character as anything else, including the party's own failings. Black Birmingham communists, for the most part, did not, and often could not, become pure Union bureaucrats in the way that their comrades had in Northern and Western CIO unions. Leaders of the Birmingham Industrial Union Council were still far more conservative compared with the rest of the country, particularly on issues related to racial equality. When communists presented resolutions at the first CIO convention in Birmingham endorsing federal anti-lynching legislation and urging the state of Alabama to drop the case against the Scottsboro defendants, both resolutions were summarily rejected by the CIO Executive Council. In this respect, although black communists had to hide their political affiliations, they nevertheless remained outspoken rebels on racial issues. And because the CIO was, by necessity, an interracial movement whose most supportive base consisted of African Americans, individual communists secured considerable rank-and-file support for their agenda. Both Mine Mill and the UMWA, for example, launched mass voter registration drives in an effort to increase black and poor white political participation. 
and several mine mill locals organized voter registration workshops that were intended to inform union members of their legal and constitutional rights. The CIOs stand on these issues and the realization that black workers could exercise some power within their unions, especially mine mill, SWOC, and UMWA, did more to wed communists to the labor movement than party directives. Indeed, for many black radicals, the CIO was just another communist auxiliary, leading some communists and ex-IOD militants to confuse union meetings with party meetings. Hosea Hudson remembers that a lot of these members who weren't developed went in the CIO and the white folks talking to members in the CIO like we was talking to them in the party. And they thought they was party people, talking about comrades. A whole lot exposed themselves. These red baiters and Ku Kluxers exposed a whole lot of our people. The CIO's progressive agenda, as well as its strength relative to the CP, probably convinced many radicals to devote all of their time to union work. But most veteran black communists who also held leadership positions in the labor movement did not separate CIO work from party work. Individuals such as Hudson, Henry O. Mayfield, and Andy Brown urged union members to join the anti-poll tax campaign, register to vote, read The New South and The Daily Worker, and attend non-union political functions. On the other hand, some Birmingham communist leaders and many more rank-and-file activists felt party work and union work were irreconcilable. Some very capable communist organizers quit the party because the CIO, in their opinion, offered better opportunities for personal and community advancement. Ab Cox, for example, left the CP almost as soon as he had become Birmingham's highest-ranking black CIO organizer, and his newly acquired role as the labor movement's leading black voice, he even had his own column in the CIO News Digest titled Negroes in the Labor Movement, compelled him to adopt a cool stance toward the Communist Party. Occasionally, he endorsed CP positions on social and political issues, but he clearly avoided taking stands that would jeopardize his status. For Cox, the CIO was not only more effective as a vehicle for social contestation, but it fulfilled personal aspirations that would have been out of his reach had he stayed in the party. The CIO appealed to the party's rank and file in other ways as well. Union organizers escaped the kind of brutal repression that had threatened the lives of communists years earlier, and CIO members, especially whites, did not have to pay the dear price of social ostracism that continued to be exacted from party members. But perhaps the greatest inducement, particularly for black working people, was the CIO's unique social and cultural environment, a milieu that blacks themselves helped to create. Black workers transformed SWOC and Mine Mill at the grassroots in the same way they had altered the Communist Party during the early 1930s, but the impact was far greater in the industrial labor movement. The CIO's most radical industrial union, Mine Mill, absorbed the very black religious traditions 
that had informed many Alabama communists. In the course of an average meeting, the predominantly black locals would pile into a sympathetic black church and preface union business with a religious hymn, slightly altered to fit the occasion. Bill Mitch is our leader. We shall not be moved. The religious spirit spilled over into speeches and discussions, as is evident in the following description of a mine mill meeting in Bessemer. It was an open meeting, and Brother Harris, formerly minister, was there to preach a sermon on the goodness of unions and why people ought to join them. His was the shouting, epigrammic style of the evangelist. If you substitute God for union, devil for employer, and hell for unorganized, you would have had a rousing sermon. The illustrations, minus their profanity, might well have been used to show the power and goodness of God instead of the union. And his why not join was so much in the church tone, I was afraid he was going to have us sing the hymn of invitation. During the CIO's formative years, mine mill members forced several company preachers out of business, hired their own pastors, and built their own churches, and a few men of the cloth held responsible positions as union organizers, many of whom worked closely with known communists. Like the party, the CIO in Birmingham was enveloped by the black community's tradition of song. We'd sing at the union meetings, recalled Bessemer iron ore worker Anderson Underwood. We'd just be singing at the union. There's just be a crowd of folks there, and we'd just sing and have a big time. Rooted in the same gospel past that begat party songs such as the Scottsboro Song and We Got a Stone, CIO members added familiar spirituals such as Hold the Fort and We Shall Not Be Moved to the Union's vast repertoire, frequently altering the lyrics. During the late 1930s, SWOC even had its own labor vocal group known as the Bessemer Big Four Quartet. Made up of black gospel singers who had sung with the West Highland Jubilee Singers during the 1920s, the Bessemer Big Four Quartet performed at union meetings and was heard occasionally on local radio broadcasts. Singing eventually became the Alabama CIO's cultural cornerstone, and members from all over the state were encouraged to articulate the union's message through song. A woman who sat on the union label committee of the Birmingham Industrial Union Council put new lyrics to the hymn Near the Cross and came up with the CIO Workers' Song. One stanza expressed both the optimism and the importance of solidarity in the struggle to improve conditions. Strength and power it will mean to all that join the union. Stand with the masses great and strong, say I joined the CIO. CIO, CIO, that is the organization. Watch the conditions all around since we joined the union. On the picket lines, CIO organizers added lyrics to simple nursery rhymes or popular songs in order to incorporate as many people as possible into the social act of singing, thus constructing a sense of solidarity that could not have been generated simply by holding signs or marching in circles. 
Ironically, Southern labor activists took a few songs traditionally deemed racist or distasteful to blacks and transformed them into radical union songs. Dixie was reborn as look-ahead working man. Now we're all together in the CIO. They cannot keep our wages low. Look ahead, look ahead, look ahead, union man. For the time has come when we take our stand with union men throughout the land. Look ahead, look ahead, look ahead, union man. The Communist Party's national and international connections undoubtedly contributed songs such as International, Solidarity Forever, and countless others to its locally derived musical repertoire. The same can be said for the CIO. The links between union locals and the emphasis on national and international solidarity allowed for greater cultural exchange. One song, based on the melody of Ta Ra Ra Boom Die, migrated from the north and west and eventually entered the red ore mines of Birmingham. Ta Ra Ra Boom Die ain't got a word to say. He chiseled down my pay, then took my job away. Boom went the boom one day. It made a noise that way. I wish that I'd be wise. Next time, I'll organize. The Highlander Folk School was perhaps the CIO's richest source for Southern labor songs. The school's educators not only trained labor organizers from across the South, but collected, disseminated, and often wrote labor songs. The vast majority of these songs were unaltered spirituals, such as Couldn't Hear Nobody Pray and Come On to the Burian. But radicalized hymns were quite common. Stand Up for Jesus served as the melody for Ethel Comer's Stand Up Ye Workers, a lively tune reminiscent of the IWW. Arise, arise ye toilers, the strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. All ye that slave for wages, stand up and break your chains. Unite in one big union. You've got a world to gain. In essence, the CIO in Birmingham was not just another federation of labor organizations. Unions such as SWOC, Mine Mill, and the UMWA evolved during their formative years as broad-based social movements enriched with Southern cultural traditions and fortified by an unusually pronounced civil rights agenda. Ironically, although communists helped pave the way for such a movement, a somewhat radicalized CIO negatively affected the continued growth of the party in Birmingham. As the Popular Front tended to de-emphasize its radical agenda, the old Alabama third-period militancy was partly reborn again within the ranks of the CIO. Of course, when we compare their broader goals and strategies, the communists remained to the left of CIO leadership, but the lines between the two were becoming increasingly blurred. Yet, the CIO offered activists strength in numbers, security, interracial unity, and legitimacy goals that Alabama communists had hoped to achieve through the Popular Front.
It should not be surprising, therefore, that black communists, regardless of their level of dedication to the party, devoted more time and energy to the CIO, thus contributing to the decline in black participation in the party. Most Birmingham blacks who left the party during the Popular Front were not disillusioned with the goals or ideals of the movement. They simply found a better vehicle through which to realize these goals. For some black working people, the CIO was the first real alternative to the Communist Party. For others, the CIO became the party. Nevertheless, third-period radicalism did not die entirely nor did the CIO consume the energies of every Alabama radical. Indeed, as local communist leaders sought to befriend Southern liberals or become labor bureaucrats, the spirit of the underground stubbornly persisted in the rebellions of WPA workers and in the protracted struggles of the SCU. 8. Old Slaves, New Deal Communists, and the WPA. We have no freedom of which the land boasts about, for the WPA workers are like slaves. Man, if that is freedom, then give me prison where I will get plenty to eat. If some change is not made, there will be mob violence here in a week or ten days, for the men are joining orders that are supposed to help them, and you know it is communists at work among the Negroes, and it is going to cause trouble. Birmingham WPA foreman to President Roosevelt, 1935. In spite of all their efforts to present a respectable image and to nurture friendly relations with Southern liberals and organized labor, Alabama communists could not ignore the rising tide of workers' dissent that was sweeping the federal government's newest relief agency, the Works Progress Administration. Activated in 1935 to provide emergency work relief through public works, the WPA in Alabama was launched with very little direction or planning. Jobs varied from bridge building and road work to cotton picking and gardening, for which workers received wages well below union rates and sometimes even below prevailing non-union wages. Monthly wages for unskilled WPA workers ranged from $30 per month in Birmingham to $19 per month in rural Alabama. The rural-urban differential allowed local WPA administrators to pay a Birmingham worker the city's prevailing rate and then send him or her out to the rural areas at a lower wage. In many cases, reassignment from the countryside to the city did not result in a proper wage adjustment, thus forcing many workers especially blacks, to toil on Birmingham WPA projects for a minuscule $19 per month. The combination of low wages and poor working conditions bred a militant relief workers' movement reminiscent of the 1934 strike wave. Several spontaneous uprisings on WPA projects rekindled the militant spirit of the early 1930s and literally swept Alabama communists into the fray, giving birth to what was perhaps their most incongruous campaign during the Popular Front. Montgomery Party members organized a mass demonstration of WPA workers in August of 1935, 
to protest the prevailing wage rates and demand a minimum of 40 cents per hour, though police intervention brought the gathering to an abrupt close. In Birmingham, a handful of communists assisted a predominantly white group of WPA workers who had not received wages in three weeks. The group marched on the local relief headquarters, bolted through the door, and threatened to use violence if they did not receive at least a grocery order. By the time police arrived, approximately 50 demonstrators had broken into the government surplus store and selected what food they could carry. By the summer's end, WPA workers in Jefferson and Walker counties were showing signs of mounting frustration over low wages and intolerable working conditions. One frightened WPA foreman in Birmingham warned that his workers resented working for almost nothing and had reached a point where they will kill at the drop of a hat and they will get us foremen first, for they think we are to blame. In September, a series of proposed wage cuts prompted 3,500 WPA workers in Walker County to walk off their jobs in disgust. Led by Clayton Norris, district president of the International Hot Carriers, Building and Common Laborers Union of America, the strike was not recognized by either WPA administrators or the ASFL. Indeed, two months earlier, officers of the ASFL had signed an agreement with State Relief Administrator Thad Holt designating all strikes on WPA projects as anti-government and therefore illegal and the hot carrier's reputation for militancy only solidified WPA administrators' denunciation of the strike. In the words of one WPA official, the union has always been a difficult one. During the strike, WPA officials refused to talk to Norris, choosing instead to negotiate with ASFL spokesman V.C. Finch whose strategy was to persuade strikers to return to work at the original pay scale. The striking WPA workers held a mass meeting at the Walker County Courthouse under Norris's leadership and demanded an hourly minimum wage of 30 cents, free transportation to and from the projects, regular paydays at two-week intervals, and payment for commuting time. With little support and no strike fund, the strikers began to break ranks after three weeks, and when police arrested Norris, a convicted felon, for parole violation, the strike came to an abrupt end. But it was not all for naught. WPA administrators rescinded the proposed wage reductions, reduced hours from 160 to 116 per month, and increased wages ranging from 15 to 27 cents per hour for some returning workers. Within a matter of months, discontent had shifted from Walker to Jefferson County. On March 24, 1936, WPA officials announced that all Jefferson County workers on non-fixed-cost projects were to be reduced to half-time with corresponding reductions in pay and at least 8,000 workers would be suspended without pay. A committee from the District Council of the Hot Carriers, composed of District Officers W.J. O'Neill, John Steele, and Black Communist Labor Organizer Ab Cox, 
tried to negotiate a settlement with WPA Administrator Ray Crow, but when their efforts failed, they elected to strike. On April 15, 1936, about 1,200 WPA workers in Birmingham and Bessemer left their jobs. And two days later, another 1,000 relief workers in Jefferson and Shelby counties joined the strike. Their principal demands included a reversal of the suspension order, a 10% wage increase, and the removal of Ray Crow, whom WPA workers felt expressed anti-labor attitudes. Since the walkout technically constituted a strike against the government, TCI police, armed foremen, and the local sheriff aggressively sought to restore law and order. One of the most violent confrontations occurred at a WPA-sponsored women's sewing project where communists Bell Logan and Kenneth Breidenthal had organized pickets of black women strikers. Police and gangs of white men toting axe handles arrived on the scene and beat several black women senseless. The men in charge of the project, reported Bell Logan, had a government truck driven up onto the sidewalk into the midst of the women, and the WPA guards came over with sticks and clubs and began to beat the colored women, seriously injuring three of them. The repression hastened the strike's end, which occurred within a few days. When it was all over, the county administrator agreed to withdraw the curtailment order, but refused to raise wages. Less than a month after the strike, the state WPA administration laid off, without warning, 5,000 workers, 2,200 in Jefferson County alone, and reduced monthly cash relief allowances from $4.89 to a paltry $1.59. By the summer of 1936, wages and working conditions had deteriorated to such an extent that skilled white workers in Birmingham were being paid unskilled wages. In Walker County, WPA officials paid unskilled laborers a mere $22 per month for 116 hours of work. Black women, many of whom had been transferred from sewing projects to more physically exacting assignments, had registered numerous complaints with federal authorities. A black woman on a WPA beautification project near Bessemer, who, along with other black women, had to dig trenches, remove rocks, and repair roads, irrespective of the weather, probably summed up the feelings of her fellow workers when she wrote, We are colored women and are treated worse than stock. Just when Alabama's relief workers seemed most in need of unionization, the hot carrier's increasingly conservative leadership had begun to withdraw from the WPA altogether. By the end of 1936, it had even adopted the ASFL's policy of opposing strikes on WPA projects. Shocked and disappointed by the hot carrier's retreat, Alabama party leaders nevertheless remained silent in their criticisms so as not to undermine chances for a communist labor alliance. Rather than challenge ASFL leadership or attempt to radicalize the hot carriers at the rank-and-file level, communists continued to organize relief workers independently. In December, WPA laborers in Fairfield, under communist leadership, 
won the right to free transportation to and from work by threatening to strike. A few months later, Communist organizer Kenneth Bridenthal founded a Birmingham chapter of the Amalgamated Association of State and United States Government Relief Workers of North America. Beyond a few mass meetings, however, the short-lived Relief Workers Union was essentially a paper organization. The party's growing national prominence within the Workers' Alliance of America, a largely socialist-led unemployed and relief workers movement, offered Birmingham communists fresh opportunities for reorganizing WPA workers. At the Alliance's founding convention in 1935, many of its rank-and-file members wholeheartedly supported the Popular Front and elected several communists to leadership posts, and within a year the Alliance merged with the CP-led Unemployed Councils. These dramatic changes in leadership and outlook, however, were slow to reach Alabama. When Birmingham's almost exclusively white Local One of the Workers' Alliance received a charter in 1936, it was both organizationally weak and politically conservative. Aside from writing grievance letters to WPA officials, the Birmingham Workers' Alliance had virtually no public presence before 1937. In the spring of 1937, the National Executive Board of the Workers' Alliance sent John Donovan, a communist and former New Dealer from Washington, D.C., to reorganize the Birmingham local. After some prodding by Donovan, Henry O. Mayfield and Hosea Hudson agreed one summer night to attend an alliance meeting in Fairfield, Alabama. If Donovan had intended to stir things up a bit by sending black radicals into the conservative White Workers' Alliance, then his plan worked quite well. Unaccustomed to the presence of assertive black men, the chairman of the Fairfield local led a bewildered, disgusted group of white workers out of the meeting hall and out of the organization. About two months later, a progressive interracial slate of candidates was elected to fill the recently vacated offices of Birmingham Local 1. James D. Howell was elected president, Hosea Hudson was chosen to serve as vice president, and a black woman, Edwina Collins, assumed the duties of recording secretary. Because its meetings were integrated, and it strongly supported the anti-poll tax movement and encouraged black workers to register to vote, the alliance immediately earned a reputation as a communist organization. Even AFL leaders, most of whom dismissed the Workers' Alliance as a communist front, directed most of their criticisms at its racial policies. On at least one occasion, anti-communist trade union activists violently disrupted a Birmingham Alliance meeting in 1938. The communist-led, unemployed councils of the early 1930s survived red-baiting from all corners, in large part because the party's role in those days was never hidden. But because the CP veiled its connections to the Workers' Alliance as part of its Popular Front strategy, accusations of communist domination generated disunity and distrust within the union, particularly since the alliance opened its doors to white-collar professionals. These white-collar workers tended to be more sensitive to the incessant Red Scare tactics than were unemployed industrial workers. 
because racial equality and communism were seen as two sides of the same coin, many whites left the alliance on the pretext that its racial practices alone proved it was a communist front. Less than a year after Birmingham communists became active in the Workers' Alliance, white flight began to take its toll. In 1938, blacks comprised 60% of Local 1. Yet, despite the losses in white membership, the pervasive red-baiting, and the internal dissension, the Jefferson County Workers' Alliance momentarily flowered in both size and prominence. At a huge Workers' Alliance rally in July 1938, at which 4,500 people crowded around the Jefferson County Courthouse steps, National President David Lasser shared the podium with Alabama Congressman Luther Patrick and Labor Leader William Mitch. With a peak membership of about 4,000, by 1938, 27 locals had been formed under the jurisdiction of the Jefferson County Council of the Workers' Alliance. James Howell, former president of Local One, was elected president of the county council, and Hudson was the member's choice for vice president. The position of recording secretary was filled by Ethel Lee Goodman, a young black woman from East Birmingham and recent party recruit. Seeking to turn the alliance into one of an activist movement, the new county leadership adopted many of the strategies and tactics used by the unemployed councils during the early 1930s. Local alliance organizers confronted the Department of Water and Power when individual workers faced utilities shutoffs, created committees to settle problems with relief officials, and tried to deal directly with local WPA authorities regarding working conditions, wages, and pay schedules. But because the party's support for the New Deal had been consolidated, especially during 1938, communist leadership now discouraged wildcat strikes and walkouts on WPA projects. Moreover, the Workers' Alliance at the national level developed a narrower approach to activism than the party had originally conceived, evolving into essentially a trade union for the WPA workers. Such an approach proved largely ineffective because, as a government relief agency, the WPA did not depend on profits and a continuous flow of labor for its survival. Alliance members were still subject to the whims and caprices of local administrators. As one Bessemer woman put it, local authorities continued to resort to all sorts of excuses and pretexts for denying relief or for dropping Negroes from the relief rolls. Black women had the most difficulty maintaining WPA jobs. The demand for household domestic labor had grown precipitously by 1938, in part a sign of economic recovery. WPA administrators responded to the growing need for domestic workers by removing hundreds of black women from the work relief rolls. Although officials believed household labor offered sufficient opportunities for unemployed women, most black women resented their removal from the WPA roles and bitterly resisted domestic work. While relief work was no picnic for black women, the choice between federal relief work and toiling 10 hours or more as a domestic was easy to make. In 1939, over 60% of Birmingham's domestic workers 
earned less than $200 per year. After having been laid off from a WPA sewing project, one black Mobile woman implored President Roosevelt to have her assigned to some other project since they do not pay a living wage in the home. A Montgomery woman in similar circumstances resolved to return to the relief roles or obtain a better job rather than resume housekeeping for another white family. I am hungry, she informed the president, and I have walked the streets until I am barefooted trying to get me some work. Appealing to Eleanor Roosevelt for assistance after having been fired from a WPA project in Bessemer, one black woman concluded simply that, Here in Bessemer, the conditions of us Negro females is the most pitiful of anywhere in America. A decision by the National Administration of the WPA practically put an end to the Workers' Alliance. In the spring of 1939, all WPA workers who had been on the program for at least 18 continuous months were suspended and asked to reapply within 30 days. The Alabama WPA administration could not have reprocessed the majority of suspended workers within the 30-day grace period, and thus the Workers' Alliance lost its organizational base within a few weeks. Five months after the suspension, the Jefferson County Workers' Alliance was reduced to less than 1,000 members. With the Workers' Alliance already on its last leg, the resurgence of anti-communism spurred by the Dyes Committee hearings only hastened the impending outcome. In 1939, as soon as the Alliance appeared on the Dyes Committee's list of Communist Front organizations, the WPA mandated that relief workers sign allegiance cards prohibiting membership in any organization that advocates the overthrow of the government of the United States by force or violence. In Gadsden, Alabama, the communist issue prompted the formation of the Gadsden United WPA Workers, which denounced the alliance as a communist front. In Jefferson County, anti-communism and racial conservatism on the part of white members split the alliance in half. James D. Howell still held the presidency in 1940, but he moved out of Birmingham and concentrated his efforts on white-collar and skilled workers exclusively. Hosea Hudson and Ethel Lee Goodman tried to hold the Birmingham group together, which by this time consisted entirely of black workers. By the winter of 1939 to 1940, only the Negro Masonic Temple allowed Alliance members access to a meeting hall. In Hudson's words, this handful of Negroes were the last to leave the sinking ship in a state of confusion. The collapse of the Workers' Alliance in Alabama was soon followed by its dissolution nationally in 1941. The brief history of the Workers' Alliance reveals some of the limitations of popular front politics in the Deep South. Communists nationwide were already placed in the ironic position of having to fight for improvements within the WPA while simultaneously trying to build an alliance with the WPA's creators. But as discontented Alabama relief workers grew increasingly militant, it became exceedingly difficult 
to resolve these two contradictory tendencies. Indeed, in an era when the Communist Party's moderate turn had alienated black workers and the CIO had begun to embody the radical traditions of the early 1930s, the Workers' Alliance might have augmented the party's dwindling membership roles. Like the unemployed councils several years later, it might have even provided the foundation for rebuilding the Communist Party in black working-class communities. But times and politics had changed. The Workers' Alliance only slightly resembled the predominantly black, underground, neighborhood-based unemployed movement of the early 1930s. It opened its doors to all WPA employees, including white-collar professionals who had no interest in the fight for racial justice and equality, and even less tolerance for communists. Although radicals exercised considerable influence in the Jefferson County Workers' Alliance, the party eventually adopted a somewhat accommodating political posture, much like its position with respect to the CIO. For the most part, party leaders elected to limit alliance politics to bread-and-butter issues, cater to the needs of white-collar workers, and subordinate the party's identity all to ensure harmonious relations with organized labor, southern liberals, and the middle class. Unfortunately, the long-sought-after alliance proved more elusive than Alabama party leaders had imagined. 9. The Popular Front in Rural Alabama In retrospect, I believe that those responsible for liquidating the sharecroppers' union were motivated by a sort of crude trade union economism, a desire to restrict the struggle of black soil tillers to economic issues, and a feeling that the existence of an independent and mainly black union with the explosive potential of the sharecroppers' union would frighten off our new Democratic Front allies, the Roosevelt New Dealers, the Southern Moderates, and the CIO leadership. Harry Haywood if the rise and demise of social movements can be explained in terms of correct versus incorrect theoretical positions, then the observations of black ex-communist Harry Haywood would make perfect sense. By 1937, most Central Committee members thought Alabama's underground rural union was a blemish on the party's new liberal face. But to reduce the SEU's decline to political machinations from afar is to miss the significance of local and national factors, particularly transformations caused by federal intervention in cotton production, the emergence of the socialist-led STFU, Southern Tenant Farmers Union, the radicalization of the National Farmers Union movement, and the SEU's inability to mitigate anti-union repression. The specific policies developed and implemented by SEU leadership must be seen as a response to a multiplicity of political and economic factors. Described glowingly in 1932 as the Southern Vanguard in the fight for self-determination, the SEU, led by Al Murphy, came under severe criticism two years later for its failure to recruit even a single white farmer. By December 1934, the Central Committee tried to remedy the situation by replacing Murphy with white communist and veteran trade union organizer Clyde Johnson, 
who was in New York at the time recovering from a near-fatal beating he had received at the hands of Birmingham police. Johnson had expressed an interest in rural work even before he was assigned to Birmingham. When he first moved south in 1933, he worked for the Farm Holiday Association in Rome, Georgia, before he was run out of the county. And during his brief respite in New York, Johnson had begun to organize dairy workers on Long Island. With renewed enthusiasm, though still a little weak from pneumonia he had contracted in jail, Johnson drove back to Alabama with black Tallapoosa communist Hosea Hart in January 1935. Johnson's appointment was partly intended to legitimize the SCU as an interracial organization at a moment when black-white unity constituted the cornerstone of the United Front in the South. But the Central Committee's intentions did not reflect the thoughts, dreams, and frustrations of the actors involved. Al Murphy, for example, wished to leave his post as SEU secretary as early as 1934, mainly because of the party's inadequate financial support and because the tremendous workload, compounded by isolation and a constant threat of violence, placed a great strain on his health. The party's vacillating attitude toward self-determination in the Black Belt further contributed to his growing disillusionment. On several occasions, he castigated national leadership for not distributing the Liberator in the South. Therefore, late in 1934, Murphy left the Black Belt for good and headed for New York. A few months later, he boarded a ship for Moscow as a delegate to the Seventh World Congress of the Communist International. Likewise, Johnson's eagerness to accept the position had little to do with the Central Committee's reasons for making the appointment. The independent radical did not see himself as an exemplar of interracial harmony for the benefit of the party's newfound liberal allies, nor did he fit the Southern Popular Front mold. Still in his 20s, the lanky, boyish figure exuded the idealism of his college days, yet possessed the battle scars of the seasoned Birmingham underground. An able and militant labor leader, sensitive to the needs of blacks, Johnson was genuinely excited about the prospect of organizing landless farmers and agricultural workers caught up in tumultuous changes brought on by the New Deal. Aside from a very brief meeting with Murphy, whom he met for the first and last time, Johnson was given no preparation for his new task. As soon as he settled in Tallapoosa County, he adopted the pseudonym Larry Coleman and initially signed all of the union's correspondence with Murphy's name so that local authorities could not detect a change in leadership. He later assumed several pen names, including Tom Burke and Albert Jackson, to confuse police and protect his identity. While addressing local meetings in churches and schoolhouses packed to capacity, he discovered firsthand the size and extent of the SCU, particularly in Tallapoosa, Chambers, and Montgomery counties. Curiosity attracted unusually large crowds anxious to meet the new secretary, but the strong showing was also indicative of the union's rapid growth. Johnson discovered twice as many locals as Murphy had originally reported. Recognizing the need for centralization and order, he immediately created an executive board comprised of elected county representatives with Hosea Hart, who used the name 
Harry Williams, just about everywhere except in his hometown of Dadeville, presiding. Executive meetings were provisionally held in Tallapoosa County, but were soon moved to Montgomery once headquarters were reestablished there, although meetings and activities still remained underground. Black Party leaders Charles and Capitola Tasker, for example, produced SCU leaflets with a mimeograph machine they kept hidden in their home and surreptitiously left packages of leaflets at Al Jackson's Barbershop, another black Montgomery communist, for organizers who regularly came by for a trim. The SCU's apparent growth had much to do with a wave of evictions prompted by the Bankhead Cotton Control Act, which made acreage reduction mandatory. Although most tenants were evicted weeks after the last harvest had been picked and bailed, landlords generally waited until the new crop had been planted before throwing their tenants off the land. At a moment when tenants were most vulnerable, having to rely on food and cash advances to survive, planters invited the evicted tenants back as wage laborers to chop cotton for as little as 30 cents per day. In counties further south, especially Dallas, Montgomery, and Lowndes, wage laborers received as little as $4 per month plus board. As one evicted sharecropper explained, the white landowners would not allow our people to work on shares nor rent us land. Many of our comrades have nothing to live on and nothing to wear. In desperation, a black woman communist asked the daily worker, What is we going to do? We do not want to steal if we can get round it. But, dear comrades, your stomach will make you do things you do not want to do. You will be so hungry, and you'll be barefooted and naked. Even white tenants were beginning to feel the effects of the Cotton Control Act. In Tallapoosa County, where several white tenant families had been evicted, black SEU members and white farmers met jointly on several occasions to discuss the Bankhead legislation. Johnson's first major decision was to follow through with Murphy's plan for a cotton chopper's strike in the spring of 1935. Laborers in Lowndes, Tallapoosa, Montgomery, Lee, Randolph, Dallas, and Chambers counties were instructed to leave the fields on May 1st unless they received a daily wage of $1. Leaflets were also distributed calling for a 10-hour workday, equal pay for women and youth, and no discrimination against blacks. The strike was clearly the union's largest campaign to date, encompassing some 1,500 laborers spread over 35 plantations. As had been the strategy in the past, strikers neither picketed nor engaged in openly militant activities, but instead used their wiles to avoid violent confrontation. If the landlord doesn't give the one dollar, Johnson observed, the croppers would say that everyone else has said they would not work for less than one dollar and that they are striking with them, or that they are afraid to go against the majority, or that they are too sick to work. The answers usually depend on the terror. Where the SCU was relatively strong, mainly Tallapoosa, Lee, and Chambers counties, the cotton choppers won most of their demands and experienced comparatively little violence. 
but in Lowndes, Montgomery, and particularly Dallas counties, the repression was insurmountable. In Dallas County, 16 SEU members were arrested, and several were flogged for taking part in the strike. When black communist Saul Davis returned to his hometown of Selma to inquire about the 16 incarcerated SEU members, he was arrested and immediately released into the custody of a hostile mob. Hearing of Davis's disappearance, IOD organizer Robert Washington was dispatched from Birmingham to investigate his arrest and to assist the strikers. On the evening of May 18th, Washington experienced a repeat performance of what had happened to his comrade Saul Davis. After spending a night in jail, Washington later testified, I pleaded with the sheriff that I was a stranger in Selma and would like to remain in the station overnight so that I could take a bus or a train to Birmingham on Monday morning. And he said, I'm going to release you, you black son of a bitch, right now. Dragged to a side door of the police station and handed over to eight armed men in two automobiles, Washington was driven about 14 miles beyond the city limits, stripped, and beaten with a leather strap for nearly an hour. Forced to walk to the county line as several men fired shots above his head, he miraculously made it back to Birmingham, alive but writhing in pain and quite shaken. Unbeknownst to Washington at the time, a young IOD organizer named John Willie Foster was sent to Selma the very next day to investigate Washington's arrest, but as soon as he entered the city, he too was arrested and released to a gang of vigilantes. Unlike Washington and Davis, who also appeared in Birmingham a few days later, Foster was never heard from again. White communists in Dallas County also fell victim to vigilante violence. With the strike less than two weeks old, party members Boris Israel, alias Blaine Owen, and Henry Red Johnson traveled to Dallas County to obtain a first-hand perspective on the strike's progress. During a meeting of tenants and farm laborers, Selma police officers who had been tipped off about the gathering forcibly entered the house with guns drawn and arrested Israel and Johnson. In the midst of interrogating the two men about their activities, Selma's chief of police tried to impress upon them the importance of crushing all forms of opposition in the black belt. We got eight niggers to every white man here. We got a hard enough time keeping down trouble without you coming around and stirring things up. When night fell, Israel and Johnson were released, only to meet several armed vigilantes outside the police station. After being shuttled into a waiting vehicle, the two white communists were pummeled continuously for hours as they drifted in and out of consciousness. Arriving at a destination well beyond the city limits, they were stripped bare, tied to a tree, and flogged with heavy rope and a horsewhip while one of their kidnappers pressed lighted matches into their wounds. When the torturous night finally came to an end, their limp yet breathing bodies were dumped on the highway just outside Selma. The strike was eventually crushed in Dallas County. In Lowndes, where three union organizers were arrested and several suffered brutal beatings, the strikers fared no better. 
but in the remaining counties, the SCU won a dollar per day on most of the targeted plantations. And on others, the strikers settled for 75 cents, plus three meals and free transportation to and from work. The demand for a 10-hour day was honored on only two or three plantations. Dairy workers and plow hands, spurred on by the cotton choppers' strike, also walked off their jobs, some winning weekly wage increases from $2.50 to $3.50, while several regular farmhands more than doubled their monthly incomes. Although wage increases were not uniform and only a handful of plantations were affected, these minor victories attracted more union adherents. By the summer of 1935, total membership ballooned to nearly 10,000. And despite meager funds, Johnson launched the SCU's first organ, the Union Leader, a voice of the white and Negro farm toilers of the South. In the spirit of 20th century Americanism, its first issue appeared appropriately on the 4th of July. The cotton chopper strike provided valuable lessons for Johnson and other rural organizers. Small victories were won by wage laborers and landless farmers who toiled on cotton plantations during picking time, but union organizers realized they could neither stop evictions nor impede the overwhelming repression union members in the Black Belt faced. Indeed, several weeks after the strike had been declared over, Dallas County SCU leaders were still reeling from the effects of anti-radical violence. On July 11th, organizer Joe Spinner Johnson was picked up by police and handed over to a gang of vigilantes a few days later. His body was found in an empty field near Greensboro, Alabama. In an effort to strengthen the SCU, Johnson and Donald Henderson, a Central Committee member who also served as director of the National Committee for Unity of Rural and Agricultural Workers, sought an alliance with the newly formed STFU. Founded in 1935 by socialists Henry Clay East and H.L. Mitchell in Tyranza, Arkansas, the STFU resembled the SCU in many respects. Advocating land for the landless, it opposed the AAA and fought evictions, but unlike the Communist Party, the STFU did not see the crisis as a class struggle in which the federal government played a duplicitous role in support of the ruling landlords. Nevertheless, as early as November 1934, Al Murphy submitted to Mitchell a united front agreement advocating unity around a common program that included opposition to the Bankhead Cotton Control Act and the Gen Tax Act, and support for the communist-sponsored Farmers' Emergency Relief Bill. The Farmers' Emergency Relief Bill would have repealed the AAA, banned foreclosures and evictions, and created a farmer-administered relief plan. Although STFU leaders responded favorably to the agreement, the issue of a united front was not raised again until May 1935, when representatives of the two organizations attended a national conference held at Howard University under the auspices of the Joint Committee on National Recovery and Howard's Social Science Department. Following their formal addresses to the participants, 
Hosea Hart and Clyde Johnson met privately with STFU delegates to discuss the possibility of united action. No formal agreement resulted from the talks, but H.L. Mitchell appeared supportive of the Alabama sharecroppers. After the conference, he gratefully noted that the SEU was giving us much help in explaining to us its methods of work where they have been successful. In July, Johnson wrote STFU leader J.R. Butler requesting a formal united front agreement between the two organizations. And a month later, Johnson and Hart met with Mitchell in Memphis to discuss the possibility of a merger. Mitchell was outwardly enthusiastic, but privately had misgivings. After meeting with SEU activists in Lowndes County upon Johnson's invitation, he concluded disdainfully that the so-called Sharecropper Union of Alabama was practically indistinguishable from the Communist Party. Thus, while the STFU Executive Board announced its support for the merger, both Mitchell and J.R. Butler worked behind the scenes to ensure that no merger would take place. When Johnson suggested a joint STFU-SCU cotton picker strike in August, for example, STFU leadership quietly rejected the idea, but a few weeks later announced plans for its own cotton picker strike, independent of the SCU. Nevertheless, Johnson proceeded with plans for a mass cotton picker strike. The union's primary goal was to win $1 per hundred pounds for seasonal pickers. They also demanded a minimum of $1 per day plus room and board, or two meals and free transportation to and from work, and a 10-hour maximum workday for day laborers, a minimum 40-hour week at 20 cents an hour for rural relief workers, immediate relief for all strikers, no evictions, and equal wages irrespective of race, sex, or age. Recalling the problems faced by the union during the cotton chopper strike, Johnson took even greater precautions in preparing for the pickers' walkout in August. First, he appealed to the AFU, the STFU, and the AFL to contribute to the SEU's meager strike fund, though none offered much support. Second, anticipating State Relief Director Thad Holt's order to remove all workers from the relief rolls who refused to pick cotton, as well as similar action by the Montgomery Reemployment Service and the county relief agencies, Johnson tried to organize local relief workers alongside the SCU. In conjunction with the cotton picker strike, Charles Tasker led two mass demonstrations of WPA workers in Montgomery's Exchange Park to demand increases in wages and relief and to oppose the use of relief workers as strike breakers in the cotton fields. Police dispersed both meetings, and the city responded by passing its own criminal anarchy ordinance. In Chambers County, the SEU appealed to 65 relief workers brought specifically to replace striking labor. It was reported that 13 of the relief workers simply quit on the spot, and the remainder opted to join the strike. As planned, the strike first erupted on J.R. Bell's plantation in Lowndes County, where an estimated 1,200 tenants, 
sharecroppers, and farm workers earned a paltry sum of 40 cents per hundred pounds. Led by Ed Knight and Ed Bracey, the Lowndes County SEU had apparently recovered from the 1935 choppers' strike and established locals stretching from Hope Hole to Fort Deposit. In July alone, for example, the Lowndes County Committee added 300 members to its ranks. The determination there was tremendous. There is going to be hell if they try to break up our meeting. We workers on the Bell Farm are organized, and Mr. Bell or anyone else will catch hell trying to stop us now. And hell it was. On the morning of August 19th, J.R. Bell rose only to discover that his cotton bowls were ripe, but his fields were empty. He immediately contacted Haynesville Sheriff R.E. Woodruff to remedy the situation. When Woodruff and his deputies arrived, they approached SCU organizer Willie Witcher and tried to convince him to call off the strike and return to work. Witcher politely responded in the negative and slowly walked back to his shack on the Bell Plantation. Almost as soon as Witcher turned his back, the frustrated sheriff shot him in the thigh and handcuffed and mercilessly beat him before locking him up in the Haynesville jail, his wounds unattended. That evening, Woodruff organized a posse which scoured the county, committing atrocities against strikers and non-strikers along the way. Jim Press Merriweather and his entire family, all union members, were among the posse's first victims. As soon as the strike began, plantation owner John Frank Bates evicted the Merriweather family, forcing them to move in with Jim's brother Philip. Then, on the night of August 22nd, Jim Merriweather was captured by the posse, accused of shooting a strikebreaker, and summarily executed. According to police reports, Merriweather miraculously broke away from four fully armed men, jumped into a nearby ditch, and picked up a shotgun which he had allegedly planted there earlier. When he fired at the officers, claimed Sheriff Woodruff, his captors retaliated and killed him. Forcing their way into Philip Merriweather's home, the mob continued its reign of terror against the rest of his family. Philip broke from his captors and escaped down an embankment, but Jim's wife, Annie May, was not so lucky. She was stripped, possibly raped, and beaten with a knotted rope while she hung from a wooden beam. Merriweather's murder was part of a larger scheme to assassinate known Union leaders, most of whom had been identified by informants. On Labor Day, Sheriff Woodruff and his posse fatally wounded SCU leader Ed Bracey as he tried to escape an ambush, and a few days later the body of Reverend G. Smith Watkins, a Baptist preacher and SCU leader, turned up riddled with buckshot in a nearby swamp. Lowndes County Communist organizer Ed Knight luckily escaped a similar fate. When he returned to his tiny shack late one evening, his furniture had been smashed and the mob had left a note on his door warning him that he was next to die. The strike provoked such unbridled violence that many victims were neither strikers nor union supporters. Three unidentified transients, suspected of union membership, were found dead in a swamp, and dozens of people were rounded up and squeezed into the overcrowded Haynesville jail. 
In Natasoka, a posse raided a women's missionary convention, which they thought was a guise for a union meeting, and assaulted several women in the process. And three days after Witcher's arrest, vigilantes flogged an elderly Lowndes County woman and her sisters for allegedly providing support for the strike. Anti-union repression was not limited to the rural areas. Searching desperately for the elusive Albert Jackson, Montgomery police arrested communists James Cobb, Charles Tasker, and James Jackson. After a brutal interrogation, Jackson and Tasker were ordered to leave Montgomery. Continuing their search, police located and arrested two Albert Jacksons, one being the party's Montgomery contact and the other an old bootlegger who had no radical associations whatsoever. When it was discovered that neither the bootlegger nor the black Montgomery barber was the SCU leader, the Montgomery Police Department, in concert with the city's postmaster, tried to trap Clyde Johnson by refusing to accept payment for the union's post office box unless Albert Jackson appeared in person. The violence evoked an emotional militant response from union activists. In a resolution to Governor Graves from the Lowndes County Committee, signed only Sharecropper Union Alabama, the strikers demanded the freedom of the Negro sharecroppers that was shot and arrested for union activities and carried to Haynesville, Alabama to jail. More than civil liberties were at stake. This also is part of the landlord's scheme to break the cotton-pigging strike and to force them into more misery and starvation. We are holding you responsible for all this and are demanding justice for these two croppers. As word of the violence spread, armed strikers organized their own posses, and in one instance a group met the vigilantes as they started to raid a striker's shack. When the gang saw the opposition was formidable, they ran, and since then the raids have not been so frequent. Lemon Johnson remembers a similar case occurring on the night of Meriwether's death, in which an armed contingent of women from the Hope Hole local set out along Route 31 near Hickory Grove in search of some of the mob to shoot at. The immediate victories were relatively significant, particularly in Tallapoosa and Lee counties. On several plantations, union workers returned to the fields, earning between 75 cents and one dollar per hundred pounds, in some cases with the right to gin and sell their own cotton. On at least one Montgomery County plantation, strikers won the full $1 per 100-pound wage rate. In Lowndes County, however, where SCU organizers entered the strike suffused with confidence, the union emerged from the debacle quite shaken. Opposition was so overwhelming that by early September, strikers were returning to work at the rate of 40 cents per 100 pounds. Reflecting on the loss of comrades and dear friends who gave their lives in the cotton-picker strike, Clyde Johnson penned a lyric tribute entitled, To Those Who Fell. Look yonder, you who still believe, the rotten lies the landlords tell. Look at the blood-drenched cotton fields where your brothers fought and fell. 
listen to the landlord's trembling brag of shooting strikers in the back, of riding murder gangs in the dark of night, of beating wives and children in their shacks. Our comrades challenged the landlord's greed, their hunger, misery, and oppression. They built the Union strong. They taught us a mighty lesson. Shake in your boots, you landlord dogs. The day of final reckoning is near. The farming masses, white and black, will smash your rotting seat of power. Through the Daily Worker and liberal news publications, Johnson, along with Donald Henderson and Joe Gelders of the NCDPP, publicized the beatings, arrests, and murders that had occurred during the strike. Governor Bibb Graves received numerous telegrams, resolutions, postcards, and letters from all over the country protesting the shooting and arrests of SCU members and the murders of Joe Spinner Johnson, Ed Bracey, Jim Merriweather, and Smith Watkins. Accompanied by a delegation of three union members who had been run out of Lowndes County, Annie May Merriweather, Wesley Smith, and Henry Roberts, Johnson traveled first to New York to raise funds and discuss the recent strike, and then continued to Washington, D.C., where the group arranged a conference with President Roosevelt and filed formal protests with the AAA, the Rural Resettlement Administration, and the Postmaster General. AAA Administrator Chester Davis promised to conduct an investigation, but the administration's efforts did not lead to a single indictment. Johnson returned from Washington weary and disappointed, his memory still stinging from the loss of his comrades. But in January 1936, he was given an emotional boost when his friend, former Atlanta IOD worker Leah Ann Agron, arrived in Birmingham to serve as his secretary. Sharing a tiny semi-basement apartment in Tarrant City, Anne and Clyde were married on March 4th. Despite the companionship, the constant harassment and work that went into organizing an underground union took its toll. A few months later, a visitor walked into the tiny Johnson household and saw a young Southerner, 30 perhaps, white and frail with dark rings under his eyes. He talked without heroics of the dangers and difficulties of his work. He and his wife had an odd calmness and sat very still as they talked. With Anne's help, Johnson worked to reinvigorate the SCU implementing substantive changes in the union structure with the intention of transforming it from an underground, armed organization to an open and recognized trade union of agricultural laborers. After long discussions within the SEU Executive Board, it was decided that establishing an open national office was a necessary first step toward legitimizing the SEU as a bona fide trade union. The board first decided on Dadeville, but as increasing numbers of Louisiana farmers sought SEU leadership, Johnson began spending considerable time away from Alabama to work with the new Louisiana state organizer, party activist Gordon McIntyre. With the assistance of black organizers J.B. Richard and Abraham Phillips, Louisiana quickly became a beehive of union activity. A sit-down strike led by Richard stopped the FSA 
from evicting tenants from one of its plantations in St. Landry Parish, and under the able leadership of 19-year-old Phillips, Point Capi Parish quickly became an SCU stronghold. Two decades later, Abraham Phillips became a prominent figure in the Louisiana Deacons for Defense and Justice, an armed contingent of black men who offered protection for civil rights activists. The events in Louisiana convinced Johnson to establish headquarters in New Orleans, which eventually replaced Dadeville as the SCU's administrative center. Johnson continued to pursue an alliance with the STFU as well, but his appeals now fell on deaf ears. The growing anti-communist sentiments of Mitchell, J.R. Butler, and Howard Kester, partly sparked by a personal distrust these men had for Donald Henderson, whittled away any latent support for a merger between the two movements. Throughout the winter of 1935-36, to 36, STFU leaders privately opposed organizational unity, but still kept up a facade of friendly relations with the SCU. They even invited Johnson to address the second annual convention in Little Rock, Arkansas, in January 1936. In a letter to Gardner Pat Jackson, chair of the National Committee on Rural Social Planning and an STFU supporter, Mitchell agreed that both organizations had very much in common, but the idea of a merger, which Jackson supported, was simply out of the question. Although Johnson had not yet dismissed the idea of merging with the STFU, other prospects developed due to substantive changes in communist foreign policy. Just prior to the Seventh World Congress in 1935, party theoreticians Lim Harris and Clarence Hathaway pushed for a united front with Milo Wren's Farm Holiday Association and, to a lesser extent, made similar overtures toward the NFU, National Farmers Union. While attending the Farmers National Relief Conference in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in March 1935, Johnson found within the NFU a potential ally much more formidable than the holiday an observation that was later supported by several leading communists. He felt the party was losing its influence within the already declining Farm Holiday Association, while progressive forces within the NFU seemed to be winning their battle to oust conservative E.E. E. Kennedy and other Coughlinites from leadership. Returning south with a new perspective, Johnson developed a close working relationship with AFU Secretary W.C. Irby, a popular Birmingham socialist who received over 2,000 votes in his 1936 bid for Congress. Irby's senatorial campaign led Johnson to northern Alabama, where many AFU locals were dominated largely by racist, poor white farmers who believed black sharecroppers and tenants in the Black Belt region were to blame for the depressed price of cotton. Johnson and other SEU leaders used the opportunity to build an opposition movement against arch-conservative AFU president R.H. Sartain and his supporters, many of whom had open affiliations with the Klan. With the help of Winston County Communists McKinley Gilbert and Walker Martin, Johnson addressed crowds of white farmers in Walker, Winston, and Greene counties deflating white supremacists' slogans by illustrating that the current price of cotton, 
compounded by competition from black belt landlords, only brought their families 50 cents per day, a sum tantamount to that earned by black tenants and laborers. Johnson's speeches electrified the upcountry crowd, but other factors contributed to the AFU's radicalization. In the coal mining and textile producing region of northern Alabama, dozens of small farmers and their relatives had worked in the mines and mills and thus brought traditions of industrial unionism to the AFU at a moment when the labor movement was once again becoming a force to be reckoned with in Alabama politics. In the Gulf counties, on the other hand, the AFU was growing even faster because rich, often absentee landowners were undercutting small farmers by buying huge tracts of land and establishing corporate-style plantations. As black wage workers were being transported to these huge plantations in Baldwin, Covington, and Escambia counties, AFU organizers made a concerted effort to bring these black laborers into the union as soon as they arrived. By mid-1936, radicals within the AFU had gained considerable support from the rank and file. As the prospect of an alliance between the AFU, the SCU, and possibly the STFU came nearer to fruition, Johnson, Donald Henderson, and members of the SCU Executive Board anticipated problems caused by combining wage labor and small farmers into one general union. The growing ranks of landless farmers turned wage workers faced problems radically different from small farmers and tenants. The former, the communists argued, should now be organized along traditional labor union lines, while the latter should concentrate on creating cooperatives and obtaining land and government loans. Therefore, the proposed unity agreement stipulated that sharecroppers and tenants merge into the farmers' union while agricultural workers organize under the auspices of an AFL-affiliated National Agricultural Workers' Union. Such a plan, of course, would have meant the end of the STFU and SCU as autonomous bodies. STFU leaders vehemently rejected the idea of merging and dividing the two agricultural organizations, which Mitchell characterized as craft unionism in the cotton fields. As he explained to Donald Henderson, whom he now treated as his adversary, we are concerned with the needs of our people and do not intend to dissipate our efforts in following new lines or old ones. The stream of anti-SCU articles that now began to appear in the STFU's organ, the sharecropper's voice, added fuel to Johnson's own suspicions of Mitchell, Butler, and Kester. He not only resented the cold manner in which these men treated him at the STFU convention in January 1936, but he was disappointed when several black STFU members, including the union's leading black organizer, E.B. McKinney, complained of racism and nepotism within the Arkansas-based organization. I knew then, Johnson recalled, there wasn't going to be any organizational unity. The NFU's radical shift, the Farm Holiday Association's decline in the Midwest, and strained relations between communists and STFU leaders convinced Johnson 
that the party should further alter its current foreign policy. After two days of meetings during the 9th CPUSA Convention in 1936, Johnson argued convincingly before the Central Committee that the future of rural radicalism lay in the NFU. Having won the support of Earl Browder, James Ford, and Comintern officials, Johnson was asked to work on the Agrarian Commission to implement the new policy nationally, a task he accepted reluctantly. Although he was allowed to return south to tie up loose ends and begin merger negotiations between state organizers of the NFU and the SCU, Johnson spent much of his time organizing NFU locals in the Northeast and Midwest. The party's new policy was announced three weeks later during the SEU's first national convention held in New Orleans. The executive board strongly appealed for a united front with the AFU on a number of agricultural and civil rights issues and proposed the creation of joint committees to discuss the possibility of merging the two organizations. The merger proposal divided the Farmers' Union and touched off a power struggle between the conservative leadership and the Radical Caucus that had been simmering for some time. The Radicals, backed by strong labor supporters from Winston and Walker counties, won in the end, the AFU enthusiastically endorsing the merger proposal at its state convention in October 1936. Incensed by this development, R. H. Sartain resigned as president, and a handful of his loyalists left the convention in disgust. In addition to bringing a few thousand black tenants and small farmers into the hitherto all-white organization, the radicals pressed the farmers' union even further to the left. A movement once dominated by staunch racists, the AFU now adopted a civil rights plank ardently supported the newly created CIO and accepted the SCU's slogan of 40 acres and a mule as its own. It also developed marketing and purchasing cooperatives and sought to secure low-interest government loans, land grants, and federal assistance for purchasing materials. More importantly, the AFU promoted the share crop contract a uniform agreement drafted by Johnson that was intended to clarify the terms of settlement between tenants and landlords. The contract required that all advances and wages be paid in cash, stated the tenant's right to sell his or her own crop, obliged landlords to furnish a written monthly statement of accounts, and listed the specific duties of both the tenant and the landlord with respect to crops and harvesting. The AFU's radical shift and incorporation of its poor black constituency, however, was neither smooth nor swift. Critical of the AFU's willingness to accept wealthy landlords into its ranks, Johnson realized a few months later that union leadership did not understand sharecropper problems, and they are not proposing anything to suit their conditions. In terms of day-to-day -day organizing in the Black Belt, the AFU contributed very little at first, especially in the way of financial support. Black SCU organizers lived literally from hand to mouth, as Saul Davis's moving request for funds in 1937 so vividly illustrates. The workers is not able to support me, 
please don't fail to send me some funds just as soon as you get some, for I need it bad to get me something to eat. All the job I got is organization work, and I like the job and do mean to struggle, but got to have support to struggle. Moreover, the relatively high membership dues required by the AFU slowed the transfer of SCU locals considerably. Accustomed to paying a joining fee of only $0.10 cents plus regular dues of $0.05 cents per month, the SCU rank-and-file was now asked to pay an initial fee of $1.50 for each individual member and an annual fee of $1.50, without which a local could not obtain a charter. At first, the immediate problems created by the merger overshadowed the communist issue. Besides, AFU organizers Walker Martin, McKinley Gilbert, Clyde Johnson, and several others concealed their Communist Party membership so as to avoid internal schisms. But by spring, AFU State Secretary G.S. Gravely discovered Johnson's political affiliations and immediately raised the Red Scare. Claiming to have uncovered a communist takeover in the making, Gravely proposed expelling all union members suspected of being Reds, beginning with Clyde Johnson. Johnson, in turn, charged Gravely with making false accusations and criticized him for dividing the union. Not only was Gravely found guilty of the charges, but the radical wing of the AFU ran a progressive slate of candidates and swept all of the executive board positions. Both Gilbert and Martin were elected to the executive board, along with a number of independent radicals sympathetic to the party, including the union's new president, Walker County's Vester Burkett. By the end of 1936, radicals had seized control of the NFU as well as the AFU. The new national leadership created a Southern Organizing Committee under the direction of Burkett, Johnson, and Communist Gordon McIntyre, who now headed the Louisiana Farmers Union. But before the campaign got off the ground, the union's most important link to the Alabama Black Belt, Clyde Johnson, was asked by Donald Henderson to remain in Washington, D.C., in order to lobby for the Wage Hour Act. Gordon McIntyre also had to withdraw soon afterward when tuberculosis kept him from continuing his work. The loss of Johnson, in particular, was a devastating blow to the AFU's work among rural blacks. In Tallapoosa County, once the heart of the SCU, black sharecroppers and tenants were growing distrustful of the Farmers' Union. Vester Burkett reported in 1938 that, The Farmers' Union has been misrepresented in Tallapoosa County. It is going to take some hard work to make those people believe our program. Rather than correspond with local AFU leaders whom they did not know, sharecroppers and tenants continued to send their complaints and requests to the defunct SCU Executive Committee in New Orleans, which now presided over the Louisiana Farmers Union. Among the many complaints was the unsolved problem of anti-union violence. While the AFU grew considerably among white farmers in northern Alabama, and in the Gulf counties of Baldwin, Escambia, and Covington, it still could not mitigate repression in the Black Belt or in the eastern Piedmont, 
where black tenants continued to face the same pattern of racist violence. In Dallas County, for example, black union organizer Butler Mollette suffered a near-fatal beating when local authorities became aware of his activities by illegally opening his mail. And when a landlord in King's Landing, Alabama, beat union leader Philip Rudler to death with a hammer and assaulted Rudler's wife, local authorities refused to prosecute him, possibly because of distrust or the AFU's inability to reduce rural violence, or both. Some black smallholders and tenants turned to their old nemesis, the Federal Agricultural Extension Programs. SCU locals in Tallapoosa County protested on behalf of a black home demonstration agent who was refused entry to an eastern Alabama fair. And in both Tallapoosa and Elmore counties, union members reportedly dominated the segregated 4-H clubs. The shift from tenancy to rural wage labor and the adoption of mechanization constituted the most powerful barriers to the AFU's growth in the Black Belt. The Farmers' Union had not developed a strategy to halt evictions, and, with the exception of the share crop contract, its agricultural programs were still concentrated on the needs of small, independent farmers. Unlike the old SCU, it was not responsible for organizing wage labor, whose ranks had grown remarkably as a result of New Deal policies. Indeed, as the number of evicted tenants multiplied, the SCU in the Black Belt was becoming an organization largely comprised of wage labor, and therefore its burgeoning constituency was now the responsibility of the AFL. In accordance with the original merger plans, formulated in 1936, SCU farm workers in Alabama joined the FLCFWU, Farm Laborers and Cottonfield Workers Union, number 20471, under the leadership of Walker Martin. When the CIO split from the AFL the following year, the Alabama locals of the FLCFWU followed suit and were soon absorbed by the newly created UCAPAWA, United Cannery, Agricultural, Packing, and Allied Workers of America, which was now led by Donald Henderson. The founding convention of UCAPAWA elected veteran organizer Hosea Hart, secretary, and white communist Richard Lindsley, president of District 9, covering Alabama, southern Mississippi, and Louisiana. Faced with financial difficulties and limited support from the CIO, the organizing work of District 9 proceeded at a snail's pace. After starting out with 28 full-time southern workers, by January 1938, the number had been reduced to two. Nevertheless, by December 1938, Hart and Lindsley had established 14 locals in Alabama and reported a total paid-up membership of 1,832. The AFU supported UCAPAWA by formally agreeing to hire only union cotton pickers, but the agreement was little more than a symbolic gesture since union scale was nearly the same rate as the average wage in the Black Belt, about 40 cents per hundred pounds. The Alabama locals were so weak, Lindsley conceded, that any attempt to strike would have meant disaster for the fledgling union. UCAPAWA's only significant victory in the Alabama Black Belt 
was the reversal of one of the WPA's many discriminatory hiring practices. Before UCA PAWA's organizing campaign, sharecroppers, tenants, and resident farmhands could not apply for WPA jobs unless they secured their landlord's approval, which was almost always denied in order to ensure the landlord's own supply of cheap labor. Through the lobbying efforts of Lindsley and Donald Henderson, however, National WPA officials in 1938 allowed union officers to sign the applications in lieu of the landlord. Although UCA PAWA posed no serious threat to Alabama landlords, its organizers still experienced fierce repression from local authorities. In Tallapoosa County, where the apparition of armed resistance weighed heavily on the minds of white landlords, the local sheriff utilized methods of intimidation to break the union. In 1938, Willie Joe Hart, the son of UCA PAWA Secretary Hosea Hart, was jailed on a trumped-up charge of robbery and rape, a case so invidious that even an investigating committee sent by Governor Bibb Graves questioned the charges. It soon became apparent, however, that the police were really after his father. When Hosea Hart arrived at the police station to see about his son, Dadeville Sheriff Cliff Corpru would only discuss the affairs of the union. He bragged of his role in the murder of several union members in the past and warned Hart that he intended to crush the union again. But this time, we're not going to use pistols and rifles. We're going to use machine guns and we're going to mow every goddamn one of you down. Willie Joe was subsequently released, and Corpru probably realized he had no reason to bring in machine guns. When Hosea Hart was elected president of the district in 1940, the union had unraveled to such a degree that Tallapoosa was the only county with active locals. UCA PAWA's program in Alabama was reduced to securing FSA loans for tenants and sharecroppers, struggling for fixed rent in kind for tenants, and fighting for voting rights in the Black Belt. As UCA PAWA dwindled closer and closer to non-existence, a handful of veteran SCU members held on to the old radical notion with untiring optimism. Hence, Jesse L. Burton, secretary of Local 285 in Tallapoosa and veteran of the rural movement, could say in 1940, UCA PAWA has brought a new day for us, a new light is shining, and we are all waking up and will sleep no more. But many rural blacks followed another shining light of opportunity, leaving the countryside behind for opportunities in Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, and cities beyond the boundaries of Alabama or the Mason-Dixon line. In fact, Alabama lost 147,340 of its residents between 1935 and 1940 experiencing the highest net loss of population in the Southeast. This trend, along with the mechanization of the cotton belt, would proceed at an even faster pace in the decade to come. By 1940, the heyday of communist organizing in the Black Belt was over. UCA, PAWA soon ceased to exist in the state, and the AFU continued to grow in northern Alabama and along the Gulf Coast. 
Although the Popular Front reinforced the party's efforts to solve the political and economic problems of the rural South, including its divide-by-tenure policy, which ultimately led to the SEU's merger with the AFU and UCA-PAWA, the destruction of the communist-led rural movement cannot be attributed entirely to changes in the party's line or to some kind of conspiracy to liquidate the militant sharecroppers' movement. Neither the SEU, UCA, PAWA, nor the AFU could have effectively reversed the massive changes that had disrupted the lives of sharecroppers and tenant farmers in the Alabama Black Belt. Perhaps if UCA, PAWA, and the AFU had had more resources, or if the federal government had protected rural workers' right to organize, as it had industrial and craft unions, the movement in the Black Belt might have had a different history. Although the communists could not sustain the mass movement in the Black Belt counties, the merger was not without its benefits. Within a two-year period, Alabama communists turned the AFU into a formidable force on the left and an ardent proponent of labor and civil rights in the region. Moreover, the party's growing prominence within the AFU notably altered the character of its rural support, from poor black sharecroppers and laborers to independent white farmers. Ironically, this demographic shift in the party's rural base occurred just as it began to lose its urban black constituency. 10. The Democratic Front An exercise in courage or militance for a worthy cause is, I believe, never wasted, even though its tangible result is impossible to measure. The tragedy of the Southern liberals and the Southern communists is that a potential for great achievement was squandered. Robert F. Hall most, if not all, Southern liberals of the 1930s would have found these words scandalous, at best, wishful thinking, at worst, a vicious distortion of history. But Rob Hall's ruminations on the Democratic front, based on first-hand experience and four decades of reflection, contain enough grains of truth to fill a silo. If democratizing the state of Alabama can be considered a great achievement, then communists were indeed one of many groups on the threshold of ushering in a new era of reform. The CIO in Birmingham, for example, had become more than a federation of labor unions. It evolved into a unique force for social change, particularly for blacks, an evolution that can be traced in part to the vocal presence of communist labor organizers. Communists spurred a handful of liberals into action as well. Joseph Gelders's beating and his persistent campaign against vigilante violence, in particular, rattled more than a few progressive Southern circles. By the close of the New Deal decade, Southern liberals had emerged from the closet as if in unison, assuming a stronger stance against poverty, racism, and civil liberties violations. And, of course, black middle-class organizations such as the NAACP, whose ranks now included reluctant radicals and black trade unionists, embraced a somewhat more activist civil rights agenda. Yet during this same period, the party had begun to lose organizational contact with its black rural supporters 
following the SCU's liquidation. Its black urban membership shrank once the CIO began to take off, and the party in general remained isolated and ostracized from Southern liberals and the black middle class. The latter was particularly damaging to the Popular Front. By late 1937, as Birmingham became the only sustained center of party activity in the state, Communist leaders redoubled their efforts to attract progressive urban elites, especially white liberals. Its organizers were predominantly white, native Southerners. Its journals spoke directly to Southern liberals. And its loosely organized branches consciously absorbed regional cultural influences. Even the language of class struggle was Southernized. Party publications drew the battle lines between the common people, Negro and white, and the Bourbons, who represented post-Reconstruction reaction, as well as the Wall Street bankers and monopoly capitalism. But after two trying years, Southern communists failed to achieve their primary goal, to attain a legal, respectable standing in regional and local politics. Moreover, despite all the internal reforms, party membership was less stable than it had ever been. To illustrate, although the Alabama Party reported only 34 dues-paying members in December 1937 in response to a friendly recruitment contest instigated by Texas communists, Birmingham organizers managed to sign up 366 new members in January 1938 alone. Such a remarkable increase can be attributed to the period's relaxed standards for enlistment. One needed only to sign a card to become a communist. The party's inability to overcome its insular existence was not just an Alabama problem. It was a national dilemma. By the close of 1937, national and international CP leaders had realized that the type of broad-based popular front led by communists in Spain or France could not succeed in the United States at least not in the near future. It was decided then to refashion the U.S. Popular Front into a more realistic, politically accommodating policy. The Democratic Front, as it was called, retained the pro-Roosevelt rhetoric, but departed from the Popular Front by accepting a furtive role in coalition politics. As one leading party theorist explained, we should support the progressive movement, not demanding the admittance of our party, not making this a condition for our support of the democratic forces, but showing by our activity that our party is a constructive force entitled to entrance in the progressive movement, thereby paving the way for entrance at a future time. Before 1938, Alabama had few liberal organizations or institutions in which communists could work effectively. Aside from creating movements that would attract sympathetic political figures, Southern communists believed a progressive agenda could be realized through the Democratic Party. Exuding a sense of optimism prefiguring Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns 50 years later, Southern Central Committee Representative John Ballum best expressed the view that blacks, farmers, workers, and the struggling middle class could seize control of the Democratic Party. 
it is entirely within the field of practical politics for the workers, farmers, and the city middle class, the common people of the South, to take possession of the machinery of the Democratic Party in the South and turn it into an agency for democracy and progress. Alabama Party leaders took Balaam's words to heart, even to the point of focusing more attention on Democratic candidates than Communist candidates. In the 1938 primary, Rob Hall challenged James Simpson for a Senate spot, and Joe Gelders, running as an independent Democrat, made a bid for state legislator. Though both were beaten handily, communists exhibited no remorse and instead celebrated the victories of Congressman Luther Patrick and Senator Lister Hill. Hall even applauded the election of Joe Starnes over Tom Heflin as a victory for the New Deal state. Within a matter of months, Starnes would serve on the Dyes Committee and accuse virtually every liberal, radical, or pro-labor organization of communist domination. The election of Alabama New Dealers in the House and Senate, noted one optimistic Birmingham correspondent for the Daily Worker, was proof that Southerners clamored for a progressive agenda. No matter what Southern working people wanted, the Democratic Front offered communists the only doorway into the world of Southern liberals, largely because the extent of their political isolation was more severe in the South compared with most of the U.S. The communist label still frightened Birmingham's most progressive citizens, some of whom identified with the party only in the privacy of voting booths. Joseph Gelders, the communist's sole entree into Alabama's liberal circles, was well aware of the present impasse and moved swiftly to strengthen his influence among Southern New Deal Democrats. Realizing that a Southern chapter of the NCDPP, an organization widely considered a communist front, was more of a liability than an asset, Gelders decided late in 1937 to replace it with something more Southern and less threatening. Instead of creating another civil liberties organization from scratch, Gelders sought to merge the Birmingham NCDPP with an established but dying organization based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, then called the Southern Committee for People's Rights. Founded in Atlanta in 1933 by a small group of left liberal intellectuals drawn to the Herndon case, the Southern League for People's Rights, as it was originally called, was created as a non-communist alternative to the ILD. Its founding members included journalist Bruce Crawford, a history graduate student named C. Van Woodward, and Olive Stone, a sometime patron of the SCU and central figure among Montgomery's independent Marxists. Stone was the organization's driving force, serving as its secretary and editing its newsletter single-handedly. When she moved to Chapel Hill in 1935 to pursue a Ph.D. in sociology, so went the organization whose name by then had been changed from League to Committee. At its height in 1935, the SCPR had grown to 1,500 dues-paying members based mainly in Virginia and North Carolina, but its membership began to dwindle after it fought efforts to dismiss University of North Carolina professor E.E. E. Erickson for dining with black communist James Ford. 
by 1937, all that remained were a few dedicated liberals and a handful of communists active at the university. When Gelders met with SCPR members late in 1937 and proposed merging the two organizations into a National Committee for People's Rights, few dissented. Those opposed to the idea either personally disliked Gelders or believed, correctly so, that he was a communist. Less than a month after the negotiations had been finalized, Gelders opened the NCPR's national headquarters in Birmingham. Gelders staffed the NCPR with educated, southern-born communists whose political affiliations were not widely known. To direct the Birmingham office, he hired Laurent France, an energetic young lawyer from Tennessee who would eventually become his son-in-law. Brought up in a reform-minded household, his father had actively promoted a single-tax colony in Tennessee, France became interested in Marxism during the 1930s while studying at the University of Tennessee. Searching for a vehicle to practice his politics as he pursued a degree in law, France joined the Socialist Party, but soon became disillusioned with the timidity of socialist leaders, including Norman Thomas, whom he considered a pacifist intellectual. Thus, when communists proposed a united front with Southern socialists late in 1934, France not only responded to the call but switched his allegiance to the CP. Shortly thereafter, he received clearance to join the CP and was appointed assistant editor of the Southern Worker in January 1937, for which he wrote numerous articles under the pen name Larry French. After six months with the Southern Worker, he joined the staff of the NCDPP and worked on the campaign to free Bessemer communist Bart Logan. One of the NCPR's first tasks was to reopen a four-year-old case involving Birmingham labor organizer John Catchings. Catchings had been convicted for allegedly dynamiting company property during the 1934 Republic Steel Strike. The party and the NCPR tried to build popular support for the case. Catchings was deemed Birmingham's Tom Mooney. But their efforts to free the mine mill organizer bore little fruit. Yet the campaign did produce The Ballad of John Catchings, a catchy little tune written by Joe and Esther Gelders, and in the process created a new folk hero for the Southern left. In 33, the Eagle came and brought the NRA. John Catchings said, Our time has come. We'll organize this very day. Those rich men's hearts are harder still than steel made in their mill. Republic would not be content to obey the laws of government. Come gather round me, brothers all. Together let us shout. If we must take that jailhouse down, we're going to get John Catchings out. Musical contributions notwithstanding, on the surface, the NCPR differed little from the old NCDPP. Even its board of directors remained largely unchanged, but the organization's focus shifted sharply, away from political prisoners to civil rights. In January 1938, Gelders and Birmingham NAACP Secretary W.E. Shortridge jointly dispatched a circular letter endorsing the Wagner-Van Nuys anti-lynching bill 
that, if passed, would have allowed federal authorities to prosecute police officers or state officials who, through negligence or inaction, indirectly conspired in a lynching. Two months later, the NCPR joined the NAACP and 300 black pastors to protest the appointment of an all-white staff to manage a newly created black housing project in Smithfield, an industrial suburb of Birmingham. The NCPR was not meant to replace the Communist Party. On the contrary, the CP continued to work openly, recruit members, and maintain a separate identity. Although the burden of work continued to fall on the shoulders of a few veterans, the party's paid membership had increased steadily, reaching 850 by May. In preparation for the CPUSA's 10th National Convention, Birmingham Communists hosted their first open regional conference, drawing 85 delegates from as far away as Oxford, Mississippi, to Atlanta, Georgia. Held in the Odd Fellows Hall a few days after May Day, the conference began and ended in a festive mood, complete with song, food, and brief tours of Jane's Beads bookstore. Leading the discussion with a report on the recent Alabama primaries, Rob Hall suggested that progressives approach democratic politics through people's legislative conferences and other forms of lobbying rather than run independent candidates. Consequently, most delegates agreed that any successful political strategy required empowerment through voter registration. By the end of the conference, full enfranchisement irrespective of race, and the abolition of the poll tax were issues foremost on the party's agenda. As if to emphasize the revolutionary implications of winning the franchise, a group of Birmingham communists inserted the new slogan into Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho, closing the conference in jubilant chorus, Black and white together, we'll win the vote, win the vote, win the vote. Black and white together, we'll win the vote going to build our promised land. The 10th National Convention, which opened in New York on May 26th, not only affirmed the decisions of the Birmingham Conference, but placed particular emphasis on the role of the black middle class in building a democratic South. The Alabama delegation, which included veterans Jane Speed, Rob Hall, Henry O. Mayfield, Hosea Hudson, and Hosea Hart, listened as black party spokesman James Ford proclaimed the South the center of Negro work. The NNC, noted Ford and several other speakers, exemplified the trend toward a progressive alliance of black middle class and religious organizations, trade unions, farmers' organizations, student groups, and other mass movements. The Negro Commission asked communists to join the church, the main mass organization in the black community, and encouraged black party members to become even more active in the NAACP. The speeches and resolutions of the 10th National Convention still placed great faith in a Southern liberal labor alliance, but the focus on returning to the black community added another dimension to party work. While black rank-and-file communists had never left their communities, the party had, until recently, subordinated struggles for racial justice 
so as not to jeopardize relations with Southern liberals. But black Alabama communists did not have an organization devoted primarily to black issues that they could call their own, especially after the IOD had been dismantled. Furthermore, neither the NNC nor the SNYC, Southern Negro Youth Conference, a federation of black youth groups founded by young communists in 1937, had established chapters in Alabama by mid-1938, and the NCPR, whose letterhead continued to list white radical intellectuals such as John Howard Lawson and Rockwell Kent, was still little more than a paper organization. Influencing established black organizations was not a viable option either. Most black communists who had joined the NAACP as instructed were growing increasingly disenchanted with its leadership. Black communists and former IOD organizers, who usually attended meetings dressed in overalls, were rarely taken seriously by their middle-class co-members. And when they did succeed in persuading branch officers to investigate incidents of police brutality, NAACP leaders proceeded timidly. One such case occurred in May 1938, after 15-year-old John Smith had been falsely convicted of raping an 8-year-old white girl. Immediately following the trial, as Smith was being escorted to jail, the girl's father, H. E. Colburn, appeared in the corridor outside the courtroom and fatally shot the black youth, while police passively looked on. When word of the killing reached Hosea Hudson, he asked the NAACP to pressure the district attorney into charging Colburn for murder. Under Hudson's leadership, a committee within the NAACP raised money and retained black Birmingham attorney Arthur Shores, but the charges against Colburn were dismissed nonetheless. As with several other local cases, NAACP leaders opted not to pursue the matter further. Consequently, Many individual communists left the NAACP disappointed. The NAACP didn't change much, not much. They didn't do anything. They still didn't want to rock the boat, make their good friends mad. The leadership was still trying to make deals. By late spring 1938, it became apparent that neither the NAACP nor the NCPR would be the vehicle for establishing the Democratic Front in Birmingham's black community. Joe Gelders had realized this months before both the regional and national conventions. As early as February, Gelders proposed a new organization that would focus all of its energies on what local communists had agreed was the linchpin of the Democratic Front in the South, the right to vote. Rob Hall strongly concurred and both men called upon seasoned radical Hosea Hudson to organize such a broad-based movement in Birmingham. Within a matter of days, two black ministers and several local black communists, including Henry O. Mayfield, Hazel Stanley, Cornelia Foreman, Mac Code, and Jimmy Hooper, met in the Negro Masonic Temple and founded the Right to Vote Club. The right to vote without financial requirements and irrespective of race was by no means new to the communists' program, but never before had the party launched a campaign 
that had as its primary goal the enfranchisement of black and poor white voters. Even during the popular front, when the party shifted to electoral politics, black organizers were either asked to distribute literature in support of Democratic candidates or leaflets explaining progressive legislation. But no effort was made before 1938 to systematically challenge the Board of Registrars. Indeed, before the 10th National Convention, one Southern Communist leader not only questioned the importance of winning the vote for blacks, but argued that most blacks in Southern cities already exercised the franchise. The Right to Vote Club prepared black adults for the rigors of voter registration by making procedural and legal information easily accessible to the community. The Ron France taught classes on the state and federal constitutions, and club leaders held workshops on voter registration procedures. In these free community workshops, participants were made aware of the various legal methods used by the state to limit the franchise. First, a two-year residency was required for participation in state elections, a one-year residency for county elections. Second, the applicant had to be able to read and write any passage of the Constitution, providing the applicant had been working most of the preceding 12 months. But if the applicant owned property worth at least $300, the literacy requirement could be waived. Finally, the applicant was required to pay back poll taxes. In addition to these requirements, African Americans faced an added assortment of legal and extra-legal hurdles. Most county boards required that black applicants have two white male sponsors vouch for them in a court of law before processing their application. More commonly, blacks were turned away for failing to answer irrelevant questions, such as who served on the president's cabinet or how many drops of water there were in the ocean. The intimidation one confronted at the registrar was overwhelming, even for a seasoned communist like Hosea Hudson. You'd be surprised how people felt. I know how I felt, and that's the way I know how them people felt. You just get nervous. Telling people to come out to meetings and to register to vote is one thing, but going down to the horse's mouth to register to vote is another. Although the Right to Vote Club opened its doors to blacks and whites of all classes, it was predominantly a black, working-class organization. A few prominent black businessmen and professionals in Birmingham in 1938 exercised, and jealously guarded, the franchise. Indeed, for some, the vote was more of a status symbol than a democratic right. While collecting data for Gunnar Myrtle's study of black life during the late 1930s, Ralph Bunch found that in Birmingham, it is not unusual for upper-class Negroes, business and professional men, to take the attitude that the great mass of Negroes, being uneducated and illiterate, are not yet ready to exercise the franchise. And one of his research assistants listened to a black Birmingham miner describe, with less erudition but greater poignancy, the role big niggers play in keeping the vote out of the hands of poor blacks. They go down and register and tell the white folks that they can control the rest of the niggers in town. They get a light handout, 
and that is all there is to it. Now they have been trying to get all the niggers in the mines to vote. If they do, it will be a different story. Thus, communist leaders of the Right to Vote Club were not surprised when some of their most vocal opponents turned out to be black, middle-class voters. Leading the charge was the Birmingham Negro Democratic Council, led by black conservative M.D.L. White. Formed in 1933 by blacks who had split from the Alabama Federation of Civic Leagues, the council had the backing of several white politicians who had intended to control the black vote by allowing select individuals to register. In a private meeting with Hudson, White invited the Right to Vote Club to join the council if Hudson reduced the club's membership to a select few. White told him, We only going to qualify those that you all will recommend, send down, or bring down. Your friends will qualify them. But don't send everybody down. Don't bring common niggers, and don't bring over 50 a year. Scoffing at White's offer, club members continued holding seminars, disseminating pamphlets, and discussing voting rights with ordinary citizens in the black community. After several months of preparation, Hudson and several other club members approached the Jefferson County Board of Registrars in the spring of 1939 and attempted to register. After all of the applicants were turned down, the group retained black attorney Arthur D. Shores to file a petition on their behalf with the Federal Circuit Court. Choosing the strongest applications in the group, Shores petitioned on behalf of Hudson and five black school teachers, the latter risking immediate dismissal from the Board of Education for their involvement in the suit but the presiding judge refused to issue a writ of mandamus requiring the Board of Registrars to explain why the six petitioners were turned down. Nevertheless, the Jefferson County Board of Registrars subsequently decided to register the petitioners anyway so as to avoid a legal precedent. As a result of publicity surrounding the case, the Right to Vote Club began to attract several prominent blacks in 1939, including Birmingham World Editor Emory O. Jackson and UMWA organizer Hartford Knight. More significantly, the Board of Registrar's practice of registering petitioners in order to avoid a court battle eventually led to an increase in black registered voters. In 1938, Jefferson County had only 712 registered black voters. Two years later, this figure had ballooned to approximately 3,000. But registration was only half the battle, since most blacks still could not pay the required back poll tax, which could total $36, or two months' wages, for many unskilled or domestic workers. In the end, the Right to Vote Club fell short of becoming a mass organization, and without the complete support of the NAACP and organized labor, it lacked the strength needed to bring about a full-scale suffrage and anti-poll tax campaign. Weakened by internal squabbles and petty jealousies, the club finally collapsed under its own weight in 1940. In an address praising President Roosevelt's 1938 report of the NEC on economic conditions in the South, 
Earl Browder contended that the participation of an awakening Southern intellectual group was essential to solving the region's pressing problems. Browder's words set the tone for the Democratic front. The hope for a new South lay not exclusively with the working class or even the black masses, but with the emerging group of Southern liberals. By 1938, this interpretation was not entirely empty rhetoric, for New Dealers and civil liberties advocates had begun to rise from Southern intellectual circles, perhaps more vocal and more determined than ever. The work of the SPC, Southern Policy Center, a think tank composed of prominent intellectuals, had come into its own during the 1930s. Established mainly to tackle the South's economic dilemmas, the SPC encouraged the NEC's study of the region's political economy. The activity of the Chapel Hill-based SCPR not only attracted several eminent names, but belied the notion that Southern liberals habitually backed away from direct confrontation. Of course, the region's liberal activist intellectuals were still miles to the right of Southern communists, but the gap was narrowing ever so slightly in the late 1930s. The idea for a conference of Southern liberals and labor leaders had been brewing in Joe Gelders' mind for some time, even before the appearance of the NEC report. Early in 1938, following extended preliminary discussions with State CP Secretary Rob Hall, Gelders asked Lucy Randolph Mason, the CIO's Southern Regional Public Relations representative, to help organize a civil liberties conference in the South. Meanwhile, Gelders discussed his plans with Eleanor Roosevelt, whom he had met through two International Ladies Garment Workers Union organizers from Tupelo, Mississippi, and in June he was granted a private hearing by Franklin Roosevelt. The president liked the idea, but asked Gelders to broaden the scope of the conference to include other matters, especially voting rights issues such as the poll tax and other exclusionary practices. Returning to Birmingham, Gelders organized two meetings in July to discuss the region's political and economic problems. At the second meeting on July 21st, the group drafted a statement of purpose, proposed a broad conference on the economic conditions in the South, and invited the SPC and other liberal groups who had been working independently toward the same goal. On September 6th, enthused by the recent release of the NEC report on the South, 100 representatives from seven southern states returned to Birmingham to discuss the report, finalize plans for a conference in November, and give themselves a name. This unique gathering of Southern intellectuals, activists, and labor leaders called themselves the Southern Conference for Human Welfare, SCHW. The SCHW's debut was a rousing success. Over 1,200 delegates filled Birmingham's Municipal Auditorium on November 20th for the four-day meeting. Some of the South's most distinguished liberals assumed permanent offices within the SCHW, including UNC President Frank Graham, Herman C. Nixon, Clark Foreman, and Judge Louise O. Charlton. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black was also in attendance to receive the conference's first Thomas Jefferson Award for Distinguished Service. 
In the course of four full days of debates, speeches, and panel discussions, delegates addressed, among other things, issues raised by the NEC report, passed resolutions opposing regional wage and freight differentials, endorsed the FSA, and strongly supported Senator Robert LaFollette's investigations into civil liberties violations. The conference even advocated appropriating federal funds for housing, slum clearance, and parks and recreation, a demand that had been on the Birmingham Communist Party's agenda for several years. When the resolution on Scottsboro declared in no uncertain terms that the case had been an outgrowth of social conditions in the South, it must have brought a smile to the faces of communists in attendance. Conference organizers tried to translate the SCHW's message of justice and equality into action by holding non-segregated meetings. The first day of mixed sessions alarmed quite a few delegates, but the meetings were held without incident. When proceedings resumed the next day, City Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor and a small contingent of police officers showed up to enforce Birmingham's segregation ordinance. Rather than defy the order and use their collective strength and eminence to challenge one facet of Jim Crow, delegates complied, choosing instead to pass a resolution condemning the city's segregation laws. As the more radically inclined reluctantly abided by the law, a disgusted Eleanor Roosevelt defiantly placed her chair in the aisle, dividing black from white. In public, the party praised the SCHW. Paul Crouch, then editor of the New South, described the four-day affair as the beginning of a road to a better, happier, more prosperous South, a new South. But before their own close-knit circles, Southern communists offered less adulation and more critical commentary. Though otherwise enthusiastic about the SCHW's future, Rob Hall felt the delegates offered too few effective solutions for dealing with rural poverty and, in line with the Democratic Front, expressed displeasure with the conference's focus on labor to the detriment of the Southern middle class. Furthermore, Hall admonished the white delegates for their paternalism toward blacks, pointing out that Southern progressives who offered to do for the Negro, failed to see the Negro people as a force which could contribute greatly, in its own right, to the solution of these joint problems. Such an attitude was not only inexcusable, Hall argued, but the SCHW's success depended upon the complete inclusion of blacks as active participants and leaders. In a review of James Ford's the Negro and the Democratic Front, published in the New South, Hall used Ford's life to show Southern liberals that blacks have more to offer than entertainment and muscle. As a native Southerner, reared in circumstances very similar to your own, I know with what doubts you approach this question. It is difficult for you, perhaps, to conceive of learning the solution of a great historic problem from the words of a former Negro steelworker of Pratt City. The Communists' strongest criticisms of the conference were reserved for closed meetings and were never made public. 
most prominent on their private list of grievances was the delegates' unwillingness to challenge Birmingham's segregation laws. Hours after the SEHW's first run-in with police, local communists held a special meeting to discuss the day's events. Nearly everyone agreed that the circumstances offered a unique opportunity to mount a successful challenge to segregation. With utmost caution, Gelders set out to persuade influential delegates to defy the laws, but few were willing to even entertain the idea, let alone join the fight. As could be expected, the SCHW faced charges of communist domination from the outset. Its detractors probably would have cried communism no matter when the conference came into being, but such changes carried considerable weight late in 1938, the year Congressman Martin Dyes launched the Special Committee on Un-American Activities. It marked the beginning of an era sometimes called the Little Red Scare. That the SCHW had been created in the midst of premature McCarthyism was bad timing at best, for practically all opponents appropriated anti-communist rhetoric to articulate a variety of grievances. During the Dyes Committee hearings, for example, committee member J. Parnell Thomas, a New Jersey Democrat, linked a number of alleged radical government officials to the SCHW in an effort to prove that the New Deal is working along hand-in-glove with the Communist Party. His co-committee members also claimed that the CPUSA funneled cash to the SEHW by way of Rob Hall and Joe Gelders. Anti-New Dealers were not the only ones playing political football with the SEHW's reputation. Some of the strongest accusations came from inside the Southern Conference, from the other end of the ideological spectrum. STFU activists Howard Kester and H.L. Mitchell made sweeping claims that communists controlled the conference, and socialist Frank McAllister called for the expulsion of CP members from the SCHW ranks. We were trying to do things that were absolutely fundamental, SCHW activist Virginia Durr recalled, right on the lowest level of political and economic democracy. And these socialists and Trotskyites did nothing in the world but red bait. Most Southern opponents, however, were much more concerned with black than red. Unlike the socialists, racist critics cared little for naming names or proving direct political connections, choosing instead to base their accusations of communist subterfuge solely on an individual stand vis-à-vis the color line. Indeed, most letters of protest from Birmingham residents judged the SCHW on the basis of a single event, its resolution condemning the city's segregation ordinance. Shortly after the conference closed, City Commissioner Jimmy Jones received dozens of letters praising him and Bull Connor for their principled stand against the Reds, as well as numerous requests for thorough inquiry into communist activity. Though Jones was himself a conference participant, he nonetheless requested a Dyes Committee investigation of the SCHW. Alabama industrialists launched the most sustained attack against the Southern Conference. 
I am one of the greatest believers of white supremacy, explained Birmingham mining magnate Charles de Bartolieben in a letter to SCHW chairman Frank Graham. And as such, he would never tolerate an organization whose members mingle and associate with Negroes. Like most other Birmingham capitalists engaged in a bitter struggle with the CIO, de Bartolieben had hoped Southern liberals would come to their senses and abandon the Southern Conference once and for all. Their most influential and sophisticated mouthpiece was Alabama, the news magazine of the Deep South, a slick, weekly publication sponsored by the Association of Southern Industries. Ostensibly a popular magazine of conservative opinion, Alabama was founded as a foil against the CIO and Southern New Dealers, the SCHW representing the worst of both tendencies. Joe Gelder's Southern Conference on How to Abolish White Supremacy in the South was just a communist front, the editors announced, replete with carpetbaggers and self-appointed social uplifters of the left wing with social equality as their number one objective. Conservative opposition to the SCHW, combined with the activities of the Dyes Committee, facilitated a resurgence of white supremacist organizations in Alabama. Patterned largely after the White Legion, most of these organizations were preoccupied with communism and promoted their cause in highly charged patriotic language. Early in 1939, a group of Montgomery businessmen and attorneys formed the Alabama Council of Accepted Americans to fight communism and other foreign ideologies. Though white supremacy was one of its cardinal principles, the council gave assurances that no fight would be made on the Negroes. At about the same time, the AWDC, founded by Mabel Jones West in 1928, was revitalized by the new political climate. Describing the Southern Conference as an affront to white womanhood and an insidious attempt to destroy white supremacy, West and the AWDC organized an America for Americans counter-rally in Birmingham shortly after the SCHW's first meeting. While upholding the Communists' right to participate, Frank Graham defended the SCHW from charges of red control, identifying only six party members among the gathering of 1,200. But Graham's findings eased few minds. Several prominent figures, including Alabama politicians Lister Hill, John Bankhead, and Luther Patrick, bolted the Southern Conference for fear of being associated with communists. Those who remained in the organization while trying to be good civil libertarians, grew increasingly hostile to known communists active in the Southern Conference. When Rob Hall offered to purchase 200 copies of the SCHW proceedings early in 1939, Judge Louise Charlton refused at first to fill the order, arguing that communists should not have access to SCHW material. But because the proceedings were available to the general public, Judge Charlton could not justifiably turn down Hall's request. The conservative political climate was especially damaging to Alabama's nascent industrial labor movement. 
By mid-1939, CIO leaders found themselves in a position not unlike that of the SCHW, caught in a bramble of accusations planted by Martin Dyes and friends. The Dyes investigation marked the beginning of a full-scale assault on organized labor. Between 1939 and 1941 alone, nearly 50 anti-union bills were introduced into Congress. Leading the charge in Birmingham was Alabama Congressman and Dyes committee member Joe Starnes, who had made sweeping claims that communists controlled the state CIO Industrial Council. Outraged by Starnes' indictment, Alabama CIO News Digest editor E.T. O'Connell dismissed the charges as a smokescreen behind which to fight honest, God-fearing people who have cast their lot with labor organizations. He agreed with Starnes, however, that communists have no place in the labor movement and pointed to several clauses and resolutions denying membership to CP members. If communists were active in CIO unions, O'Connell declared, the blame must be played on management, not labor. There is nothing in the Code of Employers, so far as we know, denying employment to communists, such as there is in the constitutions of CIO affiliates. So if there are employers here or elsewhere who know of communist members of the CIO, it is their duty first to discharge them as employees. If they have any proof that will hold water, they can be assured the CIO affiliates will boot out the communists. Most Birmingham labor leaders joined O'Connell in supporting the anti-communist tenants of the Dyes Committee, so long as the CIO did not fall victim to scapegoating. This posture was not new. The same argument had been used in opposition to the state anti-sedition bill in 1935. State CIO President William Mitch, no doubt cognizant of communist organizers in Mine Mill and SWOC, claimed repeatedly that the CIO was free of CP members. In defense of his own union, the UMWA, Mitch proudly pointed to Article 14, Section 2 of its 1938 Constitution, excluding Communist Party, KKK, and IWW members. Birmingham CIO Director Noel R. Beto, who had hired known communists as SWOC organizers, was especially vehement in his response to the Dyes Committee's allegations. The communists, he explained in an open letter to Joe Starnes, were well-educated, smooth talkers, well-fed and well-clothed, who have been sent into a district where the field is fertile for the growth and development of the poisonous seeds of their un-American, undemocratic theories. The CIO had no people like that, Beto claimed, only poor, semi-literate black and white workers incapable of grasping the principles of Bolshevism. In a letter to the Birmingham Post, Beto not only denied communist influence in both the CIO and the SCHW, but went to great extremes to prove labor's undying support for Southern traditions. Certainly, labor is not in favor of communism. The only equality labor is seeking in the South is the equality of wages and working conditions. The Negro worker certainly is not seeking any social equality. The Little Red Scare had taken its toll by the middle of 1939, forcing liberals and labor into temporary retreat 
and ruining the party's hopes for a Southern Democratic front. As CIO and SCHW leaders geared up for their own internal investigations and expulsions, an unexpected event in Europe hastened their actions. In August 1939, the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact with fascist Germany that cleared the way for the Nazi invasion of Poland and simultaneously enabled Russia to invade Finland. After an initial period of disbelief, two confusing months passed before the Comintern announced a substantive change in the party line. The old, anti-fascist slogans were dropped as the Central Committee launched a new campaign to keep America out of the imperialist war. The era of the Democratic Front had come to an inauspicious end. The widespread disillusionment within national communist circles following the Nazi-Soviet pact is a familiar story and need not be retold here. In Alabama, however, the events after August 1939 followed a somewhat unique pattern. The pact just did not have much effect on a cadre primarily black and poor. Most Birmingham communists were more concerned with CIO work than foreign policy issues, and in the midst of growing sentiment to expel radicals from the labor movement, party members simply had more pressing problems to contend with. Even the black middle class refrained from criticizing local communists for their support of the pact. On the other hand, the Nazi-Soviet pact was acid to the already deteriorating relations between communists and liberals, especially within the SCHW, where heightened suspicions gave way to bitter conflicts. For his rather mild defense of the Soviet Union's actions, Joe Gelders was accused of being a communist, prompting several SEHW members to call for his immediate expulsion. Gelders denied the allegations, claiming only a perfunctory knowledge of Marxism and a soft spot in his heart for any defender of civil liberties. So adamant were his denials that during the 1940 campaign for city commission, Gelders threatened to sue candidate W.B. Houseel for calling him a communist. Lying about his party affiliation was undoubtedly a painful experience for a man who had desired to be an open communist from the moment he joined. But Gelders's vilification within the Southern Conference, the movement he had helped bring into existence, was far more devastating particularly since the attacks had more to do with foreign policy than with the SCHW's immediate goals. Despite efforts to keep the controversy a private matter, conflict over Soviet actions threatened to split the SCHW in half during its second meeting in Chattanooga, Tennessee in 1940. For a brief but significant moment, the conference's theme of democracy in the South took a back seat to events in Russia and Northern Europe. When a group of interventionists led by journalist William T. Couch proposed a resolution condemning the Soviet Union's invasion of Finland, Gelders and a number of other communists and liberal isolationists opposed it, setting in motion an unwanted debate on the floor. But Gelders's protestations were to no avail. The resolution was adopted. Though the resolution made no impact on American or European politics and the SCHW as a whole still opposed U.S. intervention, the controversy resulted in a few more resignations, increased suspicions, and an unavoidable political split 
within the Southern Conference. From a national and international perspective, the Nazi-Soviet pact and Russia's invasion of Finland represented the Democratic Front's final epitaph. U.S. communists abandoned most of their hard-earned liberal alliances, prepared new literature assailing Wall Street warmongers, and made plans for the re-Bolshevization of the party. In Alabama, on the other hand, there were no liberal alliances to drop since a potent, racist strain of anti-communism precluded any open relations between Southern liberals and communists. In Alabama, Joe Gelders was the Democratic Front, and he went no further than defending Soviet foreign policy. He did not give up on the Southern Conference, despite the animosity and name-calling, nor did he or his comrades abandon the party's Southern program of expanding the franchise, fighting for black civil rights, and supporting the CIO. The SCHW did not give up on Gelders either. In 1939, he was elected executive secretary of its Civil Rights Committee, through which he spearheaded a mass anti-poll tax campaign. While developing the anti-poll tax bill, H.R. 7534, arranging for its introduction by Congressman Lee Geyer and building a case to challenge the tax's constitutionality, Gelders proceeded with unusual dedication, sometimes without pay. In 1941, the SEHW owed Gelders $1,470 in back salary. Moreover, throughout the 1940s, communists held several important posts in the Alabama chapter of the SEHW, their presence not so much influencing Alabama liberal opinion as constituting a critical section of it. The potential for great achievement was squandered, as Rob Hall had said, but the squandering had taken place long before common turn directives invaded local politics. Although the South had made tremendous progress toward reducing outright anti-labor and anti-radical repression, the power of anti-communism in its uniquely Southern form and the residual racism accompanying it created an invisible barrier between many like-minded individuals. When the Nazi-Soviet pact entered Southern liberal politics, the somewhat awkward defense, thrown up by Joe Gelders and friends, just made the barrier more formidable. By 1940, the Central Committee announced a change. Hoping to recapture the third-period spirit without completely falling back into sectarianism, communist leaders looked to re-Bolshevize the party from top to bottom. A return to the old radicalism, anchored by a strong anti-war platform, was intended to rebuild the party's tottering base of support. Alabama CP leadership tried to follow suit. In 1940, Rob Hall criticized the SCHW for not adopting an anti-war stance, placed labor at the center of the radical movement once again, and credited the black industrial proletariat for the heightened militancy of Southern civil rights struggles. But the experiment in popular front politics did not die so easily. Beginning about 1939 to 40, a new wave of radicals entered the Alabama CP, resumed the coalition-style politics of their predecessors, and constructed an interracial movement of young people 
who shared the subversive belief that freedom, equality, and opportunity are the inherent rights of all Americans, irrespective of race, class, or sex. Part 3. Back to the Trenches, 1939-1941 Threatened and attacked, fingerprinted and mugged, jailed and held incommunicado, that is the story of three young Southerners, and potentially of all those Southerners who are struggling against mob rule and lynch law in Dixie. Marge Gelder's Circular Letter, August 23, 1940 In this momentous period of world history, there is a binding solidarity existing between the youth of the South and all democracy-loving people. We have always been opposed to fascism in whatever form it occurs. Hitlerism and its Aryan theories of racial superiority gives comfort and courage to KKKism everywhere. Esther Cooper, quoted in Daily Worker, September 23, 1941. 11. The March of Southern Youth Side by side we'll wage our fight, equality for black and white, on the way, every day, making way for socialism. We'll build a stronger party. Hooray! Hooray! In Dixieland, we'll take our stand to fight like hell for our demands. Hooray! Hooray! To make a people's Dixie. Dixie. Birmingham CP Song, 1938. While the Nazi-Soviet pact crushed most U.S. communists' hopes, for a legitimate place in American politics, their comrades in Alabama emerged with renewed strength. The Democratic Front, as defined by the Central Committee, never had a chance in a region where liberals were themselves isolated, ridiculed, and red-baited, and the dream of building a left-wing bloc in the Democratic Party was pure folly in the Solid South. The change wedded local leaders to working people once again they now sought to reclaim the traditions upon which the Birmingham CP had been built almost a decade earlier. And they sought to create new ones. By discarding popular front liberalism for something more radical, the party attracted a new cadre of activists who did more than just populate its dwindling ranks. This eclectic gathering of independent radicals, rebellious youth, Christian socialists, black nationalists, and budding feminists shaped Birmingham party politics and fashioned a new culture of opposition derived from militant interracialism, socialist values, and democratic principles. Of course, on paper at least, Birmingham party leaders towed the new line handed down by the Central Committee. Turning against their New Deal allies, they resurrected plans for a farmer labor party placed their own candidates on the 1940 ballot, and advocated a policy of international peace and domestic reform. But Joe Gelders, Rob Hall, and the younger cadre developed their own agenda for Birmingham's reconstituted radical movement. One of their first tasks was to replace the liberal news magazine, New South, with something more appropriate. Late in 1939, Joe Gelders launched a new radical tabloid that appealed directly to Southern industrial workers and farmers. 
Whereas communists across the country turned out convoluted theoretical tracts on Leninism, the crisis of capitalism, and the objective reasons for opposing war, Gelders wanted to reach a broad, working-class readership without mentioning communism. After securing financial assistance from left-wing philanthropist Dan Gilmore, Gelders assembled an able editorial staff consisting of George Londa, a communist from Newark, New Jersey, who had worked for the Birmingham Age-Herald and the Chattanooga News, Quentin P. Gore, a former labor organizer and experienced newspaper man who had worked for the Montgomery Advertiser, Birmingham Age-Herald, and Chattanooga News, and Alabama-born Sam Hall, a former editor for the Aniston Star and one of the party's recent recruits. Staffed by three left-leaning veteran journalists and a handful of rank-and-file communists responsible for circulation, the first issue of the Birmingham Southern News Almanac appeared on January 25, 1940. The Southern News Almanac never revealed its relationship to the CP. Devoting most of its columns to the Southern labor movement, anti-war activity, civil rights issues, and police brutality in the Birmingham area. In the spirit of the old Southern worker, it revived workers' correspondence, though its editors were not nearly as selective or sectarian with what they chose to print. One early issue even published a lengthy letter by a Georgia woman praising the Klan for protecting women in her community from domestic violence. Moreover, Gelders's new tabloid sharply contravened national party dictates and carried religious columns promoting a southern brand of the social gospel. Two communist ministers, the Reverend Fred E. Maxey from Leeds, Alabama, and Georgia-born preacher Don West, contributed regular columns to the Southern News Almanac that explained war, racism, poverty, and capitalism in biblical terms. Calling his column The Awakening Church, Don West hoped other religious institutions would follow his lead and take a more activist stance. The church must become a fearless prophetic voice with the audacity to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the building of the kingdom of heaven on this earth and now. Fred Maxey's Pulpit in Print frequently echoed West's charges that the church had failed to live up to its historic role as advocate for the poor. Southern ministers, Maxey wrote, have held out the promises of golden streets and large mansions in heaven as a reward for poverty and wretchedness down here. Thus, through the pages of the Southern News Almanac, Maxey and West attempted to fuse Christianity and Marxism. In keeping with the writings and teachings of theologians Reinhold Niebuhr, Claude Williams, and several other proponents of the social gospel, Maxey and West regarded Jesus' mission as inherently radical. The teachings of Christ constituted a revolutionary text for social change, a blueprint for transforming earth into heaven. But to realize God's will required action. Oppressors who draw their sustenance from the masses have had to be pulled down, and as the autocrats have come tumbling down, the people rose. While the radical implications of their sermons undoubtedly frightened many people, their attempts to articulate the party's anti-war position 
was sometimes incongruous with the overall message, leaving many readers suspicious. In one of West's columns, he condemned Britain for volunteering to send troops to Finland, but never once mentioned the USSR's presence there. Maxey went so far as to reject any aid to the Finnish people. We need not try to soothe our conscience by shedding tears over the starving in Europe. Neither can we make amends to man or God by sending money to feed the hungry over there, as worthy as this cause may be. Although many readers agreed with the basic contention that war in Europe would not solve America's social ills, such statements doubtlessly undermined Maxey's and West's credibility. Though still hindered by Soviet foreign policy and besieged by the Dyes Committee, the Birmingham CP made considerable progress in the year following the Nazi-Soviet pact. In the 1940 presidential election, for example, Earl Browder and James Ford polled an impressive 509 votes in Alabama. Socialist Norman Thomas received only 100 votes. The party's resurgence, however, cannot really be measured numerically. Rather, the broader communist-led radical movement experienced a sudden, definite surge of energy. Through two notable organizations, the LYS and SNYC, an idealistic group of black and white, largely well-educated and young people, injected new life into the radical movement. Indeed, SNYC and the LYS, neither of which maintained an open relationship with the party, literally became the radical movement in Birmingham. The LYS, League of Young Southerners, was an outgrowth of the Council of Young Southerners an auxiliary of the SCHW founded in December 1938. Under the leadership of Birmingham attorney Helen Fuller and Arkansas activist Howard Lee, the council was conceived as an interracial, region-wide organization that would develop its own youth-oriented New Deal agenda under the SCHW's tutelage. Its original program, a far cry from its future radicalism, proposed a federal youth administration combining the National Youth Administration and the CCC, vocational programs for urban and rural youth, and long-term, low-interest federal loans for young Southern farmers. Only two communists, Howard Lee of Arkansas and Ed Strong of Virginia, also the only black, served on the five-member executive board and both kept their political affiliations to themselves. Nevertheless, the growing anti-communist sentiment within the SCHW spilled into CYS affairs. In June 1939, Frank Graham made several queries into the communists' role in the CYS, to which Howard Lee vehemently denied any CP connection whatsoever. William McKee, himself very much opposed to communism, seconded Lee's response, calling the CYS New Deal through and through. Though several prominent SCHW members expressed reservations about Lee's politics, the CYS generally remained impervious to the red-baiting that had threatened its parent organization, in part because it maintained a separate, autonomous existence. The Southern Conference acted as sponsor on paper, but the CYS raised its own funds and opened its own national office in Nashville during the summer of 1939. 
free to set its own agenda without SEHW interference, the CYS drifted further to the left. By the end of the year, Howard Lee resigned his post as executive secretary to devote more time to the SEHW, leaving the reins to Malcolm Cotton Dobbs, a communist minister who had joined the staff in early August. Nicknamed Tex for his native state, the 23-year-old activist had already earned a Bachelor of Divinity degree from St. Lawrence University, studied at Union Theological Seminary, and worked for the student Christian movement. About six months after Dobbs' appointment, CYS headquarters were moved from Nashville to Birmingham. The organization's name was changed from Council to League of Young Southerners, and it affiliated with the American Youth Congress. These changes reflect a deliberate shift in strategy and an infusion of new leadership, both of which point to the growing influence of the CP. Without the broad support needed to turn the council into a region-wide interracial umbrella movement, the Young Southerners diverged from its parent organization and developed a more activist-oriented, community-based program. Once in Birmingham, the LYS directed most of its energies to anti-poll tax organizing, police brutality cases, civil liberties violations, and educational and cultural work. The League's Birmingham membership, for the most part newly recruited Southern white communists, shared much in common with Southern liberals but believed direct action should take precedence over mere discussion. One of the League's early local leaders, an energetic Birmingham woman who became Malcolm Dobbs's bride in 1940, epitomized this new spirit of activism. A communist since her days at Phillips High School, where she had been recruited by Marge Gelders, Pauline Dobbs continued her studies at Birmingham Southern College while she worked for the LYS and, much later, for the Alabama Committee for Human Welfare. Together, Tex and Polly Dobbs maintained high visibility as civil rights and labor activists throughout the 1940s. Another young white couple active in LYS affairs were Ordway and Mary Southard. The New York-born Ordway, the elder of the two, concerned himself mainly with party work, while Mary, a native of Alabama, devoted most of her time to youth activities in 1940-41, to working for the LYS and serving as regional YCL director. Sidney Rittenberg, who was only 19, when he took over Malcolm Dobbs's position as LYS Executive Secretary in 1941, joined the Communist Party as a student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. The offspring of a prominent Southern Jewish family, Rittenberg was an intellectual at heart, having become a Marxist by way of an academic course in Hegel's philosophy. Not surprisingly, a leading light among young Birmingham radicals was a product of the Gelders' household. Born in 1922, Marge Gelders was already a veteran of the left by the time the LYS moved to Birmingham in 1940. She joined the YCL in 1935 during her family's brief residence in New York. A brilliant student at Phillips High School in Birmingham, she graduated in 1938 and, at 16, continued her intellectual and political endeavors at Radcliffe College in Massachusetts. During her two-year stay, she worked with the League of Women Voters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and organized a delegation of Southern youth to attend the American Youth Congress in Wisconsin. 
Returning to Birmingham in 1940, she became active in the LYS and the SEHW, and in 1941 married another young communist, civil rights lawyer Laurent France. The League settled into Birmingham with high hopes, most of which were never realized. A radical movement raised in an increasingly repressive atmosphere, it never developed into a mass movement drawing at most a couple dozen dedicated members. Nor did it attract the kind of interracial following it had hoped for at its founding meeting in 1938. Instead, the LYS accepted a supportive role, acting in concert with the party and with SNYC, another radical youth organization that, just a few months earlier, had established headquarters in Birmingham. SNYC's origins can be traced back to the National Negro Congress in 1936. Its primary progenitors were NNC National Youth Chairman Ed Strong and James Ashford, a noted black YCL organizer in Harlem. While the Arkansas-born Ashford persuaded the Youth Council to focus on the South, much of the early planning can be credited to Strong. A communist since the early 1930s, Strong was the son of a Baptist minister born in Texarkana, Texas, and raised in Flint, Michigan. He attended the YMCA College in Chicago and became a youth leader at Mount Olive Baptist Church, intending all along to follow in his father's footsteps. But by the time he became active in the left-wing First International Negro Youth Conference in Chicago in 1933, he had drifted toward the Communist Party and abandoned his quest to become a man of the cloth. Instead, he pursued a graduate degree in political science at Howard University and devoted his life to activism. Strong's plan for a Southern Conference of Black Youth, scheduled to take place in November 1936, were postponed when he had to leave for Geneva that summer to attend the World Youth Congress. The task of organizing such a conference was then passed to James E. Jackson, Jr., a young pharmacy student pursuing an M.S. degree at Howard University. A native of Richmond, Virginia, born in 1914 into a cultured family in comfortable circumstances, Jackson had become a rebel at a very young age. He fought racism and segregation in the Boy Scouts, joined the Communist Party at 16, and as a student, organized Virginia Union University's first Marxist club. With the help of Detroit labor organizer Christopher Columbus Alston, a dynamic black auto worker barely in his 20s, Jackson spent the summer planning the first Southern Negro Youth Congress. Meanwhile, Henry Winston, a 25-year-old black Mississippi-born communist who had been in the YCL since 1930, was sent on a Southern speaking tour in order to publicize the coming conference. By the time Winston headed south, SNYC organizers had decided to hold the inaugural two-day conference in Richmond, Virginia, on February 13th through 14th, 1937, to coincide with Frederick Douglass's birthday. Over 500 delegates representing 13 states and an array of social, political, civic, religious and fraternal organizations attended the Richmond meeting. Following two days of speeches and forums covering a range of issues, including voting rights, recreation, education, health, and fascism, the gathering elected to become a permanent organization 
and chose Richmond as its national headquarters. Though several communists were elected to key positions in SNYC, its advisory committee consisted of distinguished individuals in the fields of politics and education, including Mary McLeod Bethune, Charlotte Hawkins Brown, sociologist Charles Johnson, and Atlanta University President Rufus Clement. The delegates who volunteered to remain in Richmond to set up an office did not sit idle. Under the leadership of James Jackson and Chris Alston, SNYC activists organized some 5,000 tobacco workers under the auspices of the Tobacco Stimmers and Laborers Industrial Union. A successful SNYC-led sit-down strike in Richmond's British American Tobacco Company resulted in wage increases ranging from 20 to 33 percent. SNYC's second annual conference in Chattanooga the following year attracted nearly 400 delegates, including international representatives from Ethiopia, India, and China. Once again, the forum topics varied, ranging from marriage and home life to the CIO organizing drive, but the basic theme was the right to citizenship. Under the slogan, Freedom, Equality, Opportunity, the conference focused on disfranchisement, promised to wage an anti-poll tax campaign, and supported interracial unity under the banner of the Democratic Front. Before the Chattanooga meeting came to a close, delegates Hosea Hudson, Henry O. Mayfield, and Birmingham World Managing Editor H.D. Koch persuaded the conferees to meet in Birmingham the following year. The decision to hold SNYC's 1939 conference in the Magic City could not have been more timely. By the time SNYC Executive Secretary Ed Strong arrived in Birmingham to set up temporary headquarters, the Right to Vote Club was well underway, the CIO in Jefferson County had initiated voter registration drives, and the SCHW had just held its inaugural meeting. Strong not only participated in the SCHW conference, but helped launch the CYS in December 1938. He was especially buoyed by the local support he received for SNYC's third annual conference, scheduled for the end of April. Organized labor, traditional black leadership, youth, and adults alike greeted SNYC with open arms and offered crucial support. Several prominent black leaders served on the Arrangements Committee, including NAACP Secretary Charles McPherson, businessman A.G. Gaston, Bishop B.G. Shaw, Oscar Adams, and conservative editor Robert Durr. The only communist other than strong to appear on the committee's letterhead was veteran Birmingham activist Cornelia Foreman. The Birmingham meeting was the largest to date, attracting 650 delegates from across the region, most of whom represented the host state. Delegations from local high schools and Alabama's black colleges were joined by rural and working-class youth, labor organizers, teachers, social workers, and sympathetic whites. The common themes of citizenship and equal opportunity were repeated throughout the proceedings, but special emphasis was placed on black culture. The first day began with four Birmingham choral groups performing Songs of the Negro People, the traditional spirituals and work songs, and arrangements of contemporary Negro composers. 
The works of gifted black visual artists were displayed in an SNYC-sponsored art exhibit. The Dillard University Players Guild performed three one-act plays by black playwright Randolph Edmonds. And to top it all off, philosopher and literary critic Elaine Locke addressed the gathering on the importance of cultural heritage. Local delegates and leaders came away from the conference feeling as Ed Strong did when he first arrived in Birmingham, that the city was ripe for a revolution of black youth. In the eyes of most Youth Congress leaders, Birmingham was indeed, as one delegate put it, the cradle of a reviving faith in the Negro people's destiny in the South. And given the dearth of existing black youth organizations in Alabama, SNYC must have been looked upon as a savior. Between 1938 and 1939, the only active NAACP youth councils could be found at Talladega College and in Mobile, and these chapters were surprisingly small. Before SNYC, many young blacks turned to communist-led organizations such as the Right to Vote Club or the Workers' Alliance. As sociologist Charles S. Johnson noted in his study of segregation patterns in Birmingham in the late 1930s, young blacks seemed prone to utilize the willingness of the radical white groups who are there to lend aid in the fight for equal rights. Thus, few were surprised when SNYC officers moved their headquarters to Birmingham, a decision reinforced by newly elected national leaders. Delegates elected Herman Long, a native of Birmingham and teacher at Miles Memorial College, to serve as chairman. Ed Strong, who now made Birmingham his permanent residence, was re-elected executive secretary, and Thelma Dale was the top choice for vice chairperson. Although Dale was then studying sociology at Howard University, her uncle was one of Alabama's leading educators, Tuskegee Institute President Frederick D. Patterson. The Youth Congress set up its Birmingham office only a few months before the LYS arrived from Nashville. That both SNYC and the LYS established headquarters in Birmingham almost simultaneously was not entirely coincidence. Southern Party leaders strongly encouraged the move. In the aftermath of the Nazi-Soviet pact and the collapse of the Democratic Front, Birmingham seemed to be the party's last hope in the South, at least from the purview of 1940. It was the one southern city that had everything, a hardy industrial labor movement, a potential black civil rights movement, and a small but increasingly radical intelligentsia. At the heart of all three potential sources of opposition were young people. Most SNYC and LYS activists shared a common democratic socialist vision, espoused a militant interracialism, and pledged full support for the CIO organizing campaign and its civil rights agenda. And those who quietly maintained Communist Party membership shared even deeper political and cultural ties to the international movement to create a new world. Yet there were very stark differences between SNYC and LYS activists, especially in regard to their respective backgrounds and motives. White radicals, drawn primarily from privileged surroundings, joined the LYS or the party 
in order to challenge their own racial and class status, to buck the system that promoted and maintained inequality. Most were idealists and iconoclasts in the purest sense of the word. Others, such as Marge Gelders, could be characterized as an early crop of red diaper babies. In this category, one might include Gerald Harris, Jr., the son of radical organizer and AFU president Gerald Harris, Sr. At 17, the younger Harris was a leader in the LYS, became active in the American Youth Congress, and consequently joined the CP. On the other hand, the denial of opportunities and the paradox of racism in a democratic society motivated most SNYC activists. Black urban youth, in particular, entered the late 1930s with rising expectations fueled by the New Deal's rhetoric of equal opportunity and a slightly better chance to pursue higher education. Some Birmingham blacks optimistically turned to New Deal agencies, such as the National Youth Administration, which claimed to offer training programs, recreational facilities, and an array of opportunities for struggling young people. But few blacks even saw the inside of a youth administration office, and those who did participate were placed in menial or domestic labor programs. In 1937, 147 of 200 women in Alabama's youth administration domestic training program were black, while only 38 black women of 401 participants were enrolled in the clerical program. It is probably not a coincidence, then, that a sharp rise in black juvenile delinquency in Birmingham occurred in the mid to late 1930s. Once SNYC opened a Birmingham office, a number of talented individuals, many of whom were well-educated young women, were quick to volunteer their skills. Ethel Lee Goodman, who eventually became the director of SNYC's rural committees, had been somewhat of a restless spirit since her high school days in East Birmingham. As early as 1937, she complained to National NAACP Youth Director Juanita Jackson that the work of the junior NAACP here is not what it should be, and Goodman expressed plans to revitalize Birmingham's defunct youth councils. I have contacted a number of leading Negro boys and girls and they are very anxious to help promote the growth of the organization here in the South. Nothing came of her plan, however, and so she turned to other activities, such as organizing WPA workers in the Workers' Alliance. Less than six months later, Goodman not only joined the CP, but was a delegate to the Party Builders Congress in New York in February 1938. Sally Davis, a recent graduate of Miles Memorial College, was another vital link in SNYC's chain of black female leaders. Born and raised in Talladega County, Alabama, Davis moved to Birmingham in 1931 to continue her high school education, and in 1935 she won a scholarship to Miles College. She first found out about SNYC during Ed Strong's visit to campus and soon became close friends with SNYC chairman Herman Long and his wife Henrietta. Although Davis's teaching obligations limited her participation in SNYC during its first year in Birmingham, 
By the early 1940s, she emerged as one of its key local leaders. Though she apparently never joined her many friends in the Communist Party, her daughter, Angela Davis, was destined to become perhaps the most celebrated African-American in CPUSA history and a veritable icon in black communities across the nation. SNYC's most important and visible female leaders in 1940 were newcomers to Alabama. Ed Strong's wife and comrade, Augusta Jackson, was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, a generation removed from her parents' home state of Georgia. A precocious student, Jackson graduated from Brooklyn College with honors and later earned an MA degree from Atlanta University. Shortly after joining her husband in Birmingham sometime in 1939, Jackson plunged into organizational work, contributing articles to the crisis, actively promoting Congress events, eventually editing SNYC's newspaper, and all the while teaching at Miles College. Esther Cooper joined the staff during the summer of 1940 to serve as office director and administrative secretary. Born in Arlington, Virginia in 1917, Cooper was the daughter of a schoolteacher, also a leading voice in the local NAACP, and a U.S. Army officer with an impeccable record of military service. Educated in Washington, D.C. public schools, she enrolled in Oberlin College in 1934. By her sophomore year, Cooper had been drawn to several political organizations, including the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the American Students' Union. She attended a few YCL gatherings where she spent most of her time engaged in debate, defending pacifism over the party's current brand of anti-fascist politics. But the Spanish Civil War, to a large degree, changed all that. Soon she became an avid supporter of the Republic's battle against Franco. Graduating in 1938, Cooper continued her studies at Fisk, at the behest of distinguished social scientist Charles S. Johnson, to pursue an M.A. degree in sociology. There, she met a small coterie of communist professors, mostly white, who brought her into their inner circle. One in particular invited her into a little Anne Frank-type room at the back of his house, where he lifted up the curtains, and it was just full of books by Marx, Lenin, and the Communist International. As her relationship with radical faculty grew, so did her interest in communism. Before leaving Fisk, she joined the Communist Party. Meanwhile, she remained active in student politics, joining the Student Christian Association and attending SNYC's historic Birmingham Conference in 1939. By the time Cooper graduated in 1940, she was highly regarded for her scholarly as well as political endeavors. Her master's thesis on domestic workers and unions captured the attention of renowned sociologist Robert Park, who offered her a scholarship to pursue a Ph.D. under his direction at the University of Chicago. At the same time, Ed Strong and James Jackson asked her to run the new Birmingham office. Choosing the latter, Cooper moved to Birmingham in July 1940 and bid farewell to a promising academic career. Her reasons for accepting SNYC's offer were primarily political, but there were personal considerations as well. James Jackson, 
whom she had met at Fisk while he was conducting research for Gunnar Myrdal's study of African Americans, had moved to Birmingham as SNYC's educational director. Although both Jackson and Cooper were romantically involved with other people when they met, the two corresponded, fell in love, and consequently married in 1941, six days after May Day. In the rural areas, even more than in Birmingham itself, women seemed to be at the center of SNYC activities. When Ethel Lee Goodman assumed leadership of SNYC's Alabama Rural Committees in December 1940, she tapped a tradition of women's collective organization that had once thrived in the SCU. It was no coincidence, therefore, that the Tallapoosa County Youth Council was the largest rural committee and that its local leader, Dadeville resident Mary Jane Gray, was related to SCU pioneers Ralph, Tommy, and Eula Gray. By April 1941, Goodman had organized five rural councils in Tallapoosa and Elmore counties, many of which were led by young women. Indeed, rural committee members devoted most of their time to quilting and soliciting used books and magazines to stock local schools, the latter reflecting black women's concern for improving the lives of their children, a concern that had driven many women to join the SCU. The quilting project, conceived as a fundraiser, was also an age-old social activity crucial to building and maintaining women's community networks. Because women figured prominently in SNYC as well as the LYS, their concerns and grievances carried over into the Birmingham CP. This younger female cadre were far more sensitive to sexism and, for the first time in the Birmingham party's history, raised the woman question directly and unambiguously. Men were charged with male chauvinism for making blatantly sexist remarks, pursuing extramarital affairs, womanizing, as it was called, denying women responsible positions, and most commonly, for not involving their wives in political work. Some women occasionally used circumstances not directly related to women's oppression to subtly raise issue with sexism in American, specifically Southern, society. In an appeal for funds following the arrest of local activists, Marge Gelders added, I too was arrested, but Southern chivalry caused our local Gestapo to set me free, while the others were thrown in jail cells. Partly in response to women's grievances, black and white women in the early 1940s held many more leadership positions, not just in the party, but in SNYC and the LYS as well. Nonetheless, the younger radicals' anti-sexist campaign was in many ways far in advance of its time and thus faced indomitable opposition from male activists who strongly believed political struggle was a man's job. Moreover, many working-class wives of activists looked upon female communists and SNYC leaders with suspicion, particularly since most were not only well-educated and articulate, but young and very attractive. When I would call their house, Esther Cooper Jackson remembers, I would always invite both the husband and wife to a meeting, but many of the women had been kept so backward 
that they thought I must have been in it because I was interested in their husbands. Indeed, some outsiders, such as NAACP leader W.C. Patton, believed the party hired some good-looking girls to work for them as part of a larger plot to charm black male leaders into supporting their agenda. He adds, they could sell you if you listened to their talk. While equally vocal in their opposition to intra-party sexism, black women in leadership positions directed most of their attention to racism, as did almost everyone else in the movement, mainly because the problems of police brutality, disfranchisement, and discrimination were so overwhelming. It should also be noted, however, that some black communist couples, particularly Ed Strong and Augusta Jackson and Esther Cooper and James Jackson, strove to eradicate sexism in their personal and political lives. Both Ed and James pushed their wives into the realm of public speaking and away from mimeograph machines, and at home they shared the duties of housework and child-rearing. And to the chagrin of their more traditional comrades, Esther Cooper and Augusta Jackson retained their maiden names for several years after marriage. The man's behavior, Esther Cooper Jackson remembers, was largely motivated by Marxism. They actually thought that to be a good communist, you struggled on the woman question. Together, SNYC and the LYS enveloped Birmingham party life with a unique movement culture that shared much in common with the civil rights movement two decades later. Despite racial, class, and cultural differences, leaders of both organizations consciously strove to live by their own vision of a multiracial socialist society. Certainly, segregation continued to be a fact of life, but young communists managed to develop close, comradely working relations between blacks and whites, we were hemmed in and hung up by the segregation system, recalls Marge France, but we did have social relations on an individual level, and they were very close. Indeed, both SNYC and LYS members risked arrest and possible beatings in order to meet together in a social setting. A popular spot was a small coffee shop located in the Negro Masonic Temple, and while social ostracism was usually the price young whites paid. The loss of friends was, to a large degree, compensated for by the movement's subculture and the interracial community of activists with whom they interacted, and in many cases, whom they loved dearly. The presence of SNYC's educated, highly respected cadre of black leaders sensitized the Birmingham CP to incidents of intra-party racism that many Southern-born black communists generally ignored. There were complaints from time to time, Laurent France recalls of this period. Sometimes there was the feeling that we weren't doing as much as we could for blacks. This new sensitivity even led to a few trial-like sessions at which some white communists admitted to unconscious white chauvinism. Nevertheless, even the more militant black party leaders showed greater tolerance for intra-party racism in the South than they would have in the North. Our standards on that score were lower because there was more realism, James Jackson recalls. 
blacks understood what the traffic would bear within reason. They didn't expect miracles from white communists. Blacks involved in SNYC, communists and non-communists alike, articulated through culture a complex radical consciousness that simultaneously advocated interracial unity and black nationalism. SNYC's founders not only recognized a unique black cultural heritage, but set upon the task of promoting a conscious art rooted in the lives, the struggles, and aspirations of the vast numbers of our race. In addition to sponsoring art exhibits and musical performances by black artists, Congress leaders placed special emphasis on theater as a means of reaching large numbers of people with their message. Pernell Collins, SNYC's Director of Culture, and playwright Thomas Richardson helped found the People's Theater in Richmond and New Orleans. Although a full-scale People's Theater never developed in Birmingham, SNYC activists there directed and performed several plays and skits dealing with the poll tax, democracy, strike-breaking, black history, and Southern black working-class life in general. Since most Birmingham theaters forbade black productions, over too expensive to rent, most performances were held in churches, community centers, and local mining camps. The Youth Congress also brought theater to rural Alabama in the form of the Caravan Puppeteers, a traveling puppet show launched during the summer of 1940 that performed short but potent skits dealing with suffrage, racial equality, citizenship, and the sharecropping system. 